Welcome to the Grand Theft World podcast, hosted and sponsored by GrandTheftWorld.com. This is episode 97. It is September 11th, 2022. And this week, we're going to be covering uh, a whole lot of news. There's some big events from the past week. We're going to be here for the next six or seven hours, breaking it apart, analyzing it, going deep dive into information. I've got a whole bunch of information here that we're going to cover on the uh, 21st anniversary of 9-11. And uh, before we do that, let's get a little sampling of uh, the stories we might be covering tonight. Things like there was a a really big event this past week. It's it's slipping my mind. Somebody passed away. Right. The Queen of England passed away. She was age 96. And that, of course, kicks off Operation Unicorn, the transfer of power from Elizabeth II to King Charles III. We'll just call him KC3 for the other for the rest of the night. He's, we're going to have to talk about him a lot. We're going to need an abbreviation. King Charles III is too long, even for this long-form podcast. So once we get through Operation Unicorn and we understand what it means to have a 71-year-old king who has taken the throne, many people think 50 years he hasn't had a job and he's just now getting his first job. No, no, no. He's had a job for the past 50 years. We're going to go in, into it in deep detail tonight. It affects things like your gas tank. And the price you fill your gas tank with, the price with you, uh, with which you fill your refrigerator, food prices, gas prices, economy, carbon neutral market, green agenda—all these things are Prince Charles. It's not just Klaus Schwab. So we're going to add that very much important layer to understand world events. The uh, the King Charles layer, we'll call it. Also tonight, we're going to have special guest Johnny Vedmore. He's going to cover his most recent article on Klaus Schwab, Henry Kissinger, and the other non-elected rulers who try to make a plan for our future that doesn't include freedom. I think it sucks. We could do better. And that's what we're here to do tonight. Also, uh, last but not least, we just completed a 24-hour live stream commemorating the events of 9-11, not with a bunch of things you might have seen on cable TV. No, 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 no. We presented you with 24 hours of evidence, artifacts, testimony that is inconvenient to the cartoonish narrative that people have been fed about those events and uh, in a way to discuss and preserve it. Each year we do an annual live stream. We just completed that. So we're going for a record here on Rockfin. We, we already found out their live stream limits 12 hours at a time. We're going for our third uh, 12 hour chunk. We'll probably take half that chunk tonight and to kick it off. Let's go to Luke Radowski of we are change and the best political shirts.com for a little deep dive into this week's news. Succinct. It is Martin Dost, this poet. Uh, and they made that decision to pull, and then we watched the building collapse. Uh, your official response was that it was the firefighters. My question is, it was pretty clear that you meant the building, and if it was the firefighters, they already are outside the building by 12 because the water lines were broken. Ask the question. And the, the fire chief that you said you spoke to, Fire Chief Nagro, denies talking to you on that day of 9-11. Can you answer those questions and address the theories against you? I suggest to everybody's consideration Just one that we all look at the thousands of pages of testimony that have been rendered in the many years since 9-11, and let's use today's session for some of this. Are you aware of Thank testimony of bombs in the building before the building much. collapsed, sir? Are you aware of that testimony? Sir, there's testimony by Barry Jennings. You sir, you don't have to touch me. Uh, listen, I'll, I'll walk away. All I'm asking is a question. I don't have to, don't have to be kicked out. It's a legitimate question. You don't have to put your hands on me. 
But all I'm You're saying is, to make a scene clear no, I'm not. I'm here asking. The question was not answered. That's why I have a grievance. Okay. Larry Silverstein was told not to come into work. That's why him, his daughter, and his son never showed up to work on not 11. He, he put an insurance policy on the buildings. Reporters, do your job, please. Ask some questions. All right. Spoiler alert. They, they never really started to, to, to ask real questions after that welcome back beautiful and amazing human beings this is ukradowski here of wearechange.org here on what is mostly a very somber day the 21 year anniversary of a day that will live in infamy at least especially for me being a new yorker lots of important issues and things to talk about today especially when it comes to to such a critical event that sadly a lot of people have forgotten about but some politicians like kamala harris and joe biden are using for their own benefit releasing absolutely absurd mind-boggling statements today that should have everyone concerned as of course they're using this tragic event as a way to politically attack their opponents we're going to be talking about that plus a lot more lots of other international news happening today lots of developments in ukraine the netherlands we're going to be doing our best to talk about that plus a lot more but before we do the clip that we played in the beginning of this video is of course by by me that was me a couple years ago talking to of course lucky larry the man who of course bought the twin towers and very conveniently right before those tragic events set up a huge insurance policy for himself that paid him out in massive lump sums and has yet to still clearly give a definitive answer to some serious questions that a lot of family members have about his comments and his actions on that day the video is still on our youtube channel and very coincidentally after this confrontation with me and lucky larry i met William Rodriguez, a national hero, an individual who risked his own life, was one of the last people out of the Twin Towers because he stayed behind and he was literally opening up doors so people could escape. Hundreds, if not thousands of lives were saved because of this selfless hero who I proudly call a friend who I literally met right after this confrontation. He gave me an interview that is also available in that specific video all of that, plus a lot more, all available to you on, of course, our YouTube channel. Click the link down below to watch the full video after this one to get a full perspective about what is really going on. As, of course, this was not our first confrontation with Lucky Larry, as we have confronted him on numerous occasions, asking this question very poignantly, and to be always be met with security guards trying to rough us up or police officers trying to set us up, which is the cost we have been paying for 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 simply you know asking questions lots of crazy stuff transpired and of course we have created a full-on playlist of all of our interviews with family members survivors rescue workers all of our confrontations with the heads of the not 11 commission with politicians with donald rumsfeld with individuals like ron paul with celebrities with investigative journalists with researchers and truly if there ever was a time to go deep diving and go down the rabbit hole this would be it check out our playlist we literally have 144 videos related to this that you could scroll through and pick out and truly be surprised at the huge amount of effort we put in when it came to of course helping the 9-11 victims family members the rescue workers and survivors find answers that the government was never willing to answer and give them and again 9-11 was something that, that personally impacted me in many different ways. There's many people that I know that have passed away 
away after the event because they were rescue workers, they were firefighters, they were police officers, there was members of the military that went inside of that building that rescued people, that tried to help people afterwards. And the government came out and then told them the air was safe to breathe when they knew it wasn't. The EPA lied, doctored documents along with the White House, specifically Condoleezza Rice and George W. Bush literally came out and said, yeah, yeah, hey, there's a bunch of asbestos there. Hey, there's a bunch of really horrible, horrendous chemicals in there that will create diseases that doctors won't even be able to classify. But we're just going to edit all that out, give this script to the corporate media. The corporate media regurgitated it without even questioning it. And it led to a situation where, according to many estimates, more people have died because of the government's lies after 9-11 than the actual events of 9-11. Now, I'm not trying to compare any tragedies here at all but being here inside of new york city on that tragic day see, seeing the plume of smoke cover the place that i lived in covered my family's car where you could literally write your name like if it was snow but it was the ashes it was the asbestos it was that toxic dust that that, that filled the city hearing the panic that there were still 25 planes loose having bomb threats being called in at my school having so much panic and fear being left to the whims of the corporate media that was just regurgitating the worst amount of fear the worst amount of trauma possible this has personally affected me, and whether it affected you or not, we have to understand that this has still been a very pivotal event that we know very little about. There was individuals on Wall Street that literally shorted stocks that greatly benefited them, essentially predicting this crisis. There was video footage, photos, and surveillance cameras confiscated around the surrounding area, especially in the Pentagon. There was politicians like Mayor Willie Brown of San Francisco that gave Kamala Harris her start that openly talked about how they were warned not to travel on that specific day, canceling their flights on that specific day. We're going to get to Kamala in just a little bit. There were CIA officials intervening at embassies and consulates, approving their visas when they were initially denied because of possible terrorist links. And then some of the hijackers stayed with FBI informants. And that is just some of the information that, that, that again, hasn't been officially answered to that we still don't know exactly what happened. And of course, I could keep going. There there has been documentaries that I worked on that I've been a part of that have been asking these very important questions for many years now. And it's important to note that the government is still hiding information about what actually happened on that specific day. But the further we move away from it, sadly, the more people forget about it as highlighted by a recent video by the Young Americans Foundation that interviewed college students about 9-11, and, and this is some of the things that they had to say. Do you know why they attacked us? Like, what was their reasoning for attacking us? I don't know necessarily the reason. I mean, they're just considered a terrorist group. I guess that's all we really have on that. Uh... Now, the reason why this event was important is because it ushered into a new project for an American century that, of course, straight out came for a neoconservative think tank that has pushed America forward towards a path that has been eviscerating personal liberties, freedom, and financial abilities of individuals who have any kind of prosperous or, or peaceful life. And in my opinion, 9-11 marks the day where all of that has been steeply declining ever since, as, of course, these events weren't only used as a way to start foreign endeavors and conflicts that only created more terrorism rather than, of course, 
stopping it, creating more havoc, creating more destruction, creating more war rather than the fake notions of some kind of democracy faker as, of course, the WMDs that were never there but created a climate that justified a small ruling establishment within Washington, D.C. to commit horrible horrors on the world all in the name of 9-11. Internationally, the U.S. presence was felt around the world, especially when it came to the indefinite detention torture of individuals violating the rules of law, the Geneva Convention, and many other international laws to the point where even many Americans, including an American citizen, were executed by the President of the United States, all fighting this fictitious war of terror that fostered and grew more terror. Along with it came not only the destruction of many countries, of many lives, but also our own soldiers that were sent there, told a lie, given a rifle, only to see the lives that they sacrificed, the trillions of dollars invested, literally go into the hands of their enemies months ago, all under the failed leadership of the Biden administration that, of course, right now is exploiting this tragic event of 9-11 for their own personal and political gains. This as Kamala Harris, the vice president of the United States on ground zero in New York City today claimed that, quote, domestic threats to democracies should be treated the same as foreign terrorists. Now, who does Kamala Harris view as domestic threats to democracy? Well, this Sunday on a TV interview, she also reiterated that Trump supporters are specifically threats to democracy. Yes, on the same day, she goes on television and says that Trump supporters are threats to democracy. She says threats to democracy should be treated the same as foreign terrorists. Now, how are foreign terrorists treated under the war uh, of terror? Excuse me, on terror? Well, they had their basic human rights stripped away from them. They were indefinitely detained. They were tortured. They were executed without a judge, jury, or trial, as there are many accounts of individuals snitching out their neighbors in Afghanistan because they didn't like them, receiving reward money, Money from the U.S. government and sending innocent goat herders who had grievances with their neighbor to CIA rendition torture camps in Egypt. There was also torture camps in Poland and in many other places that, of course, the U.S. intelligence surveillance state was able to skirt the law and absolutely violate basic human rights. And what Kamala Harris is, is saying here is a grave dangerous escalation that of course should be taken very seriously as she is saying essentially trump supporters should have their due process taken away their rights stripped away taken in the middle of the night because their neighbors didn't like them or snitched on them have them tortured or murdered while being indefinitely detained because they believed in the wrong political ideas that Kamala Harris doesn't like. It's also important to note here that Kamala Harris previously used 9-11, comparing it to, of course, January 6th, and her hyperbolic sensationalistic statements cannot be understated here. And for her to use this day, at, at this specific stage, not to talk about the victims, not to talk about the rescue workers, not to talk about the survivors, not to talk about the tragedy of that day, but to try to politicize this event, to go after people who think different political ideas than her is absolutely disgusting. And it's not far from what the president of the United States just did himself, as of course he used his 9-11 speech in Washington, D.C. to also politicize this event, telling Americans that they, quote, 
owe it to terror victims to, quote, stand up for democracy. This, as of course, he has been using that PR weaponized buzzword just very recently branding Trump supporters as a threat to democracy. What's the Biden administration doing, especially with their politicization of the national security state, especially with their raids that they just conducted on the former president of the United States that is set to be the competitor against the current president? What are they doing as we're hearing that there was over a dozen raids on Trump supporters nationwide? What is this administration doing? doing well they are doing what i think they're accusing everyone else of doing and that is threatening quote democracy and of course it's also worth noting we don't live under a, a democracy we live under a democratic republic the republic part they like to leave out but this over politicization this use of the national security state that was supposed to go after the terrorists of 9-11 but now is going after republicans and, and trump supporters is something that even a victim's family member had too much of as even one of the family members that lost lost a loved one on that day came out today on a speech when he was calling out the names of his loved ones that he lost and he said this very important message that i think more americans need to hear more than ever it took a tragedy to create this new family and i want to remind everyone over there our politicians and elected leaders surrounded by a border right now it took a tragedy to unite our country Back then, no one cared if you were a Republican, Democrat, age, gender, race, ethnicity. We were united. It took a tragedy to unite us. And I want to remind all of you there, it should not take another tragedy to unite our nation. Because if I have to stand at this podium again or another podium for another event because of lives lost, because of dereliction of duty, it's going to hurt just like it hurts me. I want to thank everyone for being here, and I'm going to continue doing this until the day that I die, and I'm joined with my family up there. God bless her. Thank you. And from my point of view, their election of duty is... is at least the bare minimum here and especially the bare minimum of what happened on that specific day but i think this young man's message especially to these bordered off politicians that have been using their seat of power to punish and to hurt people because of their political ideas and speech this idea this speech i think reverberated with a lot of americans that are sick of the two-party duopoly, sick of the current political establishment, and sick of the politicization and the bifurcation of our society that's happening right now within the political class against everyone else. And seeing this transition of America is not a pleasant one, but it's one that we've been warning about and trying to stop for a very long time. As of course, on this independent media organization, we were warning that the powers that the Republicans were giving themselves would soon be turned inwards against the American people. And now the political party that literally created this bloated national security state that of course eviscerated the civil liberties in this country is now being used against the same party that of course started it. And now US domestic intelligence agencies are spying on American citizens, intervening and setting their teeth on American people, family members who are going to school boards that are concerned about the activities like the one that you're seeing right in front of us right now. 
to the point where the FBI is mobilized against school board members, to the point where everything is track traced and databased, to the point where they go around shutting down your small businesses, locking you down in your cities, and now raiding the homes of political opponents and their supporters because they dare to question the central authority that they have granted themselves in the larger abuse of power that is continuing since 9-11. And in my opinion, we have definitely crossed the Rubicon, have gone out and created a situation where now, as we were warning you many years ago, the war on terror has been turned inwards into the war on the American people. And that to me is absolutely sad and tragic. And as we remember 9-11, we should remember the ignorance and the lack of information that got us here and what we could do to try to prevent the further decline of civil liberties, personal freedoms, and the ability of Americans to live their life as free and prosperous as possible. Let's not also forget that on this date, September 11th, it's not the only coup that happened against a people and its population that, of course, led to horrible consequences. So yeah, that's my personal point of view. That's my opinion. It's been a long 21 years. The overthrow of Allende, 1973, September 11th, 1973. Um, uh, to Andrade Roy, I believe, acknowledged um, famous humanitarian, um, uh, the very famous date of September 11th in history. And I think we played that clip many, Chile many GTWs. was a Kissinger operation. We're going to talk oh, about yeah. Kissinger coming up soon with Vedmore. We're going to get into, well, we're going to get into Farouk in Egypt. We're going to get into um, Mosaddegh in Iran. Yeah, yeah we're, we're going to talk into about all Operation the... Fat Fuck. That, that, <laughs> that's, technical, that's a technical term. That's what it was actually called. You got to read the articles. All right. So uh, two more clips before uh, we bring on our guest. Let's get this, uh, this classic 9-11 truth in five minutes with James Corbett and uh, see if there's anything in there that uh, piques your curiosity. Maybe you didn't know one of these little tidbits we're about to see. Let's check it out. On the morning of September 11, 2001, 19 men armed with box cutters directed by a man on dialysis in a cave fortress halfway around the world using a satellite phone and a laptop directed the most sophisticated penetration of the most heavily defended airspace in the world. Overpowering the passengers and the military combat trained pilots on four commercial aircraft before flying those planes wildly off course for over an hour without being molested by a single fighter interceptor. These 19 hijackers, devout religious fundamentalists who like to drink alcohol, snort cocaine, and live with pink-haired strippers, managed to knock down three buildings with two planes in New York. While in Washington, a pilot who couldn't handle a single-engine Cessna was able to fly a 757 in an 8,000-foot descending 270-degree corkscrew turn to come exactly level with the ground, hitting the Pentagon in the budget analyst office where DOD staffers were working on the mystery of the $2.3 trillion that Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld had announced missing from the Pentagon's coffers in a press conference the day before, on September 10th. 2001. Luckily, the news anchors knew who did it within minutes. Osama bin Laden. The pundits knew within hours. Osama bin Laden. The administration knew within the day. Terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them. And the evidence literally fell into the FBI's lap. That a hijacker's passport was found blocks from the World Trade Center crash site, if you can believe that. But for some reason, a bunch of crazy conspiracy theorists demanded an investigation into the greatest attack on American soil in history. That investigation was delayed, underfunded, set up to fail, a conflict of interest, and a cover-up from start to finish. 
It was based on testimony extracted through torture, the records of which were destroyed. It failed to mention the existence of WTC-7, Able Danger, P-TECH, Sibel Edmonds, OBL and the CIA, and the drills of hijacked aircraft being flown into buildings that were being simulated at the precise same time that those events were actually happening. It was lied to by the Pentagon, the CIA, the Bush administration, and as for Bush and Cheney, well, no one knows what they told it because they testified in secret, off the record, not under oath, and behind closed doors. It didn't bother to look at who funded the attacks because that question is ultimately of little practical significance. Still, the 9-11 Commission did brilliantly answering all of the questions the public had, except most of the victim's family members' questions, and pinned blame on all the people responsible, although no one so much as lost their job, determining the attacks were failure of imagination. Because nobody in our government, at least, and I don't think the prior government that could envision flying airplanes in the buildings. Except the Pentagon, FEMA, NORAD, and the NRO. The DIA destroyed 2.5 terabytes of data on Able Danger, but that's okay because it probably wasn't important. The SEC destroyed their records on the investigation into the insider trading before the attacks, but that's okay because destroying the records of the largest investigation in SEC history is just part of routine record keeping. NIST has classified the data that they used for their model of WTC-7's collapse, but that's okay because knowing how they made their model of the collapse would jeopardize public safety. The FBI has argued that all material related to their investigation of 9-11 should be kept secret from the public, but that's okay because the FBI probably has nothing to hide. This man never existed, nor is anything he had to say worthy of your attention, and if you say otherwise, you are a paranoid conspiracy theorist and deserve to be shunned by all of humanity. Likewise him, 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 and her, and her, and her, and him. Osama bin Laden lived in a cave fortress in the hills of Afghanistan, but somehow got away. Then he was hiding out in Tora Bora, but somehow got away. Then he lived in Abbottabad for years, taunting the most comprehensive intelligence dragnet employing the most sophisticated technology in the history of the world for a decade, releasing video after video with complete impunity and getting younger and younger as he did so, before finally being found in a daring SEAL team raid which wasn't recorded on video, in which he didn't resist or use his wife as a human shield, and in which these crack special forces operatives panicked and killed this unarmed man, supposedly the best source of intelligence about those dastardly terrorists on the entire planet. Then they dumped his body in the ocean before telling anyone about it. Then a couple dozen of that team's members died in a helicopter crash in Afghanistan. This is the story of 9-11, brought to you by the media which told you the hard truths about His head could be seen to move violently forward. And They took the babies out of incubators. And Mobile production facilities. And The rescue of Jessica Lynch. If you have any questions about this story, you are a batshit, paranoid, tinfoil, dog-abusing baby hater, and will be reviled by everyone. If you love your country and or freedom, happiness, rainbows, rock and roll, puppy dogs, apple pie, and your grandma, you will never ever express doubts about any part of this story to anyone. Ever. This has been a public service announcement by the friends of the FBI, CIA, NSA, DIA, SEC, MSM, White House, NIST, and the 9-11 Commission. Because ignorance is strength. Slavery is freedom. We're in the double think days that 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 video came out, I don't know, 10 years ago. It has aged well, like a fine wine. It just gets better year after year after year, because what it does is for the people who weren't emotionally caught up in their CNN, MSNBC and NBC, you know, coverage over and over and over of that event for people who just look at it objectively, <clears throat> doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We'll be able to get into that story. Uh, first, we got another clip to play, and then we're going to have our guest, and then we'll do a little uh, deep dive. I brought a whole stack of books here. You might find some interesting things that you don't know about the events that happened 21 years today, but we're going to save that for later in this episode. Let's go to this Tucker Carlson clip with uh, the internet troll Alex Stein.
who turns out to be a little bit more than a troll. Maybe the troll was like a thin veneer to bring the intellectual uh, perspective to someone like Tucker. And I don't think it's Tucker's first time hearing it, but he does a good job doing his. Oh, really? Really? I didn't know that. So let's check it out. And then, you know, we have to get conspiratorial and we look at the Iran Contra. The CIA was trading drugs with Nicaraguans for guns. We were giving them guns and then they were taking that cocaine and they were flying it into Mena, Arkansas, which Bill Clinton happened to be the governor of that state. And they were taking those drugs and they were putting them in Florida. They were putting in California, Freeway Ricky Ross. So they created the crack epidemic. So the people, the same people that did that, they're creating the problems that we have today. So it's just a new drug for a new era. Amazing. <laughs> Not really. So, it's no, no, no. I you know mean, what you I mean. mean. I know you mean that sarcastically. Yeah, no, but it's what's just interesting because, I mean, I grew up in a world where, and I, speaking for myself, I actually believe that conspiracy theories were the way that dumb, uninformed people explained a complex world. Yeah. If you couldn't understand what was actually happening, you resorted to a conspiracy theory, and that was a mark of a low IQ. Of course. Now, I always think this. The more informed, the smarter the person, the more likely they are to be connecting the dots that you're connecting. So you grew up in a world where people just like assumed that the system was not on the level, I think. Well, it's called cognitive dissonance. It's like, you know, the government is, you know, has done corrupt stuff. You know, there's classified levels of intelligence that you'll never be a part of. But you have cognitive dissonance thinking that the government has your back. They don't. It's a personal people control system they want to control us and that's one of the biggest parts of why they want to keep you depressed because tucker when you're constantly depressed you're in what is called fight or flight so you, your hormone response is constant cortisol and that's why brian stelter those guys they constantly have the ticker on cnn how many people die how many people die because people get addicted to that hormonal response and once you're in that fear state of fight or flight you can't see the forest for the tree right in front of your face. Yes. So then they can literally, like a dog with a treat, they can make you do whatever you want. And that treat is just more trauma, what I call trauma-based mind control, just more fear tactics in order to control you. So that's what's happening now is the mainstream media, not you, but the, most of the mainstream media uses fear to control us. And that's the same mechanism that the government uses. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. You could go check out Peace Revolution episode 23 how to free your mind if you would like to know more stuff like that because what he's saying isn't novel or new but it is the first time it gets in front of tucker carlson's audience so i find that uh, encouraging optimistic invigorating that more people are going to start saying oh really there's there's some maybe we should be looking into the details of these events and not trusting the tv pundits also a good point was brought up by alex at the beginning of that he's talking about iran contra iran contra is something that's in the middle for me of a of a of a character development arc, right? So let's. <laughs> that's an interesting um, way of framing yeah, it. There's a character development now. arc. The character is, let's say, CIA's relationship with MI6, and in the 1950s, it was like, like new lovers. They're out in these exotic places, overthrowing dictators together, and it's a lot of fun and games. And there's communists to fight and you know, we all speak English language. So MI6 uh, is CIA, British American relations, you know, James Bond, Ian Fleming. It's all, it's all interwoven there, but then JFK dies and he died right after, you know, operation mongoose operation 40 where MI6 and CIA had like created these assassination teams. So right so after I about the failed day of takes. So it's not like JFK dies yeah. and then they created assassination teams. They created assassination teams and then our head of state died. Now, luckily, the guy that Kennedy had just fired 
Alan Dulles. He becomes one of the pri like prime people on the commission to find out who killed Kennedy. Alan Dulles says American people don't read. And they continued to rise to power. Everyone associated with that rose to power. Nobody got fired. We're going to get to that same commission. Was, was that the one that also came up with this term called conspiracy theory? No, it was <laughs> after that. Mm. So it would go like this. JFK is assassinated. Warren Commission does its investigation. Edward J. Epstein, uh, John Taylor Gatto's former roommate at Cornell, Epstein upon graduation, uh, they witnessed like they were there. They were together in New York when it happened. And they said, if Oswald's dead by the end of the weekend, they're going to think it's conspiracy and dig into it. Edward J. J. Epstein did. He wrote a book called Inquest. He questions the methods by which the Warren Commission came to its conclusions. Very credibly, New York Times bestseller, not a conspiracy theory book. And then the CIA gets a hold of it and sees how influential Edward J. Epstein and his book is on the public. And the CIA writes a memo. It's called 1035-960. Concerning criticism of the Warren Commission report, it's a 24-page memo. In there, they say Epstein's book's causing trouble. And on the first page, they say the, the source of uh, the solution is to use the, the phrase specifically conspiracy theory, conspiracy theorist as a pejorative, and that this will be backed up by the establishment media newspapers, and it'll be kind of like a thing. So anyone who has the, they want to take the excuse to the shortcut to thinking and assume that authority's right. So they'll just adopt this CIA term, conspiracy theorist, as a pejorative so they don't have to do any reading themselves, which is what Tucker just discovered. He's like, oh, those people act. Some of them. He's right. It's oh, yeah, absolutely. End. Sure. But on the other hand, the people who are doing the reading, they probably are more informed than most of these other people. I mean, who the are people focus on reality and artifacts and evidence and compared to what I call epistemological cartoons. You mean that sort of thing? Oh. So after the assassins get away with JFK's murder, Bobby Kennedy gets killed. Martin Luther King gets killed. Whole bunch of murders in the 60s. Very convenient assassinations. Watergate happens. Watergate has to do with JFK's assassination and Mary Meyer's diary because she was keeping track of all this skullduggery, but she made the mistake of telling James Hesus Angleton, and then she ends up brutally murdered alongside the highway. And her, I mean, husband, the good, her husband was a suspect. Like, you know, he was on yeah. the hit team. So... There's a whole bunch right there, but that's just Watergate. 1980s, we're back to what Alex Stein mentioned, Iran-Contra. Same group of people. They rose to power through assassination. They got their own people in the White House in the, in the 70s through Nixon and then Jerry Ford, and then they chose Carter straight up. Brzezinski yeah. and David Rockefeller, like, here's your next president. And then H.W. Bush gets CIA, and he becomes vice president, and there's a whole rise to power there. By the time Iran-Contra happens, this is... Um, uh, a predecessor to BCCI, the Bank of Credit and Commerce International. Now, I kind of, they, they, they kind of have overlap. It's arms dealing, it's drug trading, it's hiding behind the National Security Act to do a whole bunch of things that the American people would never approve of, which is why they hide it from the American people. The one of the gents that's caught in the banking Bank of Credit and Commerce International, this big terrorist laundering money laundering factory, was Clark Clifford. And he was the lawyer who brought in and wrote the National Security Act in the first fucking place in 1947. So now the guy who writes it gets caught using it for what they created it for, to hide all this black marketeering, arms dealing, narco-terrorism from the American public. People start to find out about that. But people like Lee Hamilton, who were involved in that, 
They're on the 9-11 commission. Other people that were involved in those cover-ups get in with the 9-11 commission. So by the time you get to the 2000s, you're not too far from the 80s and 90s when all that was going on. So there's a very important context to the 9-11 commission, the individual commissioners, the role of Philip Zalikow, who was a co-author with Condoleezza Rice on Germany reunified. Like They had already been hanging out together before the whole event, and then they're going to investigate the event. And H.W. Uh, Bush's involvement with CIA prior to him being director ties back to his uh, time in Dallas in his report to J. Edgar Hoover about an assassination attempt on Kennedy. And then H.W.'s son is in the White House when 9-11 happens. So it's the second generation of globalist terrorists performing a coup on this country because on 9-11 there was a coup. Let it be known. People say, well, you know, because I have a book here. It says 9-11 synthetic terror made in America. Wasn't made in America. There was a threat on Air Force One, a credible threat, using the, the code word of the day through credible channels. And that that's not something that's necessary if you're doing it to yourself. So that's another thing that the 9-11 Commission conveniently leaves out of their report. The fact that there's foreign nation states or foreign actors familiar, like they had inside people inside the security. Yeah. And that's like a, a nation state actor. That's not it's an Al-Qaeda with box, cater, box cutters actor. Yeah. So there's a there's lot, a lot to it. it. Yeah, there's, there's a lot, lot to it. Yeah. There's uh, let's not forget about uh, Daddy Bush, Herbert Walker Bush, uh, his connections with potentially <laughs> loosely circumstantial, but JFK also with Reagan as well when he was shot. Well, Hinckley's brother and so was, Reagan was talking Bush. about these international organizations for a while, right? And all of a sudden Reagan gets shot and then all he, he gets quiet. So it's a very strange. Yeah. So for continuity. Trump, voters today being characterized as domestic terrorists think how far we've come from 9-11 9-11 it was all patriotism and it was you know go get the people who attacked us now all those patriot act type of of uh measures are being focused back on american citizens and it's quite the opposite it's like the united states is working with al-qaeda over in yemen we're on the same side over there killing the the houthis but over here uh american citizens Patriotic people, people who love the Constitution and freedom, are being characterized as domestic terrorists. And it's interesting. So how have we gone 180? If everything's all fine and our school system's fine and the media is not lying to us, how did they invert the whole world over no, the past 20 years? How'd they do that? We've been tracking and showing you how they've been doing it as they were doing it for like the past 20 years. So for people to be like, what's going on today? It's like, you need to understand what's been going on for not just the past 20 years, but the past 40 years. If you just understand Iran-Contra and that type of corruption and the cover-ups that went on all the way up through 9-11, it's not so surprising what you saw for the past 24 hours on that live stream. But for some people who are watching our 9-11 live stream for the past day, that's quite shocking, some of those clips, because it is a very great different, like, Con contrast to what you're told in the the public narrative and the public narrative is so simple and so matter of fact here's boom 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 but you just saw corbett tear it up in five minutes make it look stupid and that's because it is it's made for people who take it at face value and aren't going to decode it or process it or apply their consciousness to that situation to understand it because way, of the trauma-based mind control aspect that alex yes. stein said i was surprised yeah. he dropped that little uh tidbit because that's sort of we get you got people into a fear a fight 
fight or flight situation, right? I mean, unfortunately, yeah. based on the fact that there was a lot of free floating anxiety, people weren't sure about what was happening. They wanted a simple solution. There wasn't much information. And then you had um, well, people Paul don't Bremer. even know about that because they don't want to have like the PTSD that comes with that trauma, right? That's correct. And I say, no, you don't need the PTSD. You're right. You need the PTG, post-traumatic growth. Like they lied to you. That sucks. You believed it for a while, but now you're wising up because you look at the actual evidence, you compare and contrast like you should in an uncensored realm where they don't take select pieces of evidence and hide it from you like able danger. 2.5 terabytes of inside our government tracking that another part of our government's facilitating all this terrorism like activity that com- culminates on 9-11. They deleted all that data. They're oh, like, you don't 2. need that. 5. I got an hour. The, S- or the SEC two with filings, they get rid of state those. of mind. Or the like, SEC investigation. Yeah. How do you get rid of that? I mean, well, the whole thing. I mean, it's you once hmm. described it to me, Rich, over 10 years ago. It's how you take a forensic scientist, you take a, a forensic, not historian, but so like someone who studies forensics in regards to basic crime scene analysis. You bring them in and you say, you look at the protocol they're supposed to follow. And I think we even did this. We, we brought yeah, up like a base protocol. protocol. They broke yeah. every yeah. single step. I mean, that well, just that point you. in the past video where they talked about they deleted all these SEC records and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Dude. World Trade Center 7 itself is a big filing cabinet. It was right. the SEC yeah. offices for Enron investigation and Tyco International and all these other multi-billion yeah. dollar frauds. Well, there's credit had card. an IRS office, a yeah. CIA office. That means it has an MI6 office there because there's no difference. Like GCHQ and NSA are joined at the hip and MI6 and CIA are joined at the hip. And Mossad does its own thing and spies on everybody over here. <laughs> but they work together. But they work together. I mean, that, don't think about the Pentagon, the two point three trillion, that the impossible maneuvering to be able to. And is that even? Well, the, I also the, like the, the job Zach time. He was the comptroller at the Pentagon at the time when that went missing. He's number three at the Pentagon. He's also the guy who was in charge of a company that does remote control aviation with commercial aircraft, which oh. I thought was just like oh, that's just a coincidence. There's nothing to see there, you know. Very interesting. Is that from no. Richard Gage's? Uh, no, it was. Uh, I think like, uh, uh, stream in the twenty-four hour stream that we just had. Uh, okay. uh, Jeremy Reese brought it up. There are several people. Oh, Jeremy, yeah, good. Brought yeah. up. Uh, yeah, and that's on Rockfin. If anyone wants to see the twenty-four hour live stream that we just did during the week, uh, we did last night. But if you want to see it during this week, it's on Rockfin in two pieces that are twelve hours each. It's evergreen. Nine eleven essential information. Get it. Download it. Understand it. I learned. I mean, I watch it every year because I made it, but um, I learned a lot today, even while I was reading a whole book. So there's like thing you've seen a video, but you're going to learn a new thing that you didn't even see in that video by watching it more than once. And that's the type of uh, repetition that helps you build up understanding over time from those essential pieces of footage from like we started out with how was the World Trade Center constructed in the first place? So we had two documentaries showing the robust nature of those buildings right. that uh, you know turned into dust in 20 seconds. The 220 for such square impact, acres yeah. of reinforced concrete that just... <laughs> so we're going to talk about that and a whole lot more later. Do we have... Oh, we do. We have our guest in, in the room and he's five hours ahead of us. So we wanted to get to him early. Johnny Vedmore, welcome back to Grand Theft World. How you doing? Uh- I'm so happy to be here. I, I heard loads of uh, 
what you were talking about there. Um, I oh, some really interesting stuff I'm doing at the moment on this, like uh, that I haven't released at the moment. Uh, it's like uh, I'm doing five articles that I put into draft with uh, UK Column News that covers all of the British side of the sort of like uh, culture war between the the West and communist Soviet Russia. Um, so that includes like all of the Ivor Bryce stuff uh, with Ian Fleming. Yeah, that includes some of the crossovers and i'm looking for the other stuff that you know there's really interesting things that happen just after the war after like 1945 1946 there's like all the stuff i've discussed in the the most recent article i've done on unlimited hangout but there's a load of other things happening there's a whole takeover of of almost like all of the darker areas of london like the london nightclub scenes uh the casinos um the, the organizations in london all being taken over because it's become like this drop point for all of this uh, communist uh, information that's coming in and everybody's working against each other. Everybody, like there's, car, there's one guy who says like, it's, it's not like the feeling like the world's going to end tomorrow. The world could end right now. So we're all just doing what we got to do to survive, like, you know, and everybody's just selling secrets in darkened corners. And I came across something spectacular. I came across a lady who owned a nightclub in London, and uh, it, it seemed like she had been gassed to death um, to, to uh, take control of the nightclub. Afterwards, the craze and people took over, organized crime. But then the intelligence services took over. All Craze. of the nightclubs. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh. It's this Dude, is how I'm it started. Yeah, I, saw thing, yeah. I saw that movie. I saw that movie with the twins. That Listen, movie is it's amazing. It's that you know, Whitney was researching uh her new book, um, her new books that are coming out, uh, which are gonna blow you. I mean, some of the things you were saying there about BCCI and stuff, you know, there's revelations galore. It's just like they're two volumes of just revelations about what Jeffrey Epstein was actually up to, the proper intelligence side of it, not just the you know, sex blackmail, sex blackmail, sex blackmail, look at all the sex, look at all the sex all the time. That's what they've been doing with this whole load of other stuff, stuff that's so serious. I just did not, I, I could not even, you know, I. I, I, I was telling like some of the things that are in the book and I found myself having to whisper in like outside, this is what's going on. You know, it's so yeah. scary. It's so worrying. And does, and does she follow up anymore with like the biological? I know there is like Zora Ranch and stuff of that nature. And that's where I kind of got very concerned, um, especially when I first heard her report on that, because I'm like, wait, they were doing like animal human gestation or trying to bring it to gestation and like real, <laughs> real genetic manipulation that they're trying to skirt underneath the regulations that exist from the various nation states across the world. That was really yeah. disturbing, and I was. Uh, I'm really curious if she's sort of followed up with that. Well, these guys. I mean, I, 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 <laughs> I would say that. I, I won't, won't want to spoil too much. I, I don't know how much I can talk. There's certain sure, things I can talk enough, about. Don't get in trouble, it's, it's, yeah. it's coming out soon. And it's going to like, some of it, I'm just so scared to speak about. I don't, I, I just don't know. Wow. There are a couple of things I've been given permission to speak about. Um, but but that, that's definitely not one of them. It's a range. It's a range. There's a, there is a, uh, a range of stuff. But she asked me, um, going back to what I was saying, she asked me, uh, can you have a little 
look at this rumor about the craze um, doing this uh, with this person back in the um, late 60s or early 60s uh, in a nightclub uh, called Esmeralda's Barn. And I went and had a look and um, I discovered Esmeralda's Barn was a fantastic interest. Place. I started to do the history and I started working my way back and discovered that at one time in the mid 50s, all of these nightclubs in London were owned by these really um, industrious, fantastically like courageous women. They were like the, the women who after the war, women had been mobilized during the war loads. And suddenly they had like all this creativity, they had all this confidence and they went out and they bought houses, they did up places, you know, they put in hard work hard graft they become rich you had loads of rich women come around they bought nightclubs social places they they had hostesses uh dining the rich and famous and then by the like you know all through the 50s you have this sort of like vibrance and then they all die in mysterious ways everybody from ruth ellis who gets hung uh the last woman to be hung in great britain to be hanged sorry in great britain um she she gets hanged uh for, for shooting her boyfriend after being basically mentally abused and tortured by him for years and there's loads of other people but the people were around in these clubs the people who were in these clubs were people like george huntington hartford ii who was this big um uh, millionaire uh, billionaire sorry playboy philanthropist his uh, I think it's AMP grocery stores. It was the first chain grocery store in America. Mm. And his family, his, his grandfather created that train chain. And his father uh, hated his family. And so it, the inheritance skipped over and went to George Hunterton Hartford II. And George Hunterton Hartford was like fed completely with a silver spoon, constantly like mollycoddled by his mother, but then had loads of money, was really wealthy, was in the Bahamas and it was started going to like was just a sex addict so just went around having sex everywhere going to all of these sex parties that were being organized by intelligence agencies in all of these clubs in all by all of the people who were running like clubs like these there were all like these major open compromise stuff that would lead to the perfumo affair and the downfall of the british government and the people involved in it would also be almost lead to the fall of the american government just as kennedy got in because one of the women involved in this was uh mariella novotny or whatever you want to call her she's got loads of different names her real name was mariella capes um she was also known by loads of different things uh she was one of the girls involved in the perfumo affair but she was the girl who um was discovered in america sleeping with with JFK um, and a big hoo-ha was made and she was smuggled out of the country uh, by a mixture between the FBI and the CIA um, and given free pass out together, just get out, get out of the country, you know, that, that's that's how they, they, they dealt with it, but there's this whole, there's this whole time there in 1945 where um, the BSC had started just at the end of the war, 1945 Alright, so that's a British security coordination, you gotta translate that for Americans, we don't, we don't yeah. understand that for the most part, well, it also was so, based, it was based in New York, wasn't it? Like, yes, I yes, mean, yeah, in, in Rockefeller so, Center. Now Nelson it, Rockefeller set up uh, British security coordination, so they gave him a headquarters, and it was run by uh, Sir William Stevenson. And uh, when you mentioned Ivar Bryce earlier, oh, did I? Yeah, I an amazing human being. I, Ivar Bryce is incredible. I wanted to see. Is this who you're what talking about? Saying. This guy. Can you see him? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's who I'm he talking about. He went to Eden. I, 
He's he, buddies with Ian Fleming. All he, through he, he met Ian Fleming at a Cornish beach. Um, in in World War One, they had something that was um, they had the Zeppelins coming over London and bombing London. Uh, the big balloons, uh, and of course that caused great fear. So that was the first kind of like time that they took the children out of the cities and put them in the country. And he met um uh, uh Ian Fleming on a beach in Cornwall when they were only kids. They were only kids, and they got on really well. They went to eat together um they they ended up writing a magazine though the magazine they wrote just before the war together was uh encouraged by i can't remember if it was fleming or price i think it was price's mother um it was encouraged but it had like t- it, like it leaned towards fascism it actually had one thing that was like uh, uh um uh basically said yeah, how he was, wonderful he was part of the british fascists he was part of the british yeah. fascists and the baker street irregulars and worked for bsc under Stuart Menges and uh, Stevenson. Extremely, he was the only. If I if I'm correct on this, he was the only British person to be recruited by the OSS and be officially a member of the OSS. Ivor Bryce. Um, he, he, he has a incredible history uh they rewrite him in stories as well i was watching some film the other day um which included him i can't remember what it was it was with colin firth and they 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 started talking about how he was a communist and stuff and just like it was really it's really interesting they still rewrite the story of ivor bryce and ivor bryce and his his wife now ivor bryce who did he marry do you know who he married? He married Josephine Huntington Hartford, which is uh, a George Huntington Hartford II's sister. So they were really close together. And these guys all hung around uh, in, in the London cliques. Um, and one of the people in the clique was this very weird guy called Horace Dibbin, who was a Satanist, who was the husband uh, of Mariella uh, Novotny. Um, there's, there's so many like links and so many interesting stories. And if you follow all of the lines down what you discover is like this history of this um uh, of all of the the creation of intelligence and it was a very like it was all mishaps the the british were trying to the reason why the bsc uh, was set up in new york originally was to encourage the americans uh, to believe that fascism was on their doorstep and all around them to make them react and it's very much it describes what the Cold War would be and shows what the Cold War would be. This you you do certain things to make other people have certain reactions, but they're not necessarily violent actions, aggressive actions. Ivor Bryce, one of the things he did was he wrote um, a fake map or he designed the writing of a fake map, which was then uh, to be found on some guy floating in like the Sea of Cadiz or somewhere in Spain. And it was supposed to be like um, a dead uh, a some sort of dead enemy of of the Nazis or whatever and it was going to then be delivered up to the Nazis and then they would know know somewhere something and they would do something and so on and so forth and uh, he he was designing like ways of making America uh, tilt their uh, uh, focus towards Cuba as well and and think that Cuba was potentially bad. And it's some amazing, wonderful, amazing um, people who were involved in all these weird, weird people who were involved in not only this, but they're involved in like creating this myth about uh, satanic sex parties. So they would use the satanic sex- panic. And well, that's in the 80s, but that this is going back to the 60s yeah, but they're creating I mean, yeah. psychological yeah. warfare operations so just as Correct. a real quick example if they're creating myths that cuba is going to get us might we react as america with operation northwoods 
like because people make yeah. out like they all oh, joint Jesus staff was going to kill a bunch of people and blame it. Da, da, da. But what were they reacting to? What was the stimulus to their reaction? And why didn't they have some some thought in there? That was yeah, I, I found I found one extremely incredibly interesting guy um, who's called by uh, to said by Horace Dibbin, one of these guys to be a Satanist. Um, but when you when you when you actually learn about him, he's much weirder than that. And it's a guy called um, Andre Gabor Tiamal uh, Bozomeni. And Bozomeni is this Hungarian guy who looks like Dracula. He's a fascist, but he's hanging around with all of the top elite. And he's hanging around in all of the embassies. He's also an inventor, a really interesting inventor, who w- is working with a guy who was working with the Nazis, a Hungarian guy who was working with the Nazis uh, during the war. And there's loads of links to Nazis in this guy. He represented at one point, he's a lawyer, this guy as well, um, Andre Gabor Tiamal Bozomeni. And Bozomeni is such an interesting character. But all of these guys are doing the same thing. They're trying to influence. They're working alongside these. These people are working alongside. They live together. You know, I found records of these people living together. And at the same time, they're pretending that they're on opposite sides to different people. So, I mean, it's this operations galore. And they're really inventive, creative. By the time, you know, they were really scared. 1945, 1946, 1947, they had to be really careful. 1947, things start to pick up. Operations start to happen all over the place on both sides of the channel, on all sides of the world, really. There's operations going uh, going off. But then by the 50s and the 60s, late 50s, especially in the 60s and 70s, it all gets really flamboyant and crazy. Yeah. Some of these parties that were, were the sex parties were just like peacocks walking around in the house. There was like um, a, a very famous guy called Billy Williams, who was a gangster. He was part of the Brinks Matt robbery, um, I believe. And his wife, Gypsy Williams, they, they, he was like one of those gangsters who went along. They actually sold the craze into Esmeralda's barn when it became a casino. So that's where I actually ended up starting investigating and worked my way back. I found all of these characters and just couldn't leave it alone. You know, uh, I couldn't start, couldn't stop watching what they were doing. Almost like um, eyes wide shut style in a way. Yeah. Gypsy Williams tells this story. This, this, what I was about to say there, this perfect example. I mean, it, it goes very well. Gypsy Williams tells this story that she goes, they're, they're at they're one of these sex parties. They're watching all these rich people, rich elites who have been having sex with these uh, crazy like women like Marielle Novotny who were just like over the top, always wearing a hat when they were having sex, Marielle Novotny. She was always sure. wearing a hat. No, almost the same hat. Billy, uh, lots of people <laughs> mention how she was always like they'd see her day after day in the same hat having sex with random people um but but, but this uh gypsy williams went up to the bathroom with one of these sex parties closed the door locked the door sat in the toilet looked across and saw a peephole with someone's eye looking through it and uh it was horace dibbins on the other side it was himself um, told people uh, that he had uh, become a Satanist during the war when he was serving on the Orkney Isles and he took part in a sacrifice of a woman uh, in a goat ceremony Um, and these were the people who were working with the intelligence services, these are the people who took over all of these, these took over from the gangsters, these are the people who were so gangster they were more gangster than the craze, the craze couldn't compete with these guys, they just sat and watched what was going on, you know the craze 
trades loved it they were making money galore so it satisfied their needs um they they took over they entered this world because they were east end gangsters east end is like the rough area of london this hmm. was the west end this was a different place and they only entered into the west end in about 1960 1961 when billy williams uh sold them into this uh this bar uh, this bar Esmeralda's barn and that had been bought from horace dibbins um of, uh, so so it's all like all of it's linked and it's all a way of making things but i find it so interesting when i listen to any part of the story i'm trying to investigate it on both sides of the channel at the same time and there's some really interesting people one or two that are just mind-blowing well, no one know about psychopaths attract one another i mean look at wild bill donovan when he said the oss and when he did in world war one I. I mean, in fact i found a whitewash he's history. in the rainbow division he's the rainbow division and what they say about him i'll bring it up here it is hilarious so i'll have to share this with you so and then he got um, groomed by william stevenson wild bill donovan in search of a way to serve his country donovan joined the new york national guards fighting irish regiment and during world war one the 69th retreat designated to the 165th u.s army called the rainbow division so named because of the cost cross-country makeup then lieutenant colonel donovan was troubled by the poor training and lack of physical conditioning of his troops so he ran them in full packs in the three-mile obstacle course and that's where he got his name Wild Bill, because he could still do it afterwards. At the end of the men collapsed, Gasimir, what the hell is the matter with you? Donovan demanded, I haven't lost my breath. At age 35, he had him carried the same load. The voice of an anonymous soldier in the back, Donovan, public expressed annoyance, blah, blah, blah. On but on February 28, 1918, Donovan and his battalion entered the fighting for the first time. He had wondered how he would react. Listen to this. He, won he had wondered how he would react the first time he came under fire and discovered he had, quote, no fear of being able to stand up under it, end quote. He wrote to Ruth, his wife, throw it at the danger of combat like, quote, a youngster at Halloween. Growing up easily accustomed to standing up under fire, Donovan eschewed being a dugout commander and led his troops on the front. And this says everything because this is the whitewash part. On the morning of October 14, 1918, during the uh, Muse Argonne campaign, campaign, excuse me, Donovan earned the Medal of Honor. His unit was being decimated by uh, fire from his right, and Donovan's advance stalled with horrifying casualties. What they don't tell you, and this I got from Dave Emery, but we, Rich, you showed me, which got me mm -hmm. this book, The Old Boys, is that during that fight, I believe it was that one, the whole thing was supposed to be a setup. It was supposed to be a retreat. So he's supposed to sort of posture himself with his Rainbow Division to make sure that they fall back and then he would get reinforcements. It was supposed to get them to, you know, uh, uh, file into them, um, attack them first. Instead, because he had no fear of fight, uh, no fear of battle, he refused to back down. He refused to surrender, even though it was supposed to be a setup surrender. And unfortunately, uh, he ended up decimating and, and sacrificing most of his um, uh, division in pursuit of the glory that he ended up obtaining. And then obviously uh, the recognition that came after that. He was also a Wall Street lawyer, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah. So, and I forget the side, it's in the, I'll look it up, but I forget which uh, law firm he worked for, but he was. So, uh, I no, that was Alan. That Sullivan was Sullivan. But he was yeah. he was a corporate trained lawyer, and he dealt with a specific type of litigation that was very unique. It was very much a part of Wild Bill's history. Mm -hmm. So when you look at it, it's just like because I was thinking about this, I'm like, it seems like you're talking about what was the Satanist name? Because it's like uh, Horace Dibbins and, um, Dibbins and Andre Gabor TML Bosmeni, but that one's a hard one. <laughs> Say <sorry. Horace> Dibbins. <laughs> I'll think of it like rice. Um, it's uh. It's a weird because it's like these. It, I think of like Sir James Fraser or something, an early tribal community when you know the Scottish anthropologist wrote the Golden Valley. Like he 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 sort of theorized that an early tribal community, the psychopaths, the the ones with, um, 
that had great guile that uh, or shrewd and cunning were able to rise to the top of essentially mm-hmm. the tribal order and maintain the cultural taboos as a form of control. Um, mm-hmm. psychological control. I mean, that's that's a sort of an anthropological recognition, but I'm you sort of seeing similar patterns and like as we develop civilization, but in regards to the individuals that end up you know becoming the coordinators of you know the BSC or the COSS, OSC, or the OSS, which becomes the CIA and their covert operations, the OPC. And it's it's an incestuous circular mix of chaos and you said incestuous are we talking about the royal family now or the Rothschilds? what are we talking about (laughs) who's been breeding puts you at the top of the food chain real quick though what was the pro fuma so you you brought up this i just want to follow this up for the audience because um so it's the perfume affair like what what happened with the intel was it british intelligence or american intelligence that was trying to do this uh, or make sure it was it. it was american intelligence I'm it was to america remember. okay I, 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 but but no no i i mean they'll they'll say it they'll say it wasn't they'll say it was it was something else but there was a whole load of stuff going on there was a load of people who were involved in these sex parties people like stephen ward who would eventually um be one of the uh you could say the the um he was left he was he was he died during the the sentencing during his sentencing he took an overdose and was taken out of the actual uh, court but he was basically the hanged man in the situation to hide up what was really going on because people like that thought they could contain the situation they were enjoying hanging around in all of these nightclubs with all of these gangsters with all of these intelligence agents with all of this communist stuff you know they were lots of these guys especially were uh, involved with the perfume affair had lots of friends who were just communists they were they they didn't see it like I'm your enemy. They were just like, oh, I'm a communist. So what about it? But they were high level communists who also had like links with different uh, places. And uh, of course, um, different organizations, different different people in London. Um, but of course, what would happen is this would all get so complicated and everybody would get so worried about the sort of like um, information that was flying around and this sort of like uh, th- th- what these guys were doing and how they were operating, that they would have to put a stop to it eventually. But there was there was um, an American. Oh, I can't remember his name. It's so annoying. I've been I've been trying to think of it as I've been speaking. He's a fantastically interesting um, guy. He's a guy who actually um, Jack is based on from Titanic. He's a guy who is Catch Me If You Can is based on as well. Um, he's a guy who loads of movies are based on and no one knows it's him. No one knows it's him. He is one of the most interesting um, American uh, spies in history. And he was really balls deep in all of this. And no one really knows that. But what I mean, the perfumer... Frank Abengill? I, 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 like the guy who did the forgery yeah yeah but but there was like elements of that it was based upon this yeah, guy he's saying, who gotcha. in the secret yeah, service yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not yeah, Abing- it's, it's, it's a the, mixture of it's a it's a syncret or uh, yeah of yeah yeah but this typology, guy is, oh what is his name it's so frustrating um uh, there is one i found one newspaper article about him but that's another one where there's a brilliant story about him uh he used to hop around on the ships when he was young um and he was a very naughty 
naughty boy. Um, and he ended up in all of these circles. But the Perfumer Affair was basically, uh, Perfumer was, I think, the foreign affairs, um, for the, the Secretary of Foreign Affairs or something uh, along those lines during the course of this uh, Cold War era. Um, and he was found to be sleeping with a bunch of girls who were all compromised in all sorts of ways. And he was basically uh, talking to them about all sorts of things that he shouldn't. And uh, it meant he had to resign. It meant his uh, prime minister had to resign. And it was the downfall of um, the, the British government. So it, you had all of this, um, you had all of this like, it completely uh, there's a, i think the movie that was based upon it is called downfall um and it's one of the many movies um the one as well with the girl who's sitting backwards on the chair that's also about uh the sexy one from the 80s Ooh. that's also about perfumer affair um there's lots like the perfumer affair is a really interesting moment where all of these people like sort of coalesce and mix uh who are all intelligence or gangsters or sex sexually motivated and there's so many women there who are really young women. I mean, Mariella Novotny. So it's like she, Bohemian Grove for straight people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's not, I, I don't think it's only for straight people. You know, there was some weird thing. Mariella no, Novotny. I was just making fun of what Nixon said about bohemian growth that's <laughs> yeah, that's all that's all I was yeah, saying. yeah oh yeah fair enough well, well, but for saying that there was one of the guys who hung around with stephen ward who used to do abortions he was like the society abortionist stephen ward was known as the society osteopath um he was this scapegoat for the the whole thing in the end um and everybody knows in history when you look back at it he was a scapegoat for it like you know get rid of the affair blame it all on him take him to court and get get rid of it well where he was society osteopath there was another guy who was a society abortionist used to do the abortions for all of these after all these sex parties when any of the hostesses or when any of the the prostitutes for the gangsters got pregnant he would go around and do do that and Marianne Novotny uh went round um uh to him one time and and said uh owed him a favor so agreed to do something sexual for him uh this is the same one who slept with JFK the same one who's married to Horace Dibbin etc and she said he he wanted wanted her to um, simulate having sex with his snakes. That's what he was into. He was a man with like half of his face dangling down, you know, when you have a kind of one of those stroke faces. And, uh, he, he, you know, there was so many freaky, it wasn't just straight. It was some freaky stuff going on there. And it was heavy, you know, if you get someone doing something freaky with somebody else, you've got someone compromised. And that's what they were doing back then. It was the start of all of this. It was so exciting. They were building all these operations. Well, I a think it's the of, start of their work organization of it but uh alan dulles got caught in an mi6 uh honeypot back in like 1916 in switzerland so he's with a compromised woman he they let him know hey you, you're going to be brought up for treason now you're our guy and that then he had a rise to fame magically versailles treaty wall yeah. street hitler the rockefellers he was the rockefellers lawyer for investing in the nazis and then uh director of cia his brother takes over state department JFK gets out of the way and uh, they they hit the head. Rich, what was the book with Nelson Rockefeller? Um, it's in a fictional setting, but oh, um, where they try to blackmail the witness him. tree. The witness, witness tree, tree has uh, the, this is about the state of Israel, of, right? Well, Eleanor Eleanor Roosevelt's husband gets killed by her brothers because he's pro-Zionist and they were anti-Zionist, and then it it goes over in detail the blackmailing of Nelson Rockefeller so that Israel can get the United Nations votes and the South American votes. I they think, needed the Latin American yeah. votes that Nelson Rockefeller uh, represented 
with his power and strength. Uh, and I think they got a, they got some sort of deal. And it's described because the Mossad agents or the nascent Mossad agents, right? It was pre-Mossad probably. It could have been like Irgun, uh, whoever they represent. They represented uh, uh, Ben-Gurion. Mm-hmm. And that's the direct source for the book. The authors of the book talked to one of the guys in the room who blackmailed Nelson Rockefeller for those votes. And so that's a really interesting book, The Witness Tree by John Loftus and Mark, uh, no, not Mark Aarons. I forget his. Uh, I think that book also goes on to describe how they would blackmail individuals with the fake mirrors and the sex. And there's a, there's a if it wasn't that mm-hmm. one, it was something similar. So that's or, Operation Midnight Climax, but that was going on much later than what yes, Johnny's that, describing. That's way later. Yeah. He's talking about the time of Kim Philby oh, sex yeah. parties we're, yeah, during we're, the early Cold War days. Right. All right. So, uh, the two other topics I wanted to talk to you about, Johnny, is uh, your recent article. Well, I want to mm-hmm. talk about that and get people to read it. Read, because Dallas said we don't read. And so I take that personally. So now I do read, because not reading got us 9-11. Not reading got us uh, all the stuff that's going on today. Let's start reading. Let's fi- let's read between the lines, figure out what's going on. And then I also wanted to talk to you about uh, King Charles III. And uh, you live in Wales. And <laughs> he's the Prince of Wales. Not and, anymore. Uh, now it's William. Now that's Williams, right. That's yeah. right. Uh, yeah, I watched yeah. the switch up the other day. <laughs> it's horrible. It's horrible. It hurts me. Hurts me inside. Yeah. The, well, the new articles. Um, the most recent article I brought out uh, is the uh, follow-up piece to the Riser Schwab articles that I've got going on. I think it's obviously a series because there's about there's like five or six other articles like sort of mapped out and planned out um, because there's some really interesting directions. Every time I go into it, every time I go in after the second one, I mean, finding out about the CIA funding, I wanted to know more about the um, CIA conduits that were involved in it. So I looked at the, the, the three main ones that we know were definitely involved in funding Kissinger's international seminar, the seminar which would see Klaus Schwab uh, trained up by a CIA-funded program and eventually given mentors to go to uh, back and create the World Economic Forum with. Um, the, the three conduits that were used to fund that between the years 1960 and 1966 were the Farfield Foundation, uh, the Asia Foundation, and uh, the American Friends of the Middle East. And the Farfield Foundation is really interesting. That's like um, cult- just like a cultural war against Soviet Union, uh, where it's like, um, I, I think it was like music competitions, art stuff. Uh, it was funding what they called, I think they called it agreeable foundations, you know, things that that, that would, would they was like soft, this was soft war techniques. Um, journals and conferences were also funded. And I think that's how they, they uh, got into Kissinger's International Seminar. The Asia Foundation um, was a bit different, uh, was set up in about 1954 um, for a budget about 8 million uh, and was later, it's still running today it was actually uh, redefined under the sort of like idea of what the national endowment for democracy uh, uh, was created to be like which is an organization for promoting democracies in um, other countries so still that same sort of um, what this article looks at is really the creation of 
all of these sort of um, organizations fronts a lot of the time uh, with CIA money uh, funded through these different conduits, um, which and who who was involved in these different conduits, how they were uh, getting the money to these uh, people and what they were funding. Really, what they were funding was a frontline war against communist uh, rhetoric. It was a cultural war. It was cultural warfare. You know, they, they were trying to uh, make sure that they the front line in Russia, Europe, you know, uh, the Middle East had a really, they, they really feared that the Middle East would be uh, easy to turn because especially after 1948 and you've got like um, the Nakba, uh, you've got lots of people who are really angry in the Middle East with the West. They see them as this behemoth. They feel used from the war. And then they, they had just like, you know, they, they, they constantly, uh, it, it's a soulless beast America. They saw it as a soulless beast. And so they, the Americans were obviously worried and the British were worried that the communist groups, which had been uh, running for a long time, would infiltrate all these areas, all these governments. And would well, I think that's the communist. excuse they used, because like listening as you go along, you're talking about Kissinger and Kissinger was Nelson Rockefeller's protege. Nelson groomed Henry. David groomed Zbigniew Brzezinski. So at this time, I looked up the Asia Society. Talking about cause, Kissinger. Because I was like, weren't, well. the Roth- weren't the Rockefellers also involved with the Asia Society? And it's JD3 and Frank Wisner from and OSS Wisner, and, yeah. and David Rockefeller and the Rockefeller Brothers Fund and the Rockefeller Foundation. And I know that these foundations also, they they funded Royal Institute for International Affairs and they funded CIA. Like MK mm-hmm. Ultra is uh, a work group at CIA, which is a proxy for these robber barons to do their shit. Yeah, the Rockefeller Foundation was um it was a uh, funding the Confluence magazine, which ran quarterly alongside Kissinger's International Seminar as well. That 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 had all of these people, uh, these big uh, luminaries from around the world, uh, speaking about how the world should be in the future. Uh, of course, all of so, the- Johnny, what do you think, real, real quick, like in regards? Because like I was reading through this, and the thing that really stuck out to me is exactly what Rich sort of pinpointed and also what you describe in your article it's sort of like this idea that they had to battle communism you even quote them like they funded communism and they funded the nazis and it goes back to them like sort of like both sides it kind of reminds me of the sam harris equal force argument he tried to make in regards to trump it's sort of this idea that like well there's this problem we have to use covert tactics and we're justified in using covert tactics and secrecy and occulted information in order to to protect our interests Yet are their interests, if you look at, and you, you know this well, uh, Johnny, in regards to its uh, corporate interests, because this is all CIA backed. So this is what we're talking about, John and Alan. So John Foster Dallas and Alan Dallas. I think John Foster is the older one, if I remember correctly. He becomes State Department head of what, 1953. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, you get Alan Dallas, who becomes the head of the CIA. And they're Sullivan and Cromwell. Not to mention that, you know, Bill Donovan was right. also a corporate lawyer. So it's like there and that's where all the coups all of a sudden start happening. You have Farouk, you have Allende, well, Allende is 1973 in Chile, uh, September 11th. But you also had, uh, what was the other one? Mosaddegh, Iran, so you had yeah. to go into here. So it's yeah, like Operation Ajax, have, 1953. Wait, it's confusing because like they're ostensibly seeming to use this, this dialectic, right, against communism. But they're also... But it, 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 this the people that they're supporting, in fact, you go into... I think it was Kermit Roosevelt. You mentioned that he's sort of worried about Arab nationalism, but then they're sort of funding Arab nationalists. In fact, he's helping in a way. Use the specific example of Egypt and Farouk, and that was curious because I was like, "Man, yeah, this Operation is, Fat Fuck." 
Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think they're hand, a lot of it actually. Yeah, I, well, I, I think they're hands forced. I think that they you know they they have to use all of the tactics under the sun. These guys because they they didn't want the majority. It's really weird when you investigate someone, you expect it to be one way, and then you find out that these guys are all anti-Zionists. You wonder how right, the that world blew my turned mind. out. Yeah, it's just it just takes. I I can't understand it. Like nearly every single person who were involved in this um in in this area. yeah they did the opposite and i think that was like a strategic idea you know keep them looking at one hand and we'll control that situation eventually and then we'll hit them with the other and and kermit roosevelt was really like he was he had a lot of foresight he saw that that you know eventually they would the arabs would be strong enough to join together and really that's like 1967 so mm. the, in 1967 you got loads of things happening you got like you know sh sh schwab leaving uh, uh harvard as well if you want it like within the story there's like 1967 is such a big year for loads of different things and the, the where the world's going and i think the cia wasn't but built just to do these coups uh, etc it was built to first um to, like be a, a route for uh, people in the cfr and other um places that were were uh, thinking how the world's going to look in the future mapping out how the world's going to future look in the future like the hudson institute and others uh, and they the cia was the route to make that future happen they were the way, the vehicle to make that future happen, um, the, to, to, to create something that, that no one thought was really possible once upon a time. But they were like, well, if we don't do it, the communists are going to do it. That's the excuse we can keep using. We got to right. just keep That's the dialectic forward. they can play. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and it works really well, except for, how, I mean, and let's go to Operation Fat Fuck. So you've got this operation, which is like quirkly named, this is the first CIA coup. Uh, they go to Egypt and they find it, they, they're lazy at this point because they're currently setting up <laughs> Kissinger's international seminar, yeah. having all these young global leaders come into inter the international seminar to be trained up and reinstalled back in their country. But it will still take a little bit of time to get those people in 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 sort of uh, uh, power in some way, whether by influence or by soft coup or whatever they they do. Um, so so this is a, a really a time where they just said, "Oh, lazy, we we'll go to the free officers." movement we'll get this guy nasa and within it, it works out for them um it, like planned out by even though kermit roosevelt, roosevelt is against using nationalists mm -hmm. they use nationalists that's what's like so mind fuckery the the quote the it, operation fat fucker sort of thing. i think yeah it's just laziness the first couple of mm. operations is just like okay we got to get this done at the start to prove we can do it so sure. that we can go back to the opc or whoever was going to give them money and funding and say look this has been successful because as soon as the fat fuck one successful what happens is they go to iran and john foster dallas says hey brother <laughs> why don't you have this one million to to uh overthrow the iranian leader like that's crazy it's like equivalent of like 12 million 13 million in funding to do so the same thing again and these guys were just rolling in it this this they, they would have been able to go back to uh whoever funds them whoever was giving them funding and say look at the success we can have now if we industrialize this we could take over the world and that thought 
enter that thought into all of those think tanks, into all of those rooms out the back where people were trying to work out what the future was going to be. And suddenly they're fantasizing about what they could create in the future. And no, uh, you know, the sky's the limit. They can do whatever. They they were creating something. Like the, you mentioned the Mighty Wurlitz. I got to say this, yeah. Hugh Wilford is my hero. I love him. I, I just like, uh, he. I mean, without his writing, I my job would have been a hell of a lot harder. Uh, Richard would have it on his desk. I'd yeah, walk in he, when I was living with him for a while. Yeah, and, and he's was, one on the great game too. Like yeah, he's yeah, got a body of work. I bought his paper as well, uh, American Friends of the Middle East, and, and read. I, I, I just found, I, I just find that everything he does has information you just as critical to loads of stories, not just this story, loads of story. And of course, like what I was going to say is like the mighty Wurlitzer itself. It comes from um, Visner, where he said one of the founders of CIA, who said that like the CIA would be like a mighty Wurlitzer playing whichever propaganda tune they so did wish you know uh, like that they could they could suddenly puppeteer all of the propaganda because what they had learned is something from the communists nearly everything they do everything they enact is like they're watching what the communists are doing and they're saying god look how successful that is let's do it nearly everything they start doing is from lenin's playbook it's like you know it's it's really just undermining but they're all of a sudden they're justifying it because lenin's doing it to them and you get into this they're doing it for capitalism this slippery slope capitalism democracy capitalism. i think is what they call it well, you know there i'll drink to that your article <laughs> sort of split up into two sec first you go into the history especially the intense history of the american friends in the middle east kermit roosevelt you get into something that i had to ask you a question about because this sort of blew my mind when i read it we're going to talk about thompson gilderson and roosevelt here these three individuals and their anti-zionist leanings while at the same time Zionism is essentially going to be ratified by the UN 1947, 48. So it's going to happen. Yet they're they're recognizing that this is going to create a hotbed of what then later on, ironically enough, Kissinger called a limited war, which you even sort of you don't quote the limited war aspect, which I can bring up some articles about that. But um, you do quote the issue of they they wanted almost war, essentially. They're going to bring up they like a state of almost perpetual war. And yeah, I thought yeah. that was very interesting, especially in light of the sort of, you know, con the military industrial con complex and Eisenhower and all that sort of. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, Eisenhower. Eisenhower what about the anti-Zionists, though? Like what? what how did I, you like? Because that's such a, again, another weird, you know, there's like with uh, Mosaddegh or with um, Farouk or what happened with Nasir when they with, uh, you know, they're supporting. They, they don't want to. Kermit, Kermit Roosevelt doesn't want to support. The nationalists yet they're using as you said and it's probably i agree with you incompetence or just laziness but at the and same Kermit time is teddy roosevelt's grandson or son right. right yeah son yes uh fifth cousin fifth cousin i think yeah franklin roosevelt yeah. right and franklin roosevelt uh, was also a 10th cousin of churchill so it's uh tight, tight it's a big club <laughs> you're not in it what was, yeah. what was your take when you researched that sort of anti-Zionist feelings in regards to then what happened with Zionism? Consider considering also that we're also in bed with we need Aramco, we need the oil, we need the because uh, mm -hmm. there's the Muslim Brotherhood. You know, Rich, yeah, you also the Declaration. So yeah, the Balfour Declaration, do we're we're doing Operation Gladio. We're helping to build up the you know uh, these proxy nationalist groups. Like it's 
it's so many contradictions it's almost overwhelming yeah 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 i completely agree i i found the american friends of the middle east the reason why i concentrated them on them was because first of all i think the first 10 years of funding isn't noted by humphrey dorman in his report we don't know who funded kissinger's international seminar for the first 10 years so i think they had a very big part in funding kissinger's international seminar and that's the re part of the reason why um but they were very they became more and more important because um, once Truman had said, oh, you know, we're supporting this new state of Israel, all of these guys felt like partially thrown under the bus, but realized that they were they were all in. I, I mean, I think they were all under the employee of the CIA in some way, whether by uh, like employment or, or membership of a club like the AFME, um, which is the American Friends of the Middle East. And the, the women involved in there are really interesting. They're extremely powerful women. Virginia Gildersleeve. Yeah. Um, she's she's like, um, I think she's how uh, the CIA's idea of how women should be in the future. These strong women who will teach you how to do things the old-fashioned CIA or MI5, MI6 way. And as she paid, portrayed herself as being a strong woman, kind of like slightly uh, sleek and sexy at times even though you know they weren't like very attractive ladies and and they were she's like described as um specifically as a like a champion for all educated women so a lot of her uh what where she was looking at was creating like education women education and they knew that women were going to be an important part of this future because when you game it out you know that women have been so important during the war like you don't want to now put them back into the kitchens. That's bloody silly. These guys, once mobilized, uh, are extremely productive in their own ways uh, all over the place at, at this time. I say in their own ways at this time because they weren't allowed certain sort of access. But in this, this they were, they were seen as really important. So Dorothy Thompson, the first woman to be expelled, a woman journalist or journalist to be expelled by the Nazis in 1934 for speaking up against Hitler. She was uh, someone who called um, Black Black voters, uh, venal and uh, trying. Yeah, you have it. You have it here. It's uh, Thompson. Yeah. However, Thompson also held extreme views concerning America's black voting population, describing them as quote notoriously venal, ignorant, and illiterate. The vast mass of Negroes are like the lower strata of the early industrial immigrants, and like them are bossed and delivered in blocks by venal leaders, white and black. And What's interesting that, that you should say that because we only had slaves in America because it was a British colony. Yep. Not to mention, it's sort of like that's another contradiction <laughs> with like Dorothy Thompson. It's like because I one well, she's kicked out of Nazi Germany first. You know, reporter. Uh, I don't think it's this woman reporter. First reporter that was kicked out or something like that. But then, mm -hmm. 1934. But then at the same time, she harbors these unfortunate very like sort of racist opinions she don't she doesn't only harbor these really racist opinions like she sounds english if you listen to her she mm, sounds like she's english so she she's obviously been trained at some high up grammar school she but she got schooled in new york so you know she's gone through elocution lessons and all of these different things to be the appropriate woman to lead women in the future you know it's like that that's how that's how i think their mindset was is very old-fashioned and they were trying to create they were 
thinking, not only can we create the countries, the rulers, we can create the culture as well. And this is where that sort of like idea of we got to create a, we, we're already fighting against a culture. It's not too much of a jump to think we can now create what we, what's going to replace that culture. We are, when we look at ourselves, some form of giant like mash of loads of different um like cultures from the past and we don't really have our own soul yet and we don't know what we should do about it so we gotta decide something new design something new and this whole uh the, the, these women were put out there in front on purpose and kermit roosevelt's like one of the most interesting characters around when you get onto the guys who were involved in it there's the harry emerson fostick as well who was like um he was an american pastor who is a, a like massive influence to martin luther king um he, he was uh he called him like the greatest preacher of the century martin luther king called fostick he, he completely loved him but of course he's he's cia so you know right. martin luther king he shows you know do we know no the story we all know how it goes even the pastors were working for the cia and in a sense with these guys all thought they were doing something good they were still in war mode because yeah. the cold war was in so they were all thinking they were doing something good uh for the empire but that's when they saw what zionism was they they crapped themselves and said well we can't support this why are we supporting this for god's and after the nakbad all they found themselves doing was battling against um zionism and uh, it's unfortunate because they didn't seem to understand the. Um, they, maybe they did, but it seems like they didn't quite understand the full history because they keep framing it in this, the, the understanding of some sort of the Arab, the intifadas that went on, um, the Palestinian uprisings and like how that could, they were using this dialectic of the Cold War, as you point out in your article, essentially worrying that the Soviet influence on the Arab nations could be a real thing and that we have to support them for that reason. Not, But they never really seem to mention the other reasons as to why maybe we should support you know, or not support the the Zionist, the Israeli state. I think they were telling themselves whatever they needed to tell themselves Mm. to sleep at night so they could get on with all of this um, empire building because behind closed doors, these guys, even though they thought they were the ones who were the movers and shakers, they were still cogs in a machine and there were people making the decision above and they were implementing that decision at an extremely high up executive managerial level uh, in intelligence services or in their little organizations and groups. What do you think about Roosevelt's dad, Kermit Roosevelt's dad? You you have a little thing there, and I was like, that's a curious little tidbit. Yeah, that hey, hey, li- listen, you know, he's a he's a he's a story in himself. He's a story in himself. He's a bit of a I hero. I think he saved Theodore Roosevelt at one point when he was out um, hunting, like his own son saved him, or there's some story like that. And there's loads of these puff pieces about him for that that just seem extraordinary and over the top all the time and well, I he think had he, pr he was one of the first guys because he came from a wealthy family that uh participated maybe in the opium trade back in the day oh, really? and uh oh. he wanted to rebrand himself very specifically because he was pretty ordinary and blended in so he rebranded himself as like this frontiersman and he went to a photo studio in new york city and he gets his costume on and he gets like uh, a big Bowie knife before Jim Bowie was alive, I think. And uh, it's made at Tiffany's. So it's like a Tiffany's silver, big, you know, expensive, sure. rich people knife that, and he gets these pictures taken. And then people associate that with like, oh, he was out there hunting and trapping and, you know, San Juan mm-hmm. Hill. And he led the, you know, the Rough Riders and 
Whoa. There's a lot of PR. I mean, it's it's weird, right? A lot of PR because, like, when you when I look at this, and you only make a quick mention this because obviously, I mean, like you said, it's a story in itself, and that's for another time. But the Abilene Reporter newspaper reported on Sunday, sixth uh, of June, nineteen forty-three, that Kermit Senior passed away in Alaska the day before the article was published. So the paper noting, quote, ordinarily the phrase "killed in action" is used to report a death right, in combat. He suicide. Yeah, but he committed suicide, which I was like, or well, did he? Kind of, or did he? That was the that was my follow. I was like, what did no, this, yeah. I, I feel like I feel like there's something really weird. They kept position they kept putting him into different places. Uh so they, they kept him moving him around during the war. I did do a little bit more research than just that, but I, I mean the article I had to keep it fairly successful. Oh, su- for sure. Succinct. Yeah. I mean that's a story um, in itself. Yeah. It yeah, but 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 he, he, he gets moved around during the war. I think he starts off in Finland and then he, he uh moves around to some Scandinavian countries and then they move him right across the world to somewhere else and then then he ends up in alaska and i get a feeling that he was completely and utterly off his head i think he was completely mad i think wherever he went he did completely nut stuff and they used him a lot but he was just completely uncontrollable and and he is I, I, he had lived a life where he was the son of the president, you know, and he got away with everything and he got to do with whatever he wanted. Yeah, um, but it, to a, a level that he became just like uncontrollable and a bit mental. Um, mm. I, 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 I wouldn't be surprised if it was like alcohol and things like that uh, um, thrown in there. But it was, it, I mean, it's notable to say that such an important, potentially important person with so much experience and he's in Alaska, they based him in alaska during the war that's as far away from any of the action as you can get from in world war ii okay i mean you could say yeah okay the japanese all oh, the japanese couldn't attack alaska but i mean it was very unlikely very very unlikely that that was going to be uh, at the same time as sons being groomed i mean yeah. that's the other thing like it's it's happening pretty much contemporaneously and that's what's so strange about it yeah but you know how and, intelligence uh, yeah go ahead I, I just find that the, the, the story of the two Kermits extremely interesting. <laughs> I just, the fact that they're both called Kermit as well, and they have <laughs> these weird, weird I mean, well, there's also Edith Kermit Roosevelt. So she's, mm-hmm. you know, it's like oh, a family yeah. name by that point. So, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, it's a very strange one. There's some strange, they, I mean, back then, though, there's some strange people up there in the elites. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very strange people indeed and they've got a lot of power so you know um what what's what's in, i mean what's interesting is that the, these are the guys who make up the like kermit roosevelt uh junior would make up like it would be part of the oss and then would be right on the front lines of uh this formation of the cia um and we, he's if you type in kermit roosevelt you'll only get mostly get pictures of his father yeah, he's obviously Kermit Roosevelt Jr. is much more important historically and has much more going, uh, uh, like interesting about him. It's much like August Belmont, who was a Rothschild representative in America, ran the Democratic National Party at the time of the Confederacy. But his son is also called August Belmont, and they usually don't call him Jr. So it seems like this one guy, August Belmont, had like this amazing stretch from like the 1840s all the way through the early 1900s of power <laughs> but really by the time the rothschilds are making subways in new york and stuff uh it's the uh, august belmont jr who's handling those deals for them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all right so 
Uh, speaking of weird people with a lot of power, what's going on in your country, man? The the queen is dead. Long live <laughs> the king. This King Charles guy, we call him Chucky Three over here. I know you can't say that over there, so I'm going to say it for you. Um, he's related to Vlad the Impaler. He's had uh, this sustainable, <laughs> beamable prince idea where he's going to be in with uh, Great Reset promotion and Agenda 21 and save the planet. You know, World yeah. Wildlife Foundation. What's well, that's over. That's over. Uh, yeah. Officially, officially, the 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 when you start up your kingship, I suppose it is, uh, when you become king or queen, you you have to leave behind all advertising or promotions for other organizations. Oh. So his World Economic Forum days are behind him now. Uh, if he continues to support that, that will be out of the uh, sync with the history of the monarchy by a long way. By a long way, you know, That's you, you support wow. charities and things. But did you see the Queen turn up at, at Davos ever? They're not just not. You're not allowed That's to. Right. It's, but yeah, it's written within. We've got. I mean, we we. <laughs> there were two Charles before. Now, I right. know about those guys. Oh God, I know about those guys. How I, did I, the first one leave office? Well, I was brought up in an English civil war society. Um, my dad was uh, uh, Graham Vedmore in the. Uh, in the weekdays and on the weekend he was colonel john birch of uh, colonel john birch's regiment of foot um and we were part of the parliamentarian army we used to fight on battlefields full of like eight thousand soldiers with guns can uh, muskets firing gunpowder the cannons rows of cannons horses coming along pikes etc swords uh, all from the 1700s i know this history very well and it doesn't end well for chucky one uh chucky one he 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 loses his head <laughs> he's um he's uh yeah executed by of course oliver cromwell and the boys um and oliver cromwell is one of the most hated people in history what happened afterwards oliver cromwell become lord protector for a little bit um and eventually he died uh they buried him they dug him up afterwards and they chopped off his head and burnt him if i remember correctly i'm not sure if they burned it but they chopped off his head to make sure he was dead everybody hated oliver cromwell they really i mean what happened was charles pushed his power too much it was something i think it was shipping tax you put money on uh you put tax on something for the monarchy people didn't like it parliament revolted the king tried to take full control of parliament they ended up with a war it was like uh terrible uh losses all over england the english civil war uh the creation of the new model army which was a new way to to fight by uh cromwell that, that ended up then winning this war uh, and what happened in the end is Oliver Cromwell reinstates the monarchy afterwards. So Charles II comes to the throne. Uh, and Charles II, his history is extremely interesting. He went through some really big times. I mean, the Great Plague in 1666, followed by directly by the Great Fire of London in mm -hmm. 1666. He was, in, he was responsible in 1676 for the complete collapsing of the bank, uh, of, uh, of the banking over there because he, uh, he, he defaulted on uh some of his loans and the banks collapsed so he's he's got like i think that 
possibly led to, to somehow uh some some way to them looking for different banking abroad a different way to uh do business like that and that would eventually lead to things that i think you guys do a lot more research than i do um but but basically he he had an interesting time that they were stewards um and uh there would only be a few afterwards before the glorious revolution happened uh and and the rest of it uh william and mary got uh william of orange and mary got installed on the throne um and that that lineage disappeared um they weren't they weren't they weren't well liked in history they were very posh guys very much like current charles charles the first is i i would say he's not going to have an easy time if anything he should he's probably going to tone down the pomp and ceremony and you'll see it withdrawing and becoming much more european style of monarchy eventually um he is the last of that generation to be uh get involved in the ceremony before they like the british people say no not, not enough they'll show you on the bbc a load of people saying oh i love the monarchy um but most of the sentiment is that's a waste of money because you walk through london i walked through london recently and the doorways are lined with homeless people and you're walking past palaces with just a couple of these guys living in and uh, no one likes it you know if if tastes wrong it tastes wrong they get a lot of money they waste a lot of money and a lot of the the uh, friends of charles the first in the past have been horrible horrible people so jimmy savile the bbc dj Correct. who molested uh right. maybe a thousand girls and a, a boy or two like you know that you're talking not not just one or two it's just like horrible he was so he was in a connection to that scene as well with the uh, kc3 um, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, with who? With um, oh, King Jeffrey Charles Epstein. of Casey Free. Yeah, sorry, King Charles Free. That's our abbreviation because we're we, it's <laughs> we decided to go with uh, an abbreviation because yeah. we're not going to say King Charles. So I'm sorry, I should have told you that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure about that. But what I did learn, and uh, talking about the other stuff that I've been doing very quickly, so mm -hmm. something that that I did learn is uh, this from uh, Whitney's research was that the um. Epstein actually created basically the Clinton Global Initiative, funded uh, the Clinton Global Initiative, then went on to fund the Harvard School, where the Young Global Leaders Project, through Wexner, where the Young Global Leaders Project uh, program uh, does its summer school seminar type of thing. That's kind of a nod to the other that's the same building where Schwab made his penetrate the cabinet speech that was funded by Wexner um, through the Clinton's global initiative that Epstein originally created so sorry that's an Epstein link there. that's coming off but yeah King Charles III what 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 He's another one of them. He's another one. He's going to sit on a little throne. He's going to not do anything. Um, he's he's not. It's not only Jimmy Savile that he was friends with. He was friends with a guy, really close friends with a guy called Canon Peter Ball, and he he got sentenced um, in his lifetime, just at the end of his life, um, to 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 raping loads of boys. This guy had really terrible. He's just bad news for the monarchy. He should never have taken over. Um, he should probably have handed it down to William. I think loads of that that will grow in time because people just don't like even looking at him um yeah, I, I, sure what's the perception he, of like historically i mean this is technically like a german slash dutch sort of monarchy isn't it i mean sax mm -hmm. coburg Gotha. so we're 
like, I mean, in World War One, I, I know they did a PR campaign to change that. But what's it like in England? It's like, is there any recognition of that, or is this seen as as a sort of a continuation of of, of British sort of hegemony? I, or? I, I think I think that it, it it's not based on re- like the, the the it's not based on reality, whatever it is. It's based on how much propaganda people take in. So, uh, I, and you can see that with Queen Elizabeth II's like the the fanfare for her has been sycophantic and disturbing to yeah some yeah. So it's, yeah and the same was seen with like princess diana um sure. same uh, like you know it, it they people have this overwhelming oh my god i'm connected with her because i've seen her in the newspaper every day for my whole life and i don't realize that's what i'm connecting with this thing that this picture has been put in my head over and over and these stories have been put into my and it's been read on the news over and over and it does we get so much royal crap it's just terrible. Now, I, I'm, of course, I'm a Welshman, and I'd love independence for Wales. And he was uh, the Prince of Wales, and now that goes on to William. Um, they'd set that up a few years ago. He had, yeah, I think he had been educated in Wales, and they came and lived in Wales for a bit. So, I, I you, you know, they were setting that up already. I, I don't think that... I, I think that Charles III is just like, he's not going to de- endear to himself to most of the common English men, let alone the Welsh or the Scottish. Um, he, he's the Irish de- love him, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which ones? No. Uh, well, no, no, I tell you, I tell you, there, there are, there are, because the um, uh, you have the, in Northern Ireland, you have the two, you have the unionists and et cetera, and you have nationalists, where you have, you have, uh, I, I'm from uh, Got the red a family, right hand. I'm from a family who's, uh, I'm related, my great, great grandfather was in the Orange Order. And I think they they legged it from all of that stuff, and and they got so they were they were loyal to the crown, very loyal to the crown, and did not want unification. And this goes back to the the fact that if you look at it uh, genealogically speaking, if you look at the, I think it's the heliotypes um, of ancestry uh, from the history of the ancestry, the Scots Irish. So the northern, a lot of the Northern Irish are actually um, related to Scottish people from mm. the past, and and a half of Northern Ireland is related. The probably the majority of it is related to still Irish people, um, but they've got that culture and they got that history, and they can't break from the past. And what's weird is they're not loyal to Scotland; they're loyal to England and the Crown. So there's so many contradictions that's, that's within great, that. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, it, it to be perfectly honest, it, it's, that was Charles it's like II. mind-boggling. Charles II, when they start getting England, Scotland overlaps, and then the British royal family starts 1707. Since you're like Jonah in the Bible, you know, you live in Wales, let's talk wildlife. The World Wildlife Foundation. Prince Charles, yeah, too many puns in one sentence, he's got to take a sip. <laughs> Prince Charles, Prince Bernard of the Netherlands, who was a SS officer for Hitler, get together. They make the World Wildlife Foundation. But Prince Bernard of the Netherlands, the former SS officer for Hitler, also partners up with Klaus Schwab to do World Economic Forum Davos Manifesto. So there's a nice tidy overlap between Aurelio Pache of Club of Rome, Prince Bernard of the Netherlands, Prince Charles, and Klaus Schwab. And uh, Was Prince Bernard also the one who... Developed the Bilderberg Group. I think of a different prince. No, he's probably in that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a ne- the, the 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 actual um, uh, Netherlands 
royal family. That's that's one where they're all over uh, the, that swanky school down uh, near uh, Baden Baden, where Schwab's uh, originates from. That the, the, the I can't remember. I can never remember what it's called. It's like one of the the richest school in the world. Um, Prince Philip went to that school alongside um, one of the the Dutch monarchy as well, and they, they're so overlapping all of the time. And they all they got their fingers in all of the pies, and they're all over the World Economic Forum because it's the the Queen, isn't it? The Queen, or is it the Princess, who's always in uh, the Davos? And the, the problem is, is that these guys, there's so many of them, and they're doing so much. It's hard to keep a track of them all, you know. I, I'm 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 definitely trying, but uh, <laughs> they're all over the place, and they they're doing some. They 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 are revolving around organisations, and this is kind of what like the last piece I wrote was about the creation of organizations so that they can manipulate your mind they can manipulate which direction you go uh with things i i don't know much about the world wildlife um fun just oh, I because got you here. here we go yeah prince philip prince charles world wildlife fund for nature mm -hmm. i think it was called and then uh maurice strong from Agenda Twenty One. Oh, hey, Morris Strong, me and Morris Strong again, coming head to head very soon. I can, I can tell you that. I can tell you that. Right, and if you check out, like, you know, who who are the people that brought this to us? It's like Anglo American PLC, Bank of England, De Beers, uh, Jeffrey Rockefeller, Louis Bloomfield from MI Five over there, NM Rothschild and Company. Uh, Prince Bernard of the Netherlands, mm -hmm. Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. Well, you can tell it's a, you, right? you can tell it's a front because it's got a panda on the front of it. You know? Julian Huxley. <laughs> it was Julian seen as Huxley. like the, the the biggest waste of money is to concentrate on this real. Like the panda's a loser, man. The panda is a loser. The panda, you have to like try and encourage it to have babies, and it's nearly impossible. It's nearly impossible to have. It wants to die. It wants to go extinct. And they make it like this 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 central theme. It seems like the extreme of it. it seems and then they got the this extreme. thousand and one club. Do you know about that? It's Nature <laughs> no. Trust, whose contributors, uh Prince Bernard of the Netherlands, WWF 1970, yeah. uh, W so they made the WWF World uh Wide Fund for Nature, right? Worldwide. These got a, yeah, these got a, Rothschild's a part, I think, has a connection. I'll do the unsaid sure. conference in Rio. This is a, this yeah. is the this and is the, the green Strong. agenda. This is agenda twenty one, yeah. and it's nascent stage. At the same time, they're saying predicament for mankind. They're saying, hey, right. let's get a thing with the panda on the front. Well, now it's starting to it as our it's right. starting to become instantiated. Whereas before in the Club of Rome, it was a conceptual foundation. Man is the problem, you know, limits to growth, mm -hmm. Jay Forrester, cybernetics, these sorts of ideas. Now they're taking action. Like, how do we implement it in the form of sustainable development? Agenda 21. Now we have ESG, we have you know, all these principles, we have carbon tax, we have the whole everything i mean now they're they're trying to now they're trying to essentially tax us for breathing and stop us from eating meat so i mean it's like that's the sort of like chaos and nonsense that's but to your point sorry go ahead rich i don't want to uh, i was just going to say who's in the yeah. schutzstaffel prince bernard of lippy beisterfeld what <laughs> What's real quick uh, because last time we were had you on johnny you talked about uh, the house the, the house of schwabia in switzerland and uh, i don't 
sort of refresh people's minds about in regards to sort of like his sort of lineage and history well it's really it's a region there's a region called Oberschwabia. it's just on the uh, switzerland and and germany border but it's mainly in germany i believe but these are like schwabian people the people of uh uh, uh, people who moved there who were worried about um being called jewish <laughs> this region had uh, blood libels Jew- jewish blood libels since yeah. like the 1500s i think it was 1400s 1500s where they accused all of jews of of sacrificing babies and and drinking their blood and stuff so they would i just remember reading bring... old pamphlets from back like it's kind of it's it's sort of insane when you look back yeah, in history and it's, 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 it's happened in england in like 1300s yeah, it happened quite a lot in 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 uh, Uberschwabia. It happened quite a, a few times, and they 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 just banned Jewish people from going through there. So I think a lot of Jewish wow. people who lived there, who had land, were like, oh, "Let's change our name to Schwab quickly as possible." And anybody who was like kind of like in the middle decided also, "Oh well, in, in case people start accusing us of not being locals, we should just take up the name Schwab." But only I I think that the uh, the region the where it's based um uh like near the the border of switzerland near the border of austria or right on the edge of germany not far to uh across the alps from lombardy uh and and uh italy and uh, the francos up and all of the different like regions historically they learned to trade they learned they were a type of people who really learned to like uh get on with their neighbors industrious yeah or they would die or they would die and do deals with with the devil like you do deals with the devil for peace you know and that's really what i see within like that that is something that i feel that klaus schwab is you know you see you see other people that he aligned with who had like a tiny did tiny bit of ethics or morals that that stopped them going to, as far as Schwab would go and saying no 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 but he wants to go all of the way you know and I think that's a I, I personally think that's a Schwabian uh, sort of uh, trait that mm. he's showing there that it's like that he do, do a deal with everybody even the devil as long as it will bring peace and that on a world scale makes sense if you if you keep expanding out that makes sense yeah everybody does a deal with each other and everybody lives in this one world government and sort of sees himself as a sex a self-sacrificial martyr and that that creates sort of megalomaniacal sort of saintly you know like i i can sacrifice myself for like the, the same way of the blofeld world. was <laughs> and, and how do you how do you create how do you create that um sort of if you're going to self-sacrifice if you're going to say uh i'm doing all of this for all of you how how do you create what you want at the end of it and and before you die before you go mm-hmm. because i think he's i th- i think he's it's not gone as quickly as he thought it would go you know technology hasn't moved as fast as they wanted it to go so i think he's I the world economic forum is on the precipice of real change if schwab was to die and was to move over to the other side i'm not sure how they would fill that hole because he's been uh able to be he's been the orchestrator uh, i mean well, let's yeah. talk about that they have One a mini thing- me there's a they, second. You guys didn't see the movie. There's a mini me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's produced at Zorro Ranch. Vern Troyer um, is available. <laughs> yeah, I would. The I would second think. part of your article gets into the, the international seminar and its relationship to then 
um, what, what became the World Economic Forum. And sort of the idea of like historically the training of young global leaders was something that was initiated back in the uh, 60s. But the prince so, also had his own international business leaders, ILBF foundation, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. An international foundation that precedes Klaus Schwab's young leaders development program in the 90s and early 2000s. I'm pretty sure Prince Charles is what goes back further. Yeah, well, that, that is that is interesting but these uh organizations have been just like from 1945 onwards they were just creating loads of organizations and were then creating loads of organizations which were trying to create loads of and it just it's just every sort of dynamic is tested which one works best is one that's going to survive later on what do you see as like the ideological differences between like what was taught for the, the young leaders of the international seminar sort of juxtaposed to the what economic forum or what manifested later in regards to Schwab's initiative uh, which, yeah, I think they're basically yeah I think they're basically the same thing I think I think I think it's one single line I I would also assume that there's a piece in the middle that I haven't quite found yet um, because let, let me explain. Um, it, it starts off in 1950, 1951. Kissinger, Yandel Elliott, uh, other people. Uh, 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 what, what's his name? Um, oh, uh, begins with C. I can't remember. Anyway, they, they all they all sit around. They say, "Okay, we're going to create this international seminar. Um, they we're going to uh, pilot it. It goes really well." Um, and they start recruiting people from around the world. I found these wonderful adverts from the Lahore Military Gazette in nineteen fifty nine. Advertising for the international seminar, and they're saying you can come to the international seminar, and we'll pay everything for you. We'll give you all of this. Uh, the, the stay will be free. We'll fly you in and out. So we only want the best, um, and only fifty are going to come per year. So it's got to be the tip top, the best. And they, they, this became uh, really refined. And by 1950, they, I think they, 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 uh, they pushed it on a little bit further they made it a bit bigger made it a bit grander and they just started pumping out real leaders but by this time they realized they didn't need the structure of the international seminar itself uh funded by the cia by the time it came to 1966 and 1967 it's a real interesting thing that i wanted to include in this article but it's probably going to be an article in itself and i don't mind speaking about it now because um it's a very complicated thing uh but uh, the uh, Someone who came to Harvard after it had been exposed about the CIA funding, an international seminar had been wound down. Um, someone who came to uh, Harvard was um, Benazir Bhutto. Uh, whose father was Zulfika Ali Bhutto and would be soon uh, the president of um, of Pakistan, I think the fourth uh, or prime minister of Pakistan. I can't remember if he's president or prime minister. Do forgive me. Um, <laughs> uh, but he would be the leader of the Pakistan. So, of course, Benazir Bhutto would also be leader twice of Pakistan and would be accused of selling, uh, uh, giving nuclear weapons technologies over to North Korea and Iran during her time. She would would go be given put into Harvard just in about I think it was 1970 1971 she went to Harvard
happened. So it was after the course, the, the international seminar had been wound down. And who was the person who her father put in charge of mentoring her? None other than John Kenneth Galbraith, who oh, was, of course, the mentor. Yes. So the, the mentor of Cla one of the main mentors of Klaus Schwab. And he would put his son in charge of Benazir Bhutto while she was there. And she went there early. She was 16 when she arrived there. Uh, and she did all of the things John Kenneth Galbraith did. So all of the, the Vietnam uh, 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 protests against Vietnam, she was involved in, in that directly alongside him as well. Um, but like later on, you can see that Schwab, his mentor, yeah, the, the John Kenneth Galbraith, uh, mentor Schwab. Schwab goes on to straight away, 1967, goes straight on to work for Schultze, uh, Escher Weiss, and will give, give uh, uh, nuclear technologies over to the South African apart apartheid regime uh, illegally. Uh, and Benazir Bhutto does the same later after being mentored by John Kenneth Galbraith. And well, at least his son uh, passed on because Zofika Ali Bhutto and uh, John Kenneth Galbraith had originally met when um, uh, 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 Kennedy, Mrs. Kennedy, uh, <laughs> oh no, I've forgotten her name. Uh, Mrs. Kennedy came to India while he was a diplomat. Um, JFK made uh, John Kenneth Galbraith the diplomat for India. Um, and when his wife visited, um, he 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 met with them, and he, they met at that time. Um, Zofika Ali Bhutto met John Kenneth Galbraith and uh, Kennedy. So, yeah, it's a really it's sort of like um really interesting. Later they, link. later they assassinated her. Yes, and later they assassinated. They tried a couple of times, and after she was assassinated, her um the the person who she um uh, who had been accused of leaking the nuclear uh, technology to Iran and uh, North Korea um uh, said it was all her uh, and she had ordered him to do it and ordered him to keep it secret. So that is something that has to be taken into account. But still, it's extremely interesting that John Kenneth Galbraith was put in charge of mentoring her, or at least assigning his own son to be the mentor of her when Klaus Schwab did the same sort of thing. I mean, this Harvard. Yeah, uh, Harvard was that. John Kenneth Galbraith is one of the most interesting characters in all of history. I think he's a super spy. Um, he's six foot eight tall. It's yeah, like if, if you want someone who's who's not who's gonna like not stand out in the crowd, you don't choose John Kenneth Galbraith, and that's why they chose him. No one would ever suspect him, would they? And 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 I really every sort of big thing that he does, everything that he does, he goes to do something small, and he does the biggest thing. He does, you know, he. Like I, I said in um, the second article, he went to um, he not only taught JFK um, and Joseph Kennedy in in Harvard. Um, he went on to soon after to um, to uh, after the war to be the first people to uh, interrogate Albert Speer, who Speer who was the German War and Armaments Minister in World War Two, which is like the biggest person after the war to talk to. You can talk to him. We want to interrogate this guy. Who are we going to get? 
how about this economist who writes about farms in in so-and-so you know it's just insane john kenneth galbraith's reach is amazing and i think you follow people like klaus schwab and this is a key a key thing to note for other journalists or other uh, aspiring independent journalists you look at someone like klaus schwab you look at their mentors you just follow all of the routes and you'll find loads you'll find out about how this whole system works how the people the handlers work because uh, hey, look at this picture of- here i mean my goodness I know that's insane. The 93 Ukraine World Economic Forum meeting. I mean, yes, on the way to Ukraine, on the way to Ukraine. So I don't think it was held in Davos. And I think that's the year where Putin uh, is um, recruited alongside two other uh, Russians under the something like the Russian Soviet, uh, not Soviet, the Russian Patriot program or something, which was uh, uh, the Russian version of the young global leaders or the global leaders for tomorrow as it was back then uh this is the first year the global leaders for tomorrow would run um, i had so i guess i look like i had a question here because i'm looking at my notes i have it highlighted so when the, i'm gonna read this and then ask the question when the world economic forum began the global leaders for tomorrow initiative in the early 90s this is your writing klaus schwab's organization implemented a program of recruitment and training for global leaders which was almost indistinguishable from kissinger's cia funded international seminar schwab which was, went on at harvard at the time they were doing mk ultra saying that's actually yeah that's exactly right and was the, yes. kaczynski there too Jeez, small no, world it's, uh, <laughs> what was the uh the harmonic theory he came up with bounded the harmonics. bounded harmonics schwab was tre- so back uh to your words here schwab was treading in the footsteps of the mentor henry kissinger and it was the dan david foundation while kissinger was seated on their board which eventually awarded schwab which is, you know, this is that circularity here. With the initial funding required to create the current iteration of the program, the Forum for Young Global Leaders. Mm-hmm. And so I was sort of thought, I guess the question, I don't know if it makes any sense now, is sort of like, so if you have Kissinger as being, I think, it was a million dollars, he gave him some, it, was this, it wasn't a massive yeah, fund, yeah. but it was something to yeah, get yeah, started. No. And he was the only one, I think, because he uh, Schwab went out and tried to get funding from multiple places, but Kissinger's the one that came back and gave him funding for this specific program. And I'm thinking mm-hmm. this is now in the cold. I think the reason why I asked the question about the ideological persuasions is like now we're in a post-Cold War era, or at least they claim to be. They're trying to seemingly set up another Cold War with the NATO hegemony that's going on and the belligerent actions of NATO countries. But what what like I wonder what the goals were now in this post-war post-Cold War era of recreating the same exact thing and sort of uh cultivating the sort of mindset say one of these young global leaders to then position them like new zealand or uh putin i think was 92 but they don't mention that one anymore um that was before the young global leaders i guess um that was the first installment in 92 and then it yeah i i i'm 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 well it was 92 i believe was when they give got they announced the program and then 93 okay. was when they first run it because this is something with with they they denounced their programs in like august and then they do them in january so it's basically roughly the same time that they they do them anyway but it keeps you like guessing on which year around um yeah. but the the this was a new era where they were creating the new uh, a new global world order and they gotta they've gotta right. they've gotta have these leaders they, they're testing out this theory listen you know this is what i say about the missing bit you know when kissinger's international seminar ended and the between then and where the young global uh the global leaders for tomorrow starts 1992-1993 because i think there is like a pilot 
version in 1992. Um, but I haven't looked into that. That was my understanding that supposedly Putin was part of that. I think either the 93 or 92, but there's no record. I think they met him. Yeah. I think they met him in in Ukraine because in 1993, when they're on that plane, they go into Ukraine. So because of the, the fall of the the communism and the Berlin wall and all of this, this is states popping up in Eastern Europe. And and so it's time to go to the place where the power is, um, or the power that that where oh, we can yes, have the most sense. effect. We can have the most, and that's so they go there. They look. They're on that plane. They look pretty happy. They're on their way to. Uh, they're on their <laughs> way that to back Ukraine. On screen there. I mean, yeah, they're on their way to. They swab. He's like he's forty been told, tons of carbon, so they can go to Ukraine. He's yeah. been told he's yeah. gonna have to leave the plane because he keeps farting all the time. <laughs> we all know. <laughs> but um, but right. The thing is, is that it doesn't even need to be that Kissinger. I mean, Kissinger funded through. Uh, he, he's on. Uh, he's on the board of the Dan David Foundation. So people could say, "Oh, well, it's the Dan David Foundation who funded the first year in global leaders." But it's so obvious that it's a nod. It's a nod to the power. This is f- for you to continue what I was doing. Uh, that you. That's well, right. I mean, it, it's, it may not be for us. It may not be for the people around and it may not be for the course itself. But it's a perfect opportunity for him to show a display of love for his uh, apprentice um, and to put his apprentice on the route to doing the job that he had started off. And and Schwab has to have someone to follow that down the line as well. There's got to be someone who has we can't we can't be living in in a world with no one like a power vacuum afterwards schwab isn't like that there's someone ready gotta be there gotta be obvious ready to, to, to go take the next step because i got noah if- harari oh god oh please no <laughs> oh that would be a dark world yeah it would be like you know the start of like oh and this is where star wars begins <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is where the real start this is episode minus seven or something uh, <laughs> but when kissinger's uh, international seminar started it was like the small 50 uh people would would go and it was like Learn. They were learning how to craft these guys. When the Global Leaders for Tomorrow program started, it was like two hundred, and they were more. They they were getting into it more. By the time it got around to two thousand and four, and the Dan David Foundation is giving Schwab this money, Schwab's going two thousand four. That's interesting. Ukraine and Russia, two thousand four. Yeah. Oh my God! Orange Revolution. Oh, you geez, see, that... uh, yeah, yeah, and and then it's industrial. If you look at how many, like, how many really big players now, I've been looking. Oh, I've been, oh, I've been looking. I've been looking. I've decided to do a new show as well. I'm doing like multiple shows. I've created a show called Newshound. I want to do some simple stuff, which is about looking through the evidence. So I don't want to. It's called Newshound, which is looking at articles from the past that you may miss from history. Um, that that I haven't been able. To to use in a story sometimes I'll, uh, that I, I have but they're really interesting and are multifaceted and lead to another conclusion but then there's this other one that I'm going to have to do which is basically I started looking at each of these young global leaders individually and I started in 2021 and started working my way backwards and, and me and my uh, me and I'm over in Cardiff at the moment so I'm going back to Chile soon to, to be with a family um, but uh, oh, uh, I, I'm staying at a house 
uh, with my friend Monkey, uh, my boy Monkey, and my man Monkey. I love him. <laughs> He's been my boy for 20 years. And uh, oh, we yeah. were going through these global leaders. We were going through these young global leaders, and we were looking for the intelligence assets. And oh my God, you don't have to go far. It's a, a little hop, skip, and a jump. It's like a, one in every three is provable intelligence asset. So it's, 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 it, they don't even care about covering up their tracks anymore. No. It's almost a revelation of the craft or some some shit like that. It, I mean, who knows? They, they 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 put a tiny little bit, like such a. It's it's terror. It's like you'll have all of this. Uh, they've been funded by all of these like national security foundation awards and stuff. Literally national security foundations and things like this. You know, really obvious links to the state intelligence apparatus. Uh, put them through all these courses. And then at the end, they've taken up art. So they started painting, and they were a painter and designer. Oh, like Elsa Al Bremer and George W. Bush. George Bush, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Al Paul Bremer's a painter now in Vermont. Wait, are you serious? I, yeah, yeah. It was in uh, Jeremy guy. Reese. It was in a 24-hour live stream. Oh, my God. A couple hours. You get a feeling they drop something in their drink, like the painter drug that makes them become a painter, so get some off there. They definitely won't tell anything. Little Frank now, Olson they. juice. No. <laughs> yeah. Trying to restore the decrepit nature of their soul by painting or some sort of like something like that. Yeah, I do want to give you this artifact. Um, this was taken from let me see if I can find it here. This was uh, where was it? Resource now, uh, Islam and Arab national. No, wow, where was it? Let me oh, I went too far down. That's why this is about limited warfare. I wanted to actually cite, nah, that's why. This is from a review of nuclear weapons and foreign policy by Henry A. Kissinger. This is uh, <laughs> Hank. Four, yeah, Hank or Heinz as yeah, K. Heinz. Griggs. Yes, yes, yes. Right. Yeah. Um, that was his. Yeah, that was what his name is. And so, you know, looking at this, I'll just read this here. If we were to escape from this embarrassment, so he's talking. Kissinger is talking about um, this nuclear uh, war or nuclear weapons um, article that he wrote. He's talking about sort of the issues in regards to warfare future warfare in the Cold War era, he's complaining or he's lamenting the fact that we need war. But we can't have nuclear war because, you know, that we have nuclear war, there's no more humans. And so we need to still support, this is my own way of describing it, the military-industrial complex. And we still need to make sure there's what he termed limited warfare. And so this is what he writes, and this is ridiculous. Now, I took this from the commentary magazine because I'm not buying the JSTOR, not yet. But uh, anyways, going back to it. So this is first the commentary by the writer of the article and then uh, some quotes from Kissinger himself. If we're to escape from this embarrassing and dangerous position, we must, while maintaining atomic parity with the Russians, regain the capacity and the will to fight the kind of war fought in Korea. Huh. So we want to go back to that Korean warfare style. Okay. Although without the ambiguities that characterize that conflict, both Osgood and Kissinger agree that we are going to have to be able and willing to fight limited wars. I'll highlight that one there. That is, wars which are fought for concrete, well-defined objectives, which do not involve the employment <laughs> of what Secretary Quarles calls quote, our quote-unquote best weapons, and which are not intended to lead the unconditional surrender of our opponent. The last point is very important for Kissinger, for, as Kissinger writes, quote, limited war is not a cheaper substitute for a massive retaliation. An attempt to reduce the enemy to impotence would remove the psychological balance, which makes it profitable for both sides to keep the war limited, end quote. 
The ability to fight limited wars, what, wars, in short, is not desirable as a means of satisfying American craving for victory over communism. It meant rather to serve as another deterrent to Soviet aggression, at least that's how they sell it. Uh, it may not always work. That is, it may, it may not always prevent the initiation or even the, the successful co consummation of aggressive Soviet action, but it can be expected to increase the risks which the Soviets must calculate before they resort to even minor aggression. And if it does nothing else, it will demonstrate that we no longer intend to rely solely on words to prevent bushfire wars, uh, brushfire wars, or attacks upon the so-called, quote-unquote, gray areas. So uh, just noting that you had, in the beginning of your, or the first half of your article, you noticed this, I noticed at least in your article, the tension, how they kept using this rationalization, this, this Hegelian dialectic, if you will, between um, uh, this need for, and just talking about you know, the Gildersleeve or Thompson or Roosevelt, you know, the anti-Zionist movement, but at the same time, they're supporting, you know, Arab nationalism, while at the same time, our State Department supporting Zionism. <laughs> and so it's like, well, you know, and you mentioned in your, I couldn't help but share that with you, because you mentioned many times in your article, this idea they almost want war, but they don't want it, but they want it. Yeah. Like, they're, like on the precipice all the time of having, keeping us in that fight and flight state endlessly or keeping it in a state of limited war where there's like what's going on with russia and the ukraine right now today yeah well i was watching something today that when you were talking there i couldn't stop yeah it, it, my mind kept going sure, back yeah. to this um uh a, a piece that i saw on youtube i know it was probably channel four or something and they were they were trying to act like uh, the ukrainians were making advances lightning quick advances they said um, but what what happened was the uh you've got this like line this front line which is sort of really defined both of them know where it is and every now and again the russians leave a certain part and ukrainians come in and they'll show you this clip like i watched today about this lightning fast advance of ukrainians ukrainians have taken this area after that had only been uh that had been taken by russia at the start of the war and was really helping towards the donbass and then within three minutes into the actual uh, uh real the piece the 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 piece of journalism uh that, that i was watching they they said that basically uh oh yeah the, also the russians left the area they left it they, it was a, they, it was the same it was a billy, billy donovan style but this time they actually did the, the retreat on purpose sort of battle and, of and they River go style. backwards and forwards and it looks yeah. like a war i mean it's got yes, to the point where it. now yeah. now they've got to have this sort of like puppetry of like going backwards and forwards and showing you things like like the, with a lot of the climate change debate where they'll show you something like look at this research showing the two ten two degree temperature rise in your ass or whatever and then like uh, two weeks later they put a little retreat traction that's in a tiny little story that actually your ass isn't going to change temperature at all and you're, you're, <laughs> you're going to be just you don't read the retraction because there's some new bigger fear news today because you can't afford toilet paper and you have to wipe with the newspaper so you miss it what can you oh, do yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no uh, no but but this 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 always being on the point of perpetual war like yes. always on the brink this feeling that we're always on there the, as soon as they worked out the sweet spot we've been there ever since and they worked out that sweet spot probably i'd say about 1963 1964 they start to work out well we just need to always always the threat always has to be far away and usually fought against people who are going to fight anyway and look like with, with proxy agents or proxy nationalist forces that we set up just like we did in, uh, in yeah, cambodia for vietnam mm -hmm. oh yeah, Cambodia, yeah. Uh, operation cyclone brzezinski uh, operation 
Yeah, uh, yeah, sure. Phoenix is. Oh my god, Brzezinski's extremely interesting. Brzezinski Operation Cyclone. Up, uh, Let's yeah, play Operation that Operation Cyclone. Yeah. Name the Operation. Operation <laughs> Goldeneye. <laughs> <laughs> Ivar Bryce. Operation Goldeneye. Do you know where Goldeneye comes from? Yeah, um, was, oh uh, yeah, yeah. It was uh, uh, Ivar Bryce you know. and uh, Ian Fleming in World War II, and there was also uh, there was Monte Cassino too. And but, and uh, do you know what he did with the name afterwards? Yeah, he made Goldeneye uh, his uh, home residence, like in Bahamas oh. or Bermuda. Yeah, or look, look like at that. this guy. Look at this guy. You oh, know come on, you got to uh, he's, he's the brain. <laughs> and, rich, okay, rich okay. Here. One more, one more. Who was the bad guy? Who played the bad guy? Both name and actor, of character and actor in Goldeneye. Uh, oh, I'm not going to do that to you. I already got too many answers right. Yeah, uh, well, it's Sean Bean. <laughs> Sean Bean played Sean Bean. Alex Trevelyan. Uh, I grew up the Alex part. Double six or something. I Sean, yeah, Bean. Sean Bean's best work is in Ronan. Yeah. What oh, colors wow. the boathouse at Hereford? <laughs> <laughs> oh, one ring to bind them all. Anyway, go on. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So here's Can't the Golden Eye Estate. This is the Golden Eye Estate. Uh, Look and then you. you got Operation Golden Eye, and you can see Bryson Fleming, SOE. Yeah, there's. Uh, you really got it. The one I, that always caught my eye was. Oh, actually, Golden Eye was Smith we, Cummings' Golden Monocle. So that's where the uh, name comes from. The monocle that C had, you know, in, in, in <laughs> James Bond, it's M, but Smith Cumming, he used to sign everything C. And he was uh, this guy who ran MI6 back then. So he had a gold monocle. They called him Golden Eye. Then it turned into an operation. Then it turned into a book. And then it turned into a Bond movie in the nineties. Don't ask you a question. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Mike Trout. Yeah, amazing. I feel. I feel. I feel small now. I feel small. That was you not grand the intention. I was just no, trying. I, know, I, know. I was just trying I, to play in the field. In with actual you. fact, it's wonderful and beautiful because I'm so deep in Ivor Bryce right now and those guys, and so I'm so deep inside them. You would not believe. Uh, coming out the other side, and and there's so much more. Man, these guys. They were. They were just. Well, that's they're, all. They're manipulating to Smith all the way through. <laughs> oh, yeah. Go. There you go. Hey, Johnny, it's, it's past 5 a.m. for you. Where can people read your articles and support you and see more stuff that makes their mind go boom? Yeah, that's, that's nice. I um, Well, Unlimited Hangout is where you'll find my Schwab series and a load of other articles. Um, you can find me at johnnyvedmore.com as like my sort of central hub for all the different links. Um, I'm playing with fungimonkey.com. So fungi is in like mushroom uh, monkey. So like stoned ape sort of. Yeah, stoned ape Terrence McKenna style. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. that's kind of like, I feel that's there. what I am. I feel like what I am. I had, to, <laughs> I, had to, I had to I had to get through a lot of problems in life and I used that to get through a lot of problems and come out the other side. We like, share that with you. I can, we yeah, can relate. Yeah, yeah. We can relate. So, Absolutely. so, so fungimonkey.com has got loads of stuff. It's got police auditing on as well and other stuff that I do. And like, I, I'm just trying out everything and just having fun and enjoying doing a lot of this research. It's, it's, it's really good. It's really good times. Uh, they, a lot of my, a lot of my, 
like focus is wherever I want it to be. Uh, I look at whatever interests me and I find I'm going back to the same period nearly all of the time. And it's the fifties and the sixties at the moment that I'm stuck within, in both sides of, um, in, in all sides of the world, uh, everywhere in the world, you know, I, I keep, I was going to say just in Britain and America, but it's just not so um, I'm or, or, like, there's so much happening or so much happened all over the world that has been unwritten, uh, has been documented slightly here and documented slightly there. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to bring parts of that together. And I want to write more series. And I want to, uh, that, that, that kind of uncover all of these things and link them all and make it, make, make, you know, make it easy for people to understand the, the, from start to finish, the majority, the bulk of what's been going on in a way that's digestible. And I do need help for that. So anybody who can support my work, you can find stuff on, on the site. Um, because I'm, I'm, surfing a karmic wave and have been for years now <laughs> that's got to end at some point i'm going to fall over the edge be bankrupt working back in hotels writing behind the desk i can't do that anymore i gotta keep i gotta focus on on doing a lot of this work so yeah any help man i'd be happy to to, to get you're like the investigative journalist version of austin powers you're stuck back in the 50s and 60s and we're gonna help you get your <laughs> mojo back man Oh, we're yeah, gonna, yeah, once you vote on oh, all those buddy. articles we'll have to do a documentary for you like we're at the we're yeah there's a lot of different potential I, I, I mean your work is absolutely astounding i mean obviously whitney webb as well but and when do whitney's books come out let's yeah like we get the books when's the goods it's soon, it's soon, i think it's a couple of weeks i think it's a couple of weeks for oh, volume fantastic. one and then it's and then no. volume volume two yeah yeah and oh, volume okay. uh, so, so, uh, a week and a half volume two comes out a couple of months later they wanted her to release it like next year or two years down the line or something but she was like no you know, pe people want to know the rise of it and they're going to want to know the epstein stuff it's just mind-blowing i i i have to uh, Man, I found myself having to whisper, whisper to people um, when I said, like, oh, so one of the things that's in the book. Yeah. I can't say it out loud. So scary. The, yeah. these, it's not just about sex blackmail. The Epstein operation was about, oh, so much more than that. Um, and you, you she, technology, eugenics, genetics. Much, Oh my God! I, I just uh, amazing. Some of the things that have happened um, over the past year or two, as well, that people don't realize link in with all of this. She really sets it out, and what she sets it out sourced in every uh, um, chapter is like two hundred and fifty sources attached. You know, it's just crazy the amount of accuracy she's made sure, and it's like she. This is no like loads of words to 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 meet it out. This is every single sentence has a point and has bits of information that are really relevant and it is honestly you'll have to read it over and over again it is just i'm, I'm really excited about it so like i i've read parts of it but i haven't had the thing of like sitting down and reading all of it um, you've because, done a good job of making us excited for it too i'm looking oh, to buy yeah, some highlighters is... and some tabs to mark those you, pages up you you're gonna run out of highlighters it's gonna know brilliant <laughs> brilliant it's really exciting stuff and there's so much to it and there's so many uh, bits that when you were talking earlier and I, I just before I came on, I was listening yeah, to what you were saying. There was loads of stuff there. 
loads of stuff that I was just like, oh, that's there. I'm also working on the Ivan Price stuff and the fit and the, the the Ian Fleming stuff. I'm really like, there's some meaty stuff coming and you'll like it. I, I'm pretty positive. Well, she's the paragon of, I mean, I agree with RFK Jr. when she said that, or he said that um, she's uh, the greatest uh, current investigative journalist in the world. And so I have to, yeah. I sometimes share that. I share in that uh, uh, sort of recognition, but obviously um, the work you're doing, Johnny, I mean, this, this article is absolutely incredible. Your last one speaks for itself as well, but if you, I mean, I showed it on screen how much i had marked up and highlighted it's a good thing i did the digital highlighting because like i have a tendency to over highlight because i was like i don't this is all so damn important so you guys are just doing such incredible work and we really appreciate it personally i'm surfing on the back of giants there's loads of people out there who have got information out and and it's scattered all over the place you know this is one of the things i'm really doing is trying to bring all of that information into the the one area so that people can see it all the same thing whitney's doing is trying to trying to stop that scatter of information trying to bring it together and make it coherent so people can understand this ain't no conspiracy you know these are all these different things they're no conspiracies uh well they are conspiracies but they're no theories but it's just how things work yeah yeah well of course i mean nearly every crime on earth is uh conspiring to do something because that's what people do and have done since the dawn of time they conspire with each other for profit conspire with breath respiration right so and then last thing is if you're supposed to pass the duchy to the right hand side or left hand side which one of us gets it first me or tony uh tony tony i'm gonna give it to tony yeah yeah Yeah, i'm down all right yeah he's here he's like wait wait well i was just gonna say johnny if if these fingers are in a lot of pies that's something we have to change isn't it oh Oh, my god oh my god the finger man he's a finger man (laughs) he's our i mean he gotta be he's gotta be from another planet and and by the way this is this is a blunt not a spliff there you yep, go. Yep, 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 blonde, yep, yep. Yeah, he's got that. It's the brown paper, bro. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's blue. If I get all the nomenclature right, it tips my hand. So I'm, I played it. Mm. Uh-huh. All right, good, good. Johnny. Nice thank cover. you for staying up with us tonight. We look forward hey. to reading your next article, whatever it might be. And we're also looking forward to you being in Chile uh, with yes. Whitney. And maybe we'll get you guys on an interview together, but separately because somebody's got to watch the baby, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we we could we could always get a babysitter, but but all right, you, well, let us, if you yeah. want to speak to anybody uh, anytime soon, you're gonna to want to speak to Whitney, and she's gonna have a lot to say. So you know, I I, I think that's who you're gonna to want to speak to. Well, we're gonna get, we're gonna do gonna our best to invite her and get her booked, and then we'll see what her schedule is and availability, and whether or yeah, not she wants to come out and play. But I we always enjoy will. her work as well. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll Thank catch you, up Johnny. with you soon. Awesome, safe travels, bro. Yeah, rocking. Thanks, guys. I love you. Yeah. Thanks, uh, take care. Appreciate Big hug to you, man. man. Transatlantic hug. <laughs> <laughs> Anglo American right. style. Yeah, Anglo American style. There we go. All right. So, LD, who who do those fat fingers belong to? Was that KC Three's hands? Oh, yes, you, you've, you got like, you're, you're <laughs> you've got that. You've got that right now. Yeah. Yeah, I saw the pinky ring, and I was like, "Is King that Frank Charles. Sinatra?" He Frank Sinatra had a pinky ring. No, I thought it was odd job. I'm joking. Odd job. <laughs> oh my goodness! Random task. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. We're silly. We didn't even get to the serious stuff yet tonight, but now we're silly. It's like after right. twelve, you know. So let's play a story about. Uh, let's let's change change the beat. We're gonna slow it down a little bit. Hmm slow songs for you lovers out there let's uh let's get the news about the queen passing away wasn't totally surprising she was there for a long time 
longest reigning monarch in uh, history, as far as we know. Matriarch uh, of the world, Rich. Well, she's not the grandmother of Europe, but Queen Victoria already That's had that. Big, yeah, yeah. yeah. She so gave birth to like every royal. QE2 world. had a big boat named after her, the QE2. Um, so anyway, the Queen passed away. We're going to see that only because what happens after the Queen passes away means King Charles, KC3, in the house. So uh, let's get some news on. Okay, so we have options. Um, her Royal Majesty's kicking her what, heels. What would you like to? So you, I took from your playlist all of the coverage when she died. I don't know if we want to start there or if we want to just move to. Now we need a nice summary of what. Okay. Uh, we don't need BBC's, you know, loquacious. Uh, version of it. We just want to put something on the record so we can mark it out. It's like when you tap into a piton. I have so much on Queen Elizabeth or Prince Charles. Prince Charles reacts. Charles, Charles. Mummy. Hmm. Mummy. When he calls her mummy. Yeah, I the mom. coronation. The queen, but to me, mummy. The queen's sense of humor with the padding from there. That was weird. When I was growing up, my, my grandmother would speak fondly she had magazines of the queen and you know called I, you know queen mom. i don't i don't have anything ill to say about the queen because the ill stuff that she was up to she inherited that's true right because sure. uh you know king edward i think he's the one who had to abdicate because he married the american wallace simpson and i think they were nazis as well that might have been an issue it wasn't just that he married an american it's that they were nazis and then uh queen elizabeth's dad becomes king and then he dies when she's like 16 she becomes queen and then she's just owned for the rest of her life by that whole crown system that they rent over there from the templars so yeah i wanted to so the main one i have is that took from your playlist which is just it's a, the announcement of the death by the bbc it's a minute 23 we could if that's not okay so uh, now that i'm thinking about it here's how it here's how it came to my knowledge right uh we were doing like a live stream and I was in the chat and I saw the news. So then I went out to verify it because everyone's like, but Queen's dead, Queen's dead. So I went to verify it and I got a New York Post article. It said Twitter 48 minutes ago did a false tweet and somebody tweeted that the Queen was dead and everyone picked up on it and it was published everywhere and the names were changed on Wikipedia and then they retracted it. And then I went to like look to see, is this real? So Balmoral Castle, official account of the royal family, had tweeted that she passed away, but then they deleted that tweet. Hmm. So for like an hour or so, when the news was breaking, it was kind of wishy-washy. And I figured, well, cat's out of the bag. If she wasn't dead, she's probably not going to see tomorrow anyway. And then sure enough, they announced that she had passed away. And uh, she had just put the new prime minister you know, in office the day before. So she was working right up to the end. And uh, no more marmalade sandwiches with Paddington for lunch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little, yeah, but, marmalade sandwiches, maybe a little clotted cream. You know. Yeah, she did get to live the life there. So uh, let's see. What's the first report we got in that playlist of the, like the early reports? So were. from your playlist. Because um, we know time, she did the go Queen's, away. Uh, Queen's sense of humor. Charles becomes King. Prince Charles reacts. And then BBC announces. So this would be the first one. BBC announces the death of Queen Elizabeth is the first one. Then it moves into Prince Charles reacts, and then Charles becomes king. That's that was the flow I had from your playlist. Essentially, all right, let's go to the BBC. It'll be short and sweet. I can quickly look up a more comprehensive one if you want. We don't need more comprehensive. Like we get, she passed away. So that's uh, yeah. Hang on. 
have to drop down under the uh, technology, economics, and politics section. And then just play the prince's message afterwards. We'll get those two stories in quick. We are expecting the news from Balmoral that she's having uh, treatment or that indeed they are unable to help Her Majesty anymore. A few moments ago, Buckingham Palace announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. The palace has just issued uh, this statement. It says the Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. The King and the Queen Consort will remain at Balmoral this evening and will return to London tomorrow. Within the past few minutes, Buckingham Palace has announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. To recap on the statement, the Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. The King, that is Charles, uh, and the Queen Consort will remain at Balmoral this evening and will return to London tomorrow. Prince Charles has spent most of his life waiting. But now, says former royal correspondent Charles Ray, the longest serving heir to the throne in British history has a new and very immediate role. It's very much, you know, the, the Queen is dead, God save the King. Simple as that. It's, it's almost a seamless transition and then there will be, then there will be a, 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 he will have sit on the throne and get the, get the crown at a, at a later date. So uh, it will be seamless in that, in that sense. I mean, from the moment that the Queen passes away, Charles is King. It's, it's that simple. Born in 1948, Charles became heir apparent at the age of three, when the Queen acceded to the throne on the death of her father, George VI. Following an unhappy time at school in a remote area of the Scottish Highlands, he studied at the University of Cambridge. He was made Prince of Wales by the Queen at the age of 20. I, Charles, Prince of Wales, do become your liege man of life and limb. Charles then entered the military before leaving to concentrate on royal duties in 1976. His relationship with his new subjects has been at times turbulent. Following years of speculation about his marriage plans, Charles married 20-year-old Lady Diana Spencer in 1981 with a dazzling wedding ceremony at St. Paul's Cathedral. Two sons and new heirs, William and Harry, later, the marriage ended in 1992. The decision was apparently amicable at first, but emerged as acrimonious by the time of their eventual divorce in 1996. That with regret, the Prince and Princess of Wales have decided to separate. The union was said to have been a disaster from the start. The tragedy was compounded by Diana's death in a car crash in Paris a year later. Charles was left looking an unlikely sovereign, and royal watchers openly questioned whether he would ever be crowned. Author Penny Jr. maintains he is a popular figure. There are always going to be people who don't like him because he has been quite a controversial figure. He, when the Queen came to the throne, I don't think anybody disliked her because nobody really knew her. Charles has been around 
for over 70 years and he has he has been active in those years he's got involved in in all sorts of quasi political areas um, and expressed his views but anybody that has come across Charles I would say or who knows him will will love him Charles's long-term relationship with Camilla Parker Bowles became more public after Diana's death the couple were married quietly in 2005 after gradually appearing in public together and becoming part of the royal circle. Charles's approval rating also gradually improved, burnished by the popularity of his two sons, who also married. He began undertaking more official senior royal duties after Queen Elizabeth scaled back her workload due to ill health. Professor of the History of Monarchy, Anna Whitelock, says the transition from heir to king will not be radical. He's not going to reflect or represent a fresh face for the monarchy. It's going to be another, you know, aged, elderly monarch ascending to the throne, even though, of course, he's been Prince of Wales for so many years. Um, I think, you know, that he does have a potential relevance around the environment, but I don't think he's going to end up feeling, you know, that he's particularly popular and certainly not, you know, on the level of um, his mother, the Queen. Very interesting. I was going to say, let's play the ABC clip now and see how they they sort of view um, the coronation of King Charles III and how uh, the whole pomp and circumstance surrounding the coronation as he takes the throne. I posted that in the production chat as well. All right. <clears throat> One it's a... Uh, yeah. Yep, you got ABC7. Uh, obviously, polar, a polarizing figure. I love how they euphemize it on the... Uh, the British side, uh, I, you know, Vedmore made a very good point. Oh, good. Uh, yeah. No, welcome back. Yeah, yeah. So Vedmore made a very important point that uh, historically the, the, they stay out of politics. Well, that's not necessarily true, but they aren't uh, forward facing with politics. So whatever uh, aspirations, uh, what he was doing in the background um, in regards to his affiliations, the WF, the, the WFF and uh, the uh, Rio Summit and the Global Initiative in regards to Agenda 21, you know, that's still going to be ongoing, but he no longer is going to be sort of a figurehead for it. You know, I think Joshua early on before we even got started mentioned that he was the first one who mentioned the the, the global reset uh, or the, excuse me, the great reset um, in regards to the response to COVID-19 uh, by nation states across the world. So no longer will we get that sort of Charles III. We're going to get a very different, maybe more muted or in the background, more heavily propagandized and PR controlled Charles III. So, yeah, this, oh, there it uh, is. Tweet from uh, June third, twenty twenty. Great reset. Oh, yeah, go ahead and read that. Actually, yeah, this is from the at Clarence House, the Prince of Wales and Duchess of Cornwall. The Great Reset Initiative is designed to ensure businesses and communities build back better by putting sustainable business practices at the heart of their operations as they begin to as they begin to recover from the coronavirus pandemic, and they tagged the World Economic Forum. And that was June third, twenty twenty. So we're not well, we're in three months into the pandemic, and they're already and you know that he's the first one who sort of gives the the nod to this this new movement in regards to you know what we talked about with Catherine Austin Fitz and so many others have pointed out. Uh, it's really a, a financial takeover, um, making sure that you know the sovereignty of nation states is compromised due to economic downturn. Or, 
in regards to the Rockefeller Initiative, or at least the, the, the sort of the idea that they talked about in what the 2011 document with lockstep and lockdowns and, you know, global resistance and these sorts of ideas. So they actually implemented these lockdowns. They were able to uh, have them persist worldwide, manifest worldwide and have them persist off and on for over 2020 into 2021. And that created the greatest sort of wealth heist potentially in uh, human modern human history, most certainly modern human history, but arguably historically as well in regards to, uh, absolutely decimating the middle class and massive transfers of wealth to the most powerful oligarchs in the world, which we sort of covered slightly a little bit with um, Eric next week or last week. So let's go ahead and play this ABC seven clip. I'm curious what they, how they frame uh, now King Charles, the third KC three KC three. The Prince of Wales is King after the longest Royal apprenticeship in history. He'll be the best prepared monarch we've ever had, having served so long as sort of tutelage under his mother. Even to him, she was your majesty in public. But watch her face on her 92nd birthday. Your majesty, mummy. In 1952, when Charles was just three, his mother became queen. His destiny was laid out before him. It was a difficult childhood for Charles. As a young queen, his mother put duty and service above all else. One of the things he talks about is this memory of his mother coming to kiss him goodnight on the nursery floor, wearing the imperial state crown. His mother broke with tradition, as we saw dramatized on the crown. Prince Charles was the first heir to the throne to be sent to school as opposed to being instructed by private tutors. He was sent away to the same school I gather that Prince Philip also attended, and he didn't have the easiest time of it at first. In his 30s, the prince told Barbara Walters he struggled with certain subjects. I think it's not too bad for people to know that the Prince of Wales can also fail in school and they give him a failing grade. Oh, yes. I failed my maths exam three times. I finally got it on the fourth attempt. Prince of Wales became his title in 1969. But at the time, many knew him as a playboy prince. They tried to kind of create him as kind of a James Bond figure. He was referred to as Action Man, I think, in the 60s, as he like flew planes or did helicopters or rode in jeeps or whatever he was doing. In his early adulthood, he became a helicopter pilot, joined the Naval Air Squadron, and took command of a naval mine hunter. And there were a long line of lovely young ladies who appeared to be potential spouses for him who did not make the final cut. At 31, he proposed to his uncle's granddaughter, Amanda Natchbull. She turned him down. He fell in love with Camilla Shan, but she married someone else while he was in the Navy. Well, 30 seconds, I think. Finally, Lady Diana Spencer, the younger sister of a girl he had dated. All of a sudden, this teacher, who was so young and so fresh, had that beautiful smile and an ingratiating manner. Suddenly, we discovered that she was the apple of his eye, and before we knew it, they got engaged. I remember thinking what a very jolly and amusing and, and attractive 16-year-old she was, and I mean, great fun, mm. and bouncy and full of life and everything. And um, um, I don't know what you thought of me. But... Pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose in love. Of course. <laughs> Whatever in love means. Everybody remembered that interview 
where they were asked if they were in love, and he said yes, whatever love is. And that tells you, I think, a little bit about maybe his upbringing, whatever love is from a grown man who's just gotten engaged. It's not the note you want to go out and pick your informal china pattern with. It's emerged that the Prince of Wales the night before his wedding really wasn't at all sure whether he was in love with Diana and was actually almost convinced that he wasn't. On that day in July 1981, 750 million people all over the world tuned in. So long as you both shall live. I will. It looked as though Cinderella had gotten her prince. How are you enjoying married life? I remember going to Australia with them. We were away for six weeks. And, I mean, that was the love tour. I mean, they were over each other like, you know, a rash. I mean, they used to look at each other like they wanted to rush off and uh, rip the clothes off each other. They were that passionate. I mean, it was really, and very tactile, you know, touching. A year later, an heir and then a second son. They're in very good form indeed. They bring us both an immense amount of happiness. In this, their first interview, 1985 in Kensington Palace, music by William and Harry, and the royal couple still acting like newlyweds. I suspect most husbands and wives find that uh, they often have arguments. But we don't. No, no, no. But occasionally we do, because, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I, 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 I go on longer sometimes. Yes, but I'm faster. <laughs> there we are. The thing that the British public will always be grateful for is the way she raised her sons and the love and the affection and the touching and the caring that she imbued them with. They're never going to say whatever love is. They know what love is. But as we all know, the fairy tale faded and within five years it was clear the marriage had crumbled. Later dueling interviews revealing that Camilla was still in the picture. Their foreign trips were now portraits of an unhappy relationship she was in touch with her feelings. If she was mad at her spouse, there were gonna be indications of that in the photographs. And there were. The funeral procession is on the south side of the park. With Diana's sudden and tragic death, just a year after their divorce, Charles was a single parent of two shattered boys. They are coping extraordinarily well, but obviously the uh, Diana's loss and death has been uh, uh, an enormous uh, loss as far as they're concerned. As the years passed, Charles slowly introducing the other woman, Camilla, to the public. Yes, it might have been an affair that rocked the monarchy, but it's endured and resulted in an incredibly happy marriage. Through it all, Charles did hundreds of royal engagements every year which increased the queen in her 90s. By 2016, attending 530 engagements at home and abroad in just one year. Duchess Kate on dating Prince William and meeting her future father-in-law. I was quite nervous about meeting uh, William's father, but, um, but no, he's very, very welcoming and you know, very friendly. So yeah, I couldn't have, it couldn't have gone easier really for me. We've got a new member of our weather team tonight. Watch this visit to the BBC studios in Scotland, noting some weather over the Queen's favourite home, Balmoral. The potential for a few flurries over Balmoral. Who the hell wrote this script? Uh, as the afternoon goes on. As Charles now prepares to ascend the throne, what does he do with it? Will it be more striking to us when it's held by 
a man that we've seen grow up as opposed to Queen Elizabeth? What are the qualities that the British monarchy represents? That's the question that Charles is going to now have to answer. This man is an absolute gem and we should put our hands together in this country we've got him because he is, to my mind, you know, he is the next king, no doubt about it. And people are saying, oh yeah, but he won't make a great king. Wait and see. This grandfather who has spent seven decades waiting in the wings finally will wear the crown. Let's go ahead and play. I'll come back real quick. I was going to say, I almost want to juxtapose that to the Greg Reese video or the really graceful video because they said something here. What are the qualities he represents? And obviously that was quite whitewashed. Um, I don't know if we want to jump into that so quickly, but just seeing um, uh, the propaganda behind that specific piece and almost want to juxtapose that to now the counter argument in regards to some of his connections. Why don't we go real quick to the Greg Reese video? The Federal Um, Reserve? Occult Mysteries of the Federal Reserve? Not that one. This one's under the Queen Elizabeth II, Prince Charles. It's under technology, economics, and politics. I have a little breakdown, and it's called... Uh, oh, I didn't see the, the drop-down yeah, menu. If I don't The dark, it, ugly past of the up. climate crisis. Yeah, my bad. Sorry about that. Here, I can put it in the channel. Here. I got it. Um, you got it. Yeah, you got it. Let's, let's do that, and we'll see how much that covers, and we might then go into really graceful, uh, get her take on it as well. Everyone says that today, the royal family is nothing more than a ceremonial figure. Even though they choose the government, have final approval over all legislation, and own half the country. And so while we remember Queen Elizabeth, let us not forget how this incestuous family has used their own children to gain power. Parliamentary lawfare over trading rights between England and Scotland led to the first iteration of the United Kingdom in 1707 and created the legal groundwork for George of Hanover to be crowned King of England and Ireland in 1714. He was 55 years old, married to his first cousin, and didn't speak any English because he was from the German house of Hanover. The English people were not happy about this and his coronation was met with riots all across the country followed by years of rebellions. His grandson, King George III, inspired the American Revolution. And when his granddaughter Victoria married her first cousin, Prince Albert, the house of Saxe, Coburg, and Gotha took sway over the country. Throughout the First World War, the people of England were questioning the loyalty of the German bloodlines who ruled over them, which prompted the royal family to change their name to Windsor, in 1917. Nine years later, Queen Elizabeth was born, who was initiated into the Druid order in 1946, married Prince Philip of Nazi bloodlines in 1947, and gave birth to Charles in 1948. In 2010, William Coombs, survivor of Canada's infamous residential schools where the mass graves of children were found, claimed to have witnessed Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip visit the Kamloops Residential School in 1964, where they took 10 of the children away with them, never to return. A year later, William Coombs dies in the hospital. In 1988, Prince Philip told the German press that he hopes to be reincarnated as a deadly virus to help with the population problem. And his son, King Charles, 
likes to joke on television how he is related to Dracula. His Royal Highness Prince Charles, who can trace his ancestry back to Romania's dark and distant past. The genealogy shows that I'm descended from Vlad the Impaler, so I do have a bit of a stake in the country. As it were. These royals are the result of an incestuous breeding program, wherein children were used as a way to gain power over the masses. So it's no surprise that they are caught up with the likes of Jeffrey Epstein, who made a living using children to leverage power, and Jimmy Savile, who had unfettered access to rape hundreds of children inside NHS hospitals and was a dear friend of King Charles. Along with Klaus Schwab, King Charles is a founder of the Great Reset. He's as green as Greta Thunberg. And last year, he announced the need for a military-style campaign to bring the world to zero emissions. Here we need a vast military-style campaign to marshal the strength of the global private sector. With trillions at its disposal, far beyond global GDP, and with the greatest respect, beyond even the governments of the world's leaders, it offers the only real prospect of achieving fundamental economic transition. So, how do we do it? We know how they'll do it. By cutting off Europe's fuel and forcing the people back into the 1700s. Reporting for InfoWars, this is Greg Reese. Another phenomenal report by Greg Reese. Um, I would just want to follow up one thing there. Vlad, Vlad the Impaler, for people who are unfamiliar with like the history of blood rights and, and these very dark and disgusting uh, ritualistic actions in history. What Bathory Erzurbet was another one. Um, these individuals that practice this, oftentimes we read their writings, they'll talk about those blood, the blood that they consume had soul or no soul. It's been theorized that, you know, if uh, the, the individual is sufficiently tortured, there's a release of cortisol and the adrenal hormones, norepinephrine, epinephrine, uh, combined with the potential for DMT, which is a very potent, the most potent psychedelic substance that we know about. And so there's been uh, speculated that in history, when you read some of these very disgusting accounts of some of these, these blood rituals that did take place, uh, there's uh, artifactual evidence of this. When they talk about a man or woman not, or a child in this case, in many cases, having soul or no soul, and it's been theorized to relate to the, dr the drugs that are released when an individual is tortured. And so, you know, there's a, a sort of concoction or sort of belief there around it. Uh, and Vlad the Impaler was the basis for Bram Stoker's Dracula in the late 1800s. I think they wrote that. He wrote That's that. That's right. Do we I also have the Greg Reese report? Did we play it last week about Princess Diana's death? There's two of them. Maybe we should play them back to back because he did two back to back. And so he did one like two weeks ago and one a week ago. Because right? even just ago, two this past week, they were saying, well, Princess mm -hmm. uh, Diana died that. because of the paparazzi. I'm like, wait, that's uh -huh. way old information. Let's get some truth on the record. There were inquests. There were you know, people found responsible to source stuff. So let's uh, get some of that yeah. on the record as well before we move on from this section. Is that the, the goddess Diana rituals and the death of there's Anne two. Probably. So there's there's or... two of them. Let's play. That's. Yeah, so it's going to be the first one to play LD will be the goddess Diana rituals and the deaths of Anne Hesh. And then you want to go right after that into Diana ritual sacrifice, the new old order by Gregory's. And uh, so the one that goddess Diana, we did play during the town hall, but we'll play it. Now. We didn't get a chance to play yeah, on GTW. So right. let's play it now. On GTW. Reese, three yeah, piece. Triple Reese. Coming at you. 
one have second. one piece. Um, you're getting two more. Yeah, so you want to play the so the first I, I've one. Got you him, I've got them. Okay, yeah, my bad. Sorry. You know, because um, also I, there was a second part to the really graceful video, but we're doing this, and I got those ready to go. So here we go. Celia Farber points out how the mass media tradition of obsessing over the deaths of celebrities has been absent since 2021 as a clear tactic to deflect mass death by COVID shots. And the death of Anne Heche marks a return to this mainstream media tradition. And the whole story is very strange. Just before the crash, Heche visited the glass hair design salon in Venice and purchased a red wig where she posed for a picture with the salon's owner, who did not notice her to be impaired in any way. Minutes later, Heish crashed into an apartment complex, where residents tried helping her out of the vehicle before the car was put in reverse and sped off. Videos then show her car recklessly speeding down a residential street and nearly hitting a pedestrian. She then hits a car before finally crashing the Mini Cooper into a house, where it bursts into flames. But this is where the story gets really strange. While being carried to the ambulance, we see that her legs are secured and she is covered in what looks like a cloth body bag. We are told that she couldn't breathe and yet they covered her face. And the reason these details were noticed is because we see her become fully conscious while frantically trying to escape the body bag and leg straps. Nothing was reported about this, and Heche's former boyfriend said that Anne was stable and expected to pull through. But then we are told she is in a coma, and then we are told that while her heart is still beating, she's legally dead, according to California law. But she will be kept on life support for possible organ donation. And then, right in the middle of the ancient three-day festival to honor the goddess Diana, known as Nemoralia, they pull the plug on Anne Heche and let her die. This is quite similar to what happened in Paris 25 years ago on the satanic inverted Nemoralia, August 31st, when Princess Diana was looked after as she bled to death in a tunnel dedicated to the goddess Diana. Many believe that Princess Diana was about to expose the royal family, and Anne Heche, who recently starred in a movie exposing chemtrails, was currently promoting her most recent film that was exposing the horrors of child sex trafficking. Child sex trafficking, along with all human trafficking, is the biggest business in the world. The slavery business is at an all-time high, and the thugs who run it are known for their satanic rituals. Ritual murders have always been, at a base level, a form of crowd control. The Anne Heche story has caused many to look back into the mysterious death of Michael Hastings. Journalist Michael Hastings had just published a story for Rolling Stone that resulted in the resignation of commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan and was working on a story of CIA director John Brennan. The day before he died, Hastings emailed friends to warn them that the feds were interviewing his close friends and associates and told them he was onto a big story and needed to go off the radar for a bit. Early the next morning, Hastings' silver Mercedes hit a palm tree and exploded, somehow launching the engine block 60 yards away from the car. Former counterterrorism czar Richard Clark 
told the Huffington Post that Hastings' crash was consistent with a car cyber attack and that intelligence agencies for major powers are able to remotely seize control of a person's vehicle. He added that if there was a cyber attack on Hastings' car, whoever did it would probably get away with it. Reporting for InfoWars, this is Greg Reese. Twenty-five years ago, Princess Diana's car crashed inside the Pont de la Alma tunnel in Paris, France. Her lover, Dottie Fayed, died upon impact along with the driver. And even though Diana survived, it took about 40 minutes to get her from the car to the ambulance. The official story was that they were trying to free her from the car. But several witnesses say that Diana was conscious and unobstructed. Photographs show that the back seat of the car was undamaged, and witnesses were pleading with the police to open the door and help her. Once in the ambulance, it took about 40 minutes for them to choose a hospital, and when they finally set off, the ambulance drove at a snail's pace and made several stops, taking about 40 minutes to drive less than four miles. Doctors were turned away, witnesses were strip-searched, cameras were confiscated, No evidence was gathered, no blood samples were taken, and by 3 a.m., the entire scene was sprayed down with high-pressure water hoses. Mercedes wanted to study the wreckage to see why it failed so badly, but they were denied. Diana's body was taken by the royal family, who had her reproductive organs removed before burying her remains. All 17 cameras along the route of the crash were mysteriously turned off, and all radio police frequencies went down. Witnesses were assaulted and threatened, and there was no investigation. Not until the inquest, 10 years later, which is when most people learned that Diana had penned a note in 1996 saying that someone was going to kill her in a car accident. This note was concealed for six years. At the inquest, experts agreed that Diana would have survived if they had gotten her to a hospital but the blame was put upon a military-style attack. According to witnesses, a group of motorcycles, along with a white Fiat Uno, worked in concert to crash the car, first with a blinding flash of light, followed by an explosion from the front tire of the Mercedes. During the inquest, a former MI6 agent described being shown the very same plan in 1992 for a possible MI6 assassination of Slobodan Milosevic and claimed it was MI6 who killed Diana. Because of all this, the inquest ended with the verdict of unlawful killing, blaming her death on the mysterious military hit squad. But the mainstream media spun the entire thing to make it sound like it was the paparazzi that caused her to crash which is demonstrably false. And while there was no investigation into finding the members of this military hit squad, three years later, the alleged driver of the white Fiat, who had ties to MI6, reportedly committed suicide after being found shot twice in the back of the head and burned inside of his car. During the inquest, many things were kept from the jury, such as the fact that Diana's seatbelt was found to be defective and evidence of the car being sabotaged. Interestingly, these things would have brought more suspicion towards Dottie's father, Mohammed Al-Fayed, who, after turning down repeated offers from the French government to provide security, 
was solely responsible for Diana's security detail, and at the last minute, had them leave their security detail in front of the hotel as a decoy and take a different car, a car that was recently stolen, broken, repaired, and never checked by security. Left with only one security guard, they were also assigned a new driver. Henri Paul, who had no chauffeur permit, was tied to foreign intelligence services, was seen on camera signaling to someone just before setting off, had received over 50,000 francs the day of the crash. And this was all under the watch of Mohammed Al-Fayed, who was deeply connected to the intelligence community. He was business partners with one of Lee Harvey Oswald's handlers and represented the grandfather of Mohammed Atta. But none of that was mentioned during the inquest. Instead, with the help of pop culture agents such as Howard Stern and Piers Morgan, Mohammed Al-Fayed has provided the world with the cover story that Diana was pregnant with Dottie's child and Prince Philip had her killed because he's racist. Which seems like a strange cover story. That is, if you don't realize that the entire thing was a satanic ritual. Rituals are meant to be witnessed, and the death of Diana is steeped in satanic ritual. The royal family, originally known as the Sachs coburg gotha bloodline, changed their name to Windsor to sound more British. Their inbred family is traced back to Vlad the Impaler, otherwise known as Dracula. And with several proud Nazis in the family, including Prince Philip, the royal family is obsessed with pagan ritual and all things occulted. According to the carefully planned breeding of royal bloodlines, the marriage between Diana and Charles was for the Merovingian ancestry of Lady Diana to I be seeded into the royal family. Diana was well aware of this and referred to herself as the Windsor Broodmare. They were married at St. Paul's Cathedral, owned by the royal family and built upon the site of a Roman temple dedicated to the goddess Diana. According to occult beliefs, the goddess Diana was Lucifer's consort, and on August 13, 1313, they produced a magical daughter named Aradia. In Freemasonry, this same trio is known as Osiris, Isis, and Horus. This same ritual is shown in the Roman Polanski film Rosemary's Baby, where the innocent virgin is unknowingly recruited by a satanic cult to mate with Lucifer and spawn a child. After the birth of Prince William, Diana became a threat to the family. She had major influence and used it to shine a light on the family's powerful interests, such as the endless war machine. Her life was being threatened, and she told several friends that the family was going to kill her. Less than a month before her death and after a series of affairs, Diana started seeing family friend Dottie Fayed. And on August 31st, the satanic ritual sacrifice date for the goddess Diana, Diana of Wales was driven out of the way past an ancient Egyptian obelisk and into a tunnel named in dedication to the goddess Diana. Inside this tunnel, Diana's Mercedes crashed into the 13th pillar, where she was kept to bleed to death above a known ancient Merovingian underground chamber for the ritual blood sacrifice worship to the goddess Diana. This is the religion of the world's elite. Prince Philip said he would like to be reincarnated as a deadly virus to wipe out humanity. His underling, Maurice Strong, 
co-founded the World Economic Forum with Klaus Schwab. And Prince Charles, who brags of being related to Dracula, co-founded the World Economic Forum's Great Reset Initiative. These are the leaders of the so-called New World Order. These monsters are the best that they have. Reporting for InfoWars, this is Greg Reese. But maybe maybe it was the paparazzi. We don't know. Rich, you would think you that uh, Prince Charles would have had like the, the resources to track down who killed his wife that was banging Fayed. Now, interestingly enough, Dodi Fayed's dad, Mohammed Al-Fayed, he owns Harrods in London uh, on Knightsbridge Road. Very famous department store. Uh, if you go down the escalator, they have like a little cafeteria place you can get food. But they also, at the bottom of the escalator, there's a, a monument of sorts to Dodi and Diana. It's a black pyramid with a stylized 666 on there. So I don't know. There it is. Yep, I haven't. Yeah, it's so, so maybe again, maybe the paparazzi did that little occult ritual thing in his dad's place. And you saw but, this, right? You were there. Yeah, I've seen that in person. Yeah, yeah. And so there's also this as well, the innocent victims. I think it's at the top of it or something. Like it's, I don't. Yeah. So I'll put it on screen. I'm sorry. So it's it. I don't know if this is part. So this is part of at Harrods, located at Harrods Department Store in London. So there's a statue unveiled in 2005 titled "Innocent Victims." Yeah, that was so, after I was there. Was, and then the obviously the black pyramid sort of six 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 overlapping circle motif in the background. Um very strange the the white and black candles symbolizing duality. Um yeah. Okay. Like this whole thing is just one big what's well, the black thing. pyramid with the capstone on it. That's yeah, that's the symbolism. I'm not sure what religion that is. I, I forget. <laughs> I think it might be Christianity. Uh-huh. I don't know. Well some people could be Taoism. Is it Taoism? shintoism that's what it is <laughs> oh now we're in japan um for the some people asked i said i had the i do have the royal family tree it's um part of i'll show you real quick you need useful, some burke's peerage up in here useful charts does these you know here's the european west side here's the northeast side of the european so he has i bought i think the west one uh, I want to get all of them eventually, and I have them in the background. Get them all, wallpaper your that's house, bro. Here. Yeah, that's I want to. Yeah, my house is like a mystery square. It's just filled with, you know, wallpaper, just yeah, charts of different of information of different things. There's also real quick. Where does this all come from? Obviously, it comes golden from ritualism, but it's a golden bell. Yeah, so you can look up chapter one, the King of the Wood. That's the very first chapter. So for people who are interested. Go ahead and read. King of the, the Wood origin. used to be John Holmes, but now it's whatever Golden Bow is. <laughs> he has a 70s porn joke. <clears throat> Not a lot of people got that one, but we'll leave it there. <laughs> we will leave it there. Okay. That's what he said. All right, take it. No, that's a callback joke. All right, so let's keep going. Um, so Prince Chucky, he's got uh, this whole Agenda 21 World Wildlife Foundation cares about the earth, green agenda, hanging out with Klaus Schwab, Momo Strong, and these guys making it happen. It, do we have that picture of uh, Evelyn de Rothschild with uh, former Prince Charles? There's a, a, a picture. Yeah, Evelyn de Roth, Sir Evelyn de Rothschild is yeah. taller, and he's having a conversation with the former Prince Charles, and it shows the power dynamic and relationship between the Rothschilds and the former Prince Charles. 
I know I have it. Oh, actually, I, I do have it. I have access to it from this computer, probably. This one. Yeah, let's see. <laughs> yeah. him in the chest. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I got. Oh, it's a yeah. Getty image? It's not even like a conspiracy site image? How <laughs> dare you get a Getty image? I want the meme version where people say mean stuff on there. No, um, but that's put it. Yeah, so it's on screen. So you can definitely see. Evelyn's sort of tall. Yeah, Sir Evelyn de Rothschild is uh, the husband of Lynn Forrester de Rothschild, who's Hillary Clinton's friend, like an inclusive capitalism, this whole Miss thing you. that's going on. They're a very close-knit group. Yeah. But that that posturing there, he's not pointing his finger at former Prince Charles. He's poking the dude in his heart. What is what is that all about? And why was a Getty photographer there to get it? What happens when the Getty photographer's not there? Does he slap him? How does that work? <laughs> You know, no, like if that's what Sir Evelyn does words, to the to former point, Prince Charles yeah, right. in public, right. what do you think goes on at those meetings where they wear the hoods? Well, think <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Well, think about I'm how joking, only half joking because the Rothschilds did have that uh, they masquerade had the 1970s dinner party, masquerade, 1972. Yeah. You got to check out the pictures. There's baby doll heads and parts Actually, of babies on the table. LD, bring up a settings. picture of that if you're, or bring up because there's a couple if you can find them because that is gnarly. Like it's also a, a, a masquerade. Yeah, it's a masquerade. So it's a, it you know draws parallels obviously to eyes wide shut, which we mentioned earlier. Are you happy? I might have something here on there. Let me see. <laughs> of course, this book is here. Do I have? I can't search with paper version i'd control f this baby oh wait that might be a joke for about that party oh, i got something here sir evelyn de rothschild live hey, Earth, global LD's warming handbook see if you can find the baby bone table thing or the baby that baby table. or there's a bunch of weird this this scroll through pictures are all weird actually <clears throat> the two-faced mess it's very strange this one's a lot of very yeah, That's an interesting yes, one. yeah, yeah. Sort of reminds you of split personality, MK Ultra style sort of stuff. That'd be a very VC thing, vigilant citizen thing. Here's a here's a body. There's the one on mannequin, oh, yeah. right? Kind of yeah. reminiscent Eating of food. spirit cooking. Uh, yeah, just look. Well, there Abramovich. is. Okay, so right, hold. Abramovich, stop the yeah. stop the presses because Abramovich and Evelyn de Rothschild were in that picture that uh, Reese just showed. They're standing in front of Satan. So there's a picture of Satan and his, yeah. it's called yeah. Satan and his minions. And they stand in front of the picture as the minions. Here's I'm still going to find partially dismembered baby. Fake baby. It's, it's an effigy, yeah, just deer. like Bohemian Grove. Get the idea. Why is that? It's not in this version. Uh, here's the plot effects. That's why. No, that's not the wall. Let's see what Here, I'll bring it up. Hold on. I got it. I got something special. Wow, they have this fact check like hell. The wall. We've seen it before. I've seen it many times. Let us buy the fact checks. All right, keep it talking while I look up this document here. Sure. Yeah, I mean, there's a number I'm trying to also look it up, but what's strange about it especially about those pictures and then obviously now if i remember correctly about eyes wide shut oh uh, um, chateau ferrier that's yes, how you have that, to find that party it's okay uh, go ahead keep going i was going to say wasn't the original when kubrick decided to film that the the whole um eyes wide shut. 
scene, you know, where you have to say the passwords, the sex party, and the whole thing. I could have sworn he wanted to choose, or he did choose a Rothschild mansion, but that wasn't allowed, or something happened on the day of production, or so there's some switchover, so they had to choose a different mansion somewhere else. But he, the thing about Kubrick was he's very systematic, uh, extremely anal retentive in regards to his his uh, hyper focus, hyper detail, and so for him to. It's the same thing, for example, in 2001 A Space Odyssey, where he didn't want Jupiter, he wanted Saturn, but they supposedly couldn't recreate Saturn realistically enough, supposedly. Same issue with uh, Eyes Wide Shut. He wanted to do it, I believe, and I could be wrong here, but I could have sworn it was at a Rothschild mansion. Something got thwarted. Let me see if I can find that connection. It's just, again, it's these strange parallels that are curious. I mean, they're speculative, certainly, and circumstantial. They don't really, you know, well, can one say beyond them except that they just are curious coincidences at the very least um let me see if i can find kubrick plus eyes wide shut what i'm looking for is worth it so oh, yeah, yeah. Second, so i'm just trying to it. wax on whatever we're just uh movie location oh plus right. and that's you know that Metmore Towers, English countryside and village of Metmore. Yeah, those it's right. that and Chateau Ferrier that Chateau they use. Yeah, those are the two places. And for some reason, I can't find it, so I'm going to give up on that. Metmore. So here it return. is. This is Rothschild. So here, Metmore Towers, historically yep. known <clears throat> simply as Metmore in the 19th century. It's also English where Batman lives. Bruce Wayne. Really? If you if you read through there, and I bet they used it in uh, Tomb Raider. Read, read down to like used in popular culture yeah tomorrow. you're right dude oh my god so yeah. they put these things in oh front of us. my god dude. and what you have what? to do is go look the Rothschild the mummy like, returns johnny yeah, english like, christopher nolan's uh, batman begins stanley kubik's i've ride shut terry gilliam's brazil yep so when they're like we don't know who the Rothschilds are it's like you're using their their sets and your films bro <laughs> don't don't gaslight me you know so unbelievable man. Uh, there's there's a long history behind like just for instance just that uh, dinner party like they lit up the outside of chateau ferrier with red lights to make it look like the flames of hell yeah. and then they'd have people enter into the dinner party there's a whole bunch of interesting people there i'm sure but there's also like a secondary layer you know there's the people who watch the story for the good guy bad guy and then there's the other layers to the story yeah, it's for the tale for the same thing with the Ellison mysteries a tale for the mundane and then there's those who got the actual experience right. yeah, yeah mundane gets the profane get yeah they get here. the myth they get the reenactment of the myth like bohemian grove with the exactly effigy, or the yes. effigies on the table in that that place well, that's like, just a reenactment you're invited to, you're not in the group so you just think those are place settings and it's like symbology but really in the back yeah. they're probably doing that for real that's that, that's exactly what according Epstein to was all about yeah um <laughs> his name manly palmer hall when he talked about ancient mysteries there especially many of them had two two sides to them there was the one for the mundane and at the same time going on was the actual embodiment of the that man had an awful death read master of the mysteries by louis Hmm. what's the guy's name anyway it's the story of manly palmer hall brilliant you had man me read that when i was probably richly shot ritually sacrificed if you're getting down to it like read that book and see what you think but. he was he probably was i mean they literally routed his body from the inside out and then he woke up with bugs crawling out of his mouth he's yeah he's a Rosicrucian. i don't think he was in the right secret society bro that's what was going on he should have chose wisely or all right um going forward 
KC3, King Charles III. He's got this green agenda, carbon zero, blah, 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 blah. Now people can get a closer look at it. We're going to do a special deep dive tonight in the intermission to give you some sense of history of somebody who said some things about Prince Charles 20 years ago that all of a sudden just came true. Like in the last week, you can see it come to fruition. When you saw it back then, you're like, ah, what's the big deal? He likes organic farming. Come on, man. Don't give Prince Charles a hard time, you know, but now you can see, oh, there's been an agenda at play and this dude's probably going to try to cash in while he's king. What do you think? He's been sitting around for 50 years dreaming about what, what it's like when mommy goes away when he has the kingship. So, uh, <clears throat> are there any other clips that we should play? They're relevant. There was a couple good. And now oh, oh, let's play that saying redacted. something about the let's really play... graceful thing. Oh, I'm sorry. You're good. I want to get that redacted clip because they did a good job of tying King Charles to the green agenda and Klaus Schwab. And I was really impressed with their effort on that. Do we have that clip in the uh, playlist? Yes, yeah. Let's roll it. This is redacted, but you can see it because you're in Grand Theft World. Let's get into today's top story, and that is the devastating effects of what is happening with the World Economic Forum right now, playing out in real time. We are watching this unfold, and boy, what a prescient day, what a poignant day when we have the death of Queen Elizabeth and the ascension of now King Charles. He's officially king uh, this afternoon. There'll be 10 days of mourning in in England. But yes, King Charles, proud member of the World Economic Forum, not only just proud member of the World Economic Forum, he is actually the member of the World Economic Forum who created the Great Reset. Very, very important. I want to talk a little bit more about that and talk about what's happening in the Netherlands today. But he created the Great Reset. It wasn't Charles Schwab, Charles Schwab, uh, Klaus Schwab. It was the, the Prince of Wales, uh, uh, Charles. And very, very important to talk about. So when the Great Reset was officially launched in 2020, it was not done by Klaus Schwab or Bill Gates or anybody else. But in fact, the Prince of Wales, heir of the British throne at the time, here he was at the Great Reset speech, kicking it off. Watch. Case, we have no alternative because otherwise, unless we take the action necessary and we build uh, again in a greener and more sustainable and more inclusive way, then we will end up having more and more pandemics and more and more disasters from ever, ever accelerating global warming and climate change. So this is the one moment as uh, as you've all been saying, when we have to to to, to, to make uh, as much progress as we can. Now, a lot of people don't know that. A lot of people don't know that he was the one. In fact, fully uh, making the announcement on his website. Uh, Grover, our dog, can't stand it either. Fully making the announcement on the website of the Prince of Wales and the Duchess of Cornwall. Now, if you go to the website today where this statement lived, the website is now being updated and and removed. So this is now down. Look at that. The website is temporarily suspended following the announcement of the death of the Queen, uh, the, Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth II. So the Prince of Wales, Duchess of Cornwall, the announcement for the Great Reset page, you can't get to it at the moment because they're redoing the whole website in order to change it and update it for his 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 lordship. Uh, because he no longer, his royal highness is no longer the Prince of Wales. Right. He is now HRH, the king of everything. King of everything. I, I don't know his official Wow, what a title. day we live in where it's like the king inherits the throne and a website. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
I want someone to be able to just update my website for me like that, you know? Um, so you can't find the announcement about the Great Reset on their website. No, but you can find it still. The tweet still exists where he kicked this off. The Prince of Wales, Duchess of Cornwall. The Great Reset Initiative is designed to ensure business and communities build back better. Oh, Build Back Better. He could do Build Back Better by putting sustainable business practices at the heart of their operations as they begin to recover from the coronavirus pandemic. Watch to find out more. World Economic Forum, the, the launch of the Great Reset. So I don't think people know this. No, I, I mean, I know some people are aware of this. I see definitely some people saying he's a member of the WEF and a, not just a member, but like, yeah, the member. Right. Very, very important to understand how this all unfolds, because what we're seeing play out in the Netherlands over the past 24 hours is deeply disturbing. We're going to show you the disgusting moments of government overreach in just a moment in the Netherlands. The videos are absolutely stunning. But first, some context here. You don't need to go any further than the small town of Stroh in the Netherlands to see its effects of globalists destroying sovereign powers. Stroh is a small hamlet in the Dutch province of North Holland. It's about as beautiful as you can imagine. Look how just gorgeous it is there with picturesque gardens, adorable windmills, of course, friendly people, coastal cottages, little train rides that you can go on. You can drive along and have some beers on a pedal pedal bike. You can uh, you can also go to local museums and have a blast along the coast there. It's about as removed from the hustle and bustle of the big city as you can get. You can even stay at the guest house, which is a lazy cottage it's called the, the Lazy Cottage for just $66 a night. It's adorable. You can ride a bike. You can do all of that. Nine years ago, Stroh had a population of about 1,500 people. Thanks to government regulation, cost of living increases, and devastating climate laws, the people here have given up their farms and moved away. Many of them are leaving the Netherlands altogether. According to public records today, the population now just sits over 100. Think about Jeez. it. Think about that, right? That's why it's not surprising that Stroh would, would, would become ground zero, of course, for the farmer protests, uh, which unfolded there. This was the meeting place. This was the place where it happened. Um, this was the announcement as significant ground port transport disruptions due to ongoing farmer protests in Stroh. Thousands of farmers, citizens descended on this area to say enough is enough. Even if they weren't farmers, they came out in support of it, right? We showed you these videos. They came out to show their solidarity with the way of life. After all, the Netherlands is the second leading provider of food to the world. I think most people don't realize that. And it's such a tiny country. It's yeah. so densely packed. It kind of reminds me of New Jersey in the United States. It's the most densely population packed state. And it it's the garden state. So it also provides right. <laughs> right, tomatoes and all sorts of produce. And I wonder, though, when you think about the grand exodus of farmers because they can no longer sustain their business, right? If you can sort of juxtapose this with some of the articles, the news articles that we see, um, popping up every now and again. Have you seen these articles saying that densely populated urban spaces are now the way, the only way to sustainably live? Like we have to all huh. live in cities on top of each other. It reminds me of if you've read the book uh, Ready Player One, the stacks where the we stacks. have to like yeah. stack up houses in order to use resources collectively, right? This is the way we have to live if we're going to survive the planet destruction. Uh, and so in sort of like coaxing us away from living off the land so that we are dependent on governments so, you know it it feels very uh 
coaxing, if you will. Well, this is all the Great Reset. This is exactly what they talked about. Yeah. I mean, this is laid out exactly, and we're going to get to some of the sound of that, how this is laid out in this idea of collectivism, you know, this working together yes. in this way where, you know, you will own nothing, you will be happy about it, we're going to give it up, but we're seeing it really unfolding now in the Netherlands over the past few weeks, but specifically over the past 24 hours now. The Netherlands is a country of 4 million cattle. 13 million pigs, 104 million chickens, and just over 17 million people. It is Europe's biggest meat exporter with a total area of just over 41,000 square kilometers. And a fifth of this is water. It's one of the world's most densely populated countries with the EU's highest density of livestock. Think about that, right? So this is target number one for the World Economic Forum. It is the Petri dish of which they are testing everything out. The, in January, the government voted. The history here is in January when the government voted with pressure from the WEF to cut in half its nitrogen production by 2030. It's all part of the larger Klaus Schwab, King Charles Great Reset. Watch. I just see the need for such a dialogue and I see the need for action. I see the need for a great reason. And of course, the author of the book and in following with King Charles, then the Prince of Wales, on his Great Reset plan, Western leaders fell in lockstep with Schwab's Great Reset. They were all parroting this same dialogue. They, they, were, they were taking these talking points around the world and using them. It's amazing to even look at, by the way, if you look at King Charles' tweet, I, I, it's amazing to say King Charles, right? But at, when he was Prince of Wales, and you look at his tweet and he literally highlights build back better. Right. Where do you think Biden and the Democrats got that phrase, right? For the build back better plan. They got it right from here. They got it right from... Well, if this was, though, he was speaking during the pandemic before build back, uh, after build back better was already launched as a campaign. Because I don't think that timeline works. It, well, the, what I'm saying is this this tweet is t two years old. Right, but the build, build Back Better was a campaign slogan for candidate Biden. I think. I'm okay. Let's not let's not dwell well, on that. It's yeah. not, it's I don't know where it, can, it look. It all comes out of think tanks. It all comes sure. out of these groups that they're launching these talking points. My point is that none of this operates in a vacuum. Where this is just like, oh, I have a guy idea. I have an idea. That's all workshopped. It all comes out of this. You know, but together. it also feels like code speak, right? We've talked many times about how you know what the United States does. Britain sort of falls in line, says, "Hey, we're your buds. We're doing that too. Whatever you want, right?" right. And so. Um, it feels very much like sort of Western partnership of the same agenda. Right. Well, yeah. And of course, all of this, all of this launched officially in 2020 um, and came together under this one plan. Western leaders, all of this sort of code speak fell in line with this great reset agenda. Even before the pandemic, it was all about consolidating power and taking away rights of the poor, the middle class in the name of climate change. Here's Justin Trudeau talking about the Great Reset. Canada believes that a strong, coordinated response across the world and across sectors is essential. This pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. This is our chance to accelerate our pre-pandemic efforts to reimagine economic systems that actually address global challenges like extreme poverty, inequality, and climate change. Okay, Molly Ringwald with that hair. But the thing is, right, that any time that you think that you have to take away someone's ability to live off the land mm -hmm. 
and take power and consolidate it into like away from people who have their own agency to live right this is what we're feeling now is like continue to disenfranchise people to live on their own yeah and you're going to see here in a moment the evidence about the farmers and the the the, uh, the taking of the land right i mean because netherlands even put in place at the time as this great reset was unfolding they put in place a 25 billion euro budget to make all of this happen Mm -hmm. to reduce the nitrogen. But something that wasn't reported at the time was how this money would actually be used. It would be used to kill off their livestock. At the same time, millions were set aside for a very dastardly reason. It's not often I get to use the word dastardly, but I really feel like this word applies here. Once the farmers collapsed, then the government had this, the money was sitting there on purpose, designed, and it was kept quiet. The money was there on purpose that as soon as one of these farmers collapsed, that money would be used to buy the farm. That's it. They couldn't, they had to go out, they went out of business, and the government had this kitty of money that was able to swoop in using their newly allotted budget that the government put in place for just such a reason, and the government would simply buy up their farm. Then in June, the government took the second step in all of this, the deadliest step of all. In this process, they published two pieces of paper, two documents, one was a map showing, this is amazing, one was a map showing the areas that needed to reduce emissions between 12% and 95% in the Netherlands. So they had a map. So all these farmers sort of gathered around this map to see like, well, where does my farm fit on this map? Oh, 12%? I've got to get rid of 12% emissions in nitrogen? Or am I in the 95%? What do you do if you're a farm that had to get rid of 95%? Close to city centers, right? You're done. You're dead. And then the government would swoop in and take your farm. And so if you lived in Stroh or its surrounding areas, you could look at the map and you could see, you know, how much you had to cut. Were you going to be able to, were you going to be in deep shit with the government? What are you going to do about it? The second paper they published showed that the percentage of animals and livestock you needed to kill on your farm in order, in order to be compliant. It was like, here, we've created a handy cheat sheet. Here's how many heads of cattle you need to cull in order to be compliant with the government. And of course, now the government admits it was a disaster the way that they rolled this out. And it was because all these farmers were like, what the hell? Now I've got to literally kill off all of my livestock. But see, the problem is that when in January they printed their initial report and what was going to happen, all of these farmers spent just tons of money buying expensive equipment in order to become nitrogen compliant and to get their emissions down on their farms. Mm -hmm. So they invested all of this money into their farms and then they come out with the second report and these documents in the summer, which basically upended the whole thing. It was a total waste of money. All of the money you just spent on this equipment, you can just flush it down the toilet. Oh, sounds very familiar to restaurants who retrofitted for outdoor dining and then still right. were... Because shut COVID, down because, because of, of the pandemic right. sure yeah That's this is a, a this is a page out of allow me to add value to their fine conversation this is a book called the world economic forum a partner in shaping history the first 40 years and i can't i was looking for a picture of uh king charles with schwab and i did find one but on the way to finding it i found this part bill gates the global philanthropist philanthropist it's hard to say because you have to put that word right next to bill gates my mouth doesn't want to do it let me just show you <laughs> let me just show you what's going on here these stupid fucking okay so look lately had a nice timeline you know 20 years before covid gates foundation Ga gates foundation 100 million 
challenge grant for AIDS vaccine. How'd that work out? 2002, Gates Foundation, 50 million contribution for AIDS, for AIDS prevention in Africa. I think it's still a thing over there, so I don't think that worked. 2003, 200 million National Institutes of Health. 2004, 82 million uh, Vaccine Foundation. 2005, the World Health Organization. You might have heard of them recently. 10 million Gates Foundation, right? So they just start pouring money. Gavi Alliance, right? All this sort of stuff. So they're, they're marketing their guy, Bill Gates, as a philanthropist. Rich, I have a question. All this stuff that leads up to COVID. What was your question? What? So does that mean their fortune has been relinquished? Or is that... Uh, I'm just curious because, I mean, they're giving so much money there. I mean, it seems like... They should be, you know, kind of de- not destitute, but not as well off as. There's a section in the same be. book, forging partnerships with young leaders, whole young leader section. This part I thought was, uh, wait, wait, it's coming up. Let's see. What was this one? This was just more Bill Gates. There was a, a page in here I found, and it is the picture from Vedmore's article hmm. that we just saw. Let me see. Where's that? Where is it? The other book. I have it in here. I just saw it because he was showing John Kenneth Gal- Galbraith. And they were on a plane, right? Yeah. Well, let's see. Quite sure that, that was, was ninety-three uh, Ukraine. Yeah, I'm trying to see. I had the cards all lined up. Did I move it when I was uh, looking at this other book? Quite possibly. Quite possibly. Um, but I can assure you, it was in here. I did find a picture of Prince Charles with Schwab in one of the official World Economic Forum books. Where is uh, the Galbraith one, though? That upsets me. Well, just a little bit. I'll find it because the page, oh, the, yeah. the card just slipped down inside the book is all, kids. It's not. Here it is right here. Boom. Never quit. Never quit. Always reach for your dreams, guys. There it is right there. Forum members. Aren't, so isn't that, uh, or is that a different picture from the article? Yeah, that that's we the were, picture. That's the picture. That's the picture. So that's page yeah, 118. That's the picture. Yeah. 118. In this book, here I put it on screen. It's just a little bit bigger on, but yeah, that's it. Pot and history, but here, over here, is the money shot. This book is the uh, the infamous by now World Economic Forum building an international institution of public-private cooperation. In here, when did they come out with that book? Look, dude, there's KC three talking. Oh yeah, Vaclav Havel, Klaus Schwab. And formerly known as Prince. Get it? Am I the first to do that joke? Come on. Mm. Come on. I work hard for these. (laughs) I work hard for the money. (laughs) Oh, man. All right. So now you guys have seen it. That's a a real book. That's page 102. I had to look through like 400 pages of pictures of these guys to find that. When did they they come out with that? Was that like a recent thing? You guys are worth it. What's that? Like what when, time? when did they come out with that book? Just out of curiosity. Public just private like, partnership, I thought it was 2008, but let me check. Is it eight? Okay. And that's like their one. Whole... No, this is 2015. Okay. Wow. It has a whole timeline, but the uh, first the 40 one. years book would be 2009. Okay. And this is where they have the Davos Manifesto right here. With on his... screen, right? Oh, wait. Sorry. 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 Prince, so let me just do it right. Do it right. Look right here. His Royal Highness, Prince Bernard of the Netherlands, mm. shaping your future. Aurelio Pache limits the growth, Club of Rome, all the stuff we've been talking about for two years now. Anyway, I'm sure it doesn't matter. King Charles is in the house. 
He'll fix it all. He'll fix it like Jimmy Savile used to fix it on Jimmy. He'll fix it. Yeah, you, did you catch that Prince Charles talking about how wonderful Diana was at 16? In that, yeah, right. In how old was he, videos? bro? Yeah. How old was Good he? Because he looked like he was a lot older than maybe 20 at that point. He wasn't like a young buck. He was an older man. Uh, so Bernard helped fund. I mean, when the family already embraces the inbreeding, is the age of consent <laughs> such a big deal for the mayor? Strange. Anyway, folk, man. I, I have a real, question. Real, yeah, okay. Well, the, the formerly known as Prince Charles, now King, he got coronated. The kingship comes from like King David in the Bible. It's biblical, right? Mm-hmm. So his whole, Kings, yeah. his whole throne of power is all based on the book of Kings and the Bible and this sort of mm-hmm. thing, right? But at the same time, the social Darwinist evolution, Julian Huxley, eugenics motherfuckers mm-hmm. are saying survival of the fittest. Uh, you have no soul. We're going to control you like clockwork oranges, agenda 21 for everybody. So how do those two things reconcile? Because it seems like one conflicts with the other. Oh, that's a good question. Thank you. That's such a good question. I mean, 1776 didn't get finished. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. There's also a confusion with like the mystery schools. Should have taken a boat across the ocean and dealt with King George III. Because a lot of the symbolism, the way they sort of reappropriate it for their ritualism is not consistent with the original intention of many of the mysteries, at least as I've researched it. So it's like they invert everything, whether it's ancient uh, religious mystery traditions or Christianity or Islam, it doesn't matter. They're inverting anything they consider to be good, beautiful, or true. And that's that's consistent with Quigley in his article in Semantics and the idea of, you know... Um, and George Orwell in 1984 and double speak and all those sorts of things. Crickets are for your yard, not your bowl. That's, That's right. These people want you to eat bugs and they probably eat more than cows. And this one, a follow up. I think I'm right about that. Bernard helped. So you, you already went in this, the WWF, the world wildlife fund, uh, fun, um, 1961 and 1970 established a WWS 1001 club, a nature trust as a fundraiser. And in 54, he was co-founder of the international Bilderberg group. Okay. I thought so. I figured the I Bilderbergers. He so he was also instrumental in the Bilderberg group as well. Unfortunately, the Bilderberg group went out when McDonald's came along because they could make the burgers faster. So you probably haven't heard of Bilderberger for a while unless you're a historic guy. They were competing with Fuddruckers too, right? (laughs) (laughs) They're competing with all the Smash Burger joints. It's all idiocracy from here. Like Uh, I got this uh, Foreign Affairs article, Britain Adrift. Hmm. Whatever. Not reading their shit. You are a comedian tonight, damn. I'm getting spicy. It's getting late. I've been doing we've we've been live streaming for over a day now. I've been taking it all in. All right. So um <laughs> I did bring a real stack of books for you guys. Let me uh move That's these fantastic. things around. That is fantastic. So LD, yeah. you're gonna say something about really graceful. What was the thing? She had a second part to her. Oh so yeah. People are aware in case we don't play it. So there were two parts, two parts to that. Oh, uh, okay. Oh, never mind. So, well, there's a she did a fantastic breakdown of Prince Charles as well. We played the Greg Reese bit, but she also, and it's part of the uh, show card for people who are interested. So, I have a whole section. There's a lot more commentary beyond just Greg Reese on uh, talking about the same things, of course, but just in their own way and their, their own analysis on Prince Charles. Well, now King, King, King Chucky. Yeah. And we're going to have to uh, shift gears out of 
mm-hmm. KC3 mode. And we're going to have to go back to something that uh, happened during his mother's tenure as a monarch of the British Empire. Uh, it's an event called 9-11. Today's the anniversary of it. I have a stack of books. I have some things to say about it. But I think we need to, we need to play a clip to set it up. So maybe we should go, how long is that Burmese clip? 9-11, 21 it's long, years later. It's long. We could display a portion of it. I think it's in the intermission section. Let me see. I, um, it's it's yeah, one hour, gonna, but we can play move. maybe 20 minutes of it and just you see where it goes. All right, so let's play like 15 minutes of it because yeah. uh, I also want to have time for intermission tonight. It's going to be Walter Weith's speech. I'm excited the, for that. The beamable, sustainable princes is what you're going to need to find on BitChute. It was the only place I could find it anymore because um, they don't want you it. to... They don't want it. you to know about this stuff. Um, the other thing I want to put you on alert about, if we're going to talk about 9-11, is Who Killed John O'Neill, the film, has been almost successfully scrubbed from the internet. It really? is no longer on internet archive. All the links, like, they oh. have gone. So I've been trying to, like, people are looking for a high-quality version of it. And I was like, well, just go to the links I- where they've been for the past 20 I- years, and they're all gone. So I'm going to have to find a DVD that I have oh, and rip man. it to get a high quality version of that i, I might have put, saved it i might have saved it so if i did i'll upload that for you and ld and everyone just putting it out there the censorship culture is coming from the good artifacts man. that we use to explain ideas to each other which is why humans made media in the first fucking place so i definitely have saved this I've, big yeah. ideas you know um I'm looking all right so that bothers me the hell out of me man yeah let's kick it to burmas I featured two of his I got documentaries. It. I got it. I did save it back in 2014. So Good. I think it's the I, highest quality version. I, could, I have two versions, one from 2011, 2014. So I probably saved in two two different qualities. Let's, let's IPFS that shit and make sure yeah. it can never come down off the internet again. Uh, yeah, let's go to Burmese. I featured two of his documentaries in the past 24 hours, Fabled Enemies and Invisible Empire. I highly recommend if you're interested in history, you got to check that stuff out because it's going to give you a whole different perspective than cable news. And it's much more credible than cable news, which is why we're going to share more of Burmese's work with you right now. 9-11, 21 years later. Hey, everybody. Jason Burmese here. And as most of you know, the 21st anniversary of 9-11 is literally around the corner and i am lucky enough to be joined by three people who have fought extremely hard over not only the last several years but well over a decade in some cases to bring that truth out and believe you and me this issue still absolutely matters is a crux to where we are as a nation and as a world so without further ado i want to Thank my guests for coming on. We are joined by Barbara Oniger, Richard Gage, and Mick Harrison. And we're just going to shortly go through how each of you got involved in 9-11 Truth and why it's such an important issue. So let's start with uh, somebody my audience may not be familiar with. Mick, tell us how you got involved in the litigation aspect of this. Okay, thanks, uh, Jason, and I apologize for being in transit. Uh, during your program, best I could do. So I got involved, um, surprisingly, by walking into a meeting and hearing people talk about explosives being planted in a building. To my shock and amazement, this was a meeting of some environmental activists in Indiana who I I was representing as a lawyer. Uh, I think most folks know I'm a public interest lawyer of 30 years now. 
so I just walked into this meeting thinking I was going to be working on forest protection and folks were talking about explosives. And I said, what are you talking about? And they were talking about David Ray Griffin's first present public presentation about his research and analysis of the 9-11 commission and his conclusion that the trade center buildings did not come down from fires alone or plane strikes. They came down because they had explosives planted in them. And I thought, you know, that was incredible. To be honest, I didn't really believe it. And um, I said, well, do you have any evidence for this? And they said, well, uh, there is evidence for it. You know, David Ray Griffin has explained some of it, but, he, but they also said there's a chemist here in town, just moved to Bloomington. His name is Kevin Ryan, and he can educate you on the technical evidence on the demolition. And uh, I didn't know Kevin at that point. I've since, you know, come to know him well and um, respect his work and consider him a friend, but he did educate me. And that was, oh my goodness, I hate to think 2007 or something. And you know, so, Kevin has been in this even before that, well before that, rest in peace, uh, David Ray Griffin, who also put out a ton of good work on 9-11 uh, Truth, the demolitions and beyond. What then pushes you into the legal aspects of this? Well, that's a good question. Um, I mean, uh, as a public interest lawyer, you know, government accountability, government integrity is my focus, has been always. And when Kevin convinced me, and I was probably a little reluctant, but he did with evidence convince me that this was a real thing uh, about the use of explosives, I decided I ethically I didn't have a choice. I just had to look into it, investigate it, see if I could be of assistance with my legal background which brought me to the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, which had not yet incorporated, but was an association. Uh, that was six or seven years ago now. And um, Jane Clark, who was uh, the head of the organization, invited me in. We started discussing legal strategies. I mapped out a, a litigation plan for the group that would hopefully move us towards transparency and accountability on the 9-11 crimes we've been pursuing that plan for the last six years. Thank you so much. Barbara, we've spoken at events together. You've been in the game for quite some time. What was the initial thing that got you to start questioning 9-11 and then become the researcher and activist that you have been? No, well, that's, that's the trillion dollar question, right, for all of us. Um, I would like to just say, I think you said rest in peace. Professor David Ray Griffin is very much alive and with oh. us. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I thought that David yeah. had passed years ago. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. Um, my, my bad. <laughs> we, are, we are dedicating our Lawyers Committee event this uh, tomorrow, Saturday, September 10th, beginning at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern. And we'll be talking about how to watch that here on this show. Um, we are dedicating it to Professor David Ray Griffin and uh, Richard is also dedicating his film festival with speakers um, the next day on September 11th to Professor David Ray Griffin because of his phenomenal, um, I think he's he's working on his 14th book right now okay. on 9-11 or related to 9-11. So I just wanted to, to make no, sure. No, I'm glad you told me that. I, I that. don't even know where I came up with that. I thought several years ago he had passed. My bad. No, no, no. Uh, that was important to, uh, to set the record straight on that. No, he's very much with us. Um, uh, but anyway, we'll, we'll be talking about our dedication a little bit later. So to answer your question now, I was working for the Navy 
um, on nine before 9-11, on 9-11, and after 9-11, believe it or not, for another 11 years, I was a senior military affairs journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School here in the Monterey Peninsula of California on the central coast of California, where it was 106 yesterday, by the way, <laughs> but it's better today. Um, and so in that position, um, working for uh, the Naval Postgraduate School, which was DOD's and still is DOD's premier science, technology, and national security affairs graduate research university. So that was a very responsible, journalistic, scientific, technical position. Um, and when I arrived uh, at the gate uh, of the this military base, even though it's a full-fledged graduate university, research university, uh, it is nevertheless a military base. You have to get through the gate uh, with a, you know, armed guard. Uh, and when I got to the gate that morning, I, because of the time difference, I did not know what had happened on the East Coast. With the time difference, I guess it was 9, it was already 12 p.m. So uh, everything except the uh, the fall of World Trade Center 7 in the evening, about 5.20, had already happened, but I didn't know. So I got to the gate, and they wouldn't let me in. Um, in fact, the public affairs officer, who was my supervisor, my boss, whatever, um, was actually at the gate along with the guard. And he said, Barb, you're going to have to leave. It's only so-called uh, essential personnel. And there were only about 12 essential personnel from the Admiral on down, including the public affairs officer, who were even allowed to go into the base that morning. And I said, what happened? And he said, oh, you don't know. So I went home. And uh, I drove to my mother's home and uh, I said, turn on the TV, mom, um, we're at war. I'd been told enough at the gate by the public affairs officer. He said, well, we're at war. Now that's very interesting um, that the public affairs officer of the Naval Postgraduate School um, told me when I got to the gate that the United States was at war. Uh, how did he know that? <laughs> okay. Anyway, so I got home and I and I watched the ad nauseum fall of the towers. And uh, when I turned on the TV and my mother and brother and I watched it, um, I knew something was terribly wrong. And from that moment on, I became a researcher and activist. And the amazing thing, we don't have to go into the details, but um, I started putting out what I believed was the truth about 9-11 immediately on local uh, media, and I was not fired, I was not disciplined, and I stayed in that job as a senior military affairs journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School for another 11 years until I retired. Excellent. And Richard Gage, uh, a lot of my audience knows that you were one of the pioneers behind architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. You now have richardgage911.org. What was your initial moment of questioning 9-11? Well, I was listening to David Ray Griffin. In fact, in, um, actually, the day was March 29th, 20, 2006. He was being interviewed by Bonnie Faulkner in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I was shocked to hear him uh, talk about an alternative theory as to how the towers came down. I hadn't heard any. I mean, I was a flag-waving Reagan Republican, wanted to go out and get those bastards who did this to us in Afghanistan and in Iraq. 
So I was uh, swallowed the official narrative hook, line, and sinker. But David was talking about explosions and, and, and uh, first responders, 118 of them hearing, seeing, uh, being blown around the building by explosions. He talked about a third tower that I didn't even know uh, there was a third tower. And I, I'm an architect. I would have heard. I would thought he was crazy. I mean, yeah, this is a 47-story skyscraper that drops like a rock straight down uniformly, symmetrically into its own footprint in the afternoon of 9-11. And that's, that's shocking. It looks exactly like a controlled demolition as I went and saw him the next day. Uh, he was he was in a packed theater at the Grand Lake Theater in Oakland. I couldn't even get in. I had to go home and watch on the live stream. I did research. I assembled a PowerPoint, which I'd never done before. I took it to the firm of architects that I worked for. All 15 of them agreed uh, after months of discussing this. I, they, they, I bribed them. I, they, they, they had to come in and get free pizza. But uh, after looking at the evidence, all of them agreed, yeah, this is, this is a controlled demolition. Uh, these are, All three of these are, you, we got to have a real investigation. So that was my first 15 architects and engineers uh, for 9-11 Truth. Now there are 3,500 architects and engineers signed on to the petition over at AE 9-11 Truth. And uh, we're, uh, I'm now separated. My wife and I work uh, very uh, uh, hard together now to get out. Uh, now 75 podcasts. Uh, we've got five interviews a day this season. I've never had so many uh, calls for interviews. We just did the Stu Peters show, which was a, an exceptional opportunity to reach many, many millions of people. So uh, we're on the, the war path still. And then, yes, we do have a an important uh, set of events uh, on all sides here coming up September 10th and 11th to talk about later, too. So before we get into those events that are coming up literally tomorrow and on the 21st anniversary, I want to ask Mick, where are we legally? Because there have been many cases over the years, uh, many of them championed by family members of people who were lost on 9-11. What's going on on the legal front, Mick? Oh, we lost his audio. Good. All right. Hopefully he'll be right back on, guys. Give us one moment. While we wait on... Oh, yep, yeah, go ahead, Mick. No, that was me. Oh, no. Okay, so Mick is still not there. Uh, Mick, just jump in when your audio gets back on. I'm not quite sure what happened there. But but let's let's talk about those uh, those events that are coming up. We still don't hear you, Mick. Go ahead, Richard. Okay, I am, I'm back oh, now. There we are. There yes. Is. There you go. Go ahead, Mick. Talk so, about the legal right, aspects. A little technical in transit thing. So um, short version, we have filed, the lawyers committee has filed several federal lawsuits. Three were under the Freedom of Information Act uh, to try to get documents regarding the 9-11 attacks from federal agencies. We did file a lawsuit in New York related to our grand jury petition. You may know, Jason, that we submitted a detailed uh, analysis of the evidence of demolition to the special grand jury in the federal special grand jury in New York. However, it doesn't seem to have made its way to the actual grand jurors. The U.S. attorney who we sent it to to provide to the grand jurors has chosen, it appears, to not deliver it. So we sued the U.S. attorney over that. That led to a district court decision that several family members who joined us 
some first responders who joined us and architects and engineers and the lawyers committee that none of us had legal standing to sue. They didn't, the court didn't decide we were wrong about the duty of the U.S. attorney to deliver our petition to the grand jurors. Uh, the court just said we didn't have a right to litigate it. <clears throat> so we appealed to the Court of Appeals, the U.S. Court of Appeals, uh, Second Circuit. Uh, recently, that court decided we didn't have standing. And so we are now thinking about bringing that case to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, there's also an option to bring it back to the Second Circuit for rehearing. So that is a decision we hope to get feedback from the public on during our events coming up. So to help us make, let's make go back good. to the standing aspect, because it must be frustrating okay. that yeah. you're constantly submitting valid evidence to these court systems. And when they tell you that you don't have standing, that means they don't even have to look at the evidence, correct? Right. Yeah, yeah, I'm afraid so. And it is it is frustrating, Jason. Uh, that's a bit of an understatement. And it's, you know, we're doing this on behalf of the families and the first responders. And I can't tell you how frustrating it is for me as a lawyer to not allow those folks to have their day in court after all they suffered from these tragic events. The court is wrong, by the way, on the standing issue. Uh, family members have standing, first responders have standing, even the nonprofits involved have standing. Just to give you, I guess, the extreme example, in the case we were just talking about, we petitioned the grand jury itself. We didn't just petition the U.S. attorney. Our petition was addressed to the grand jury under the First Amendment. It's a uh, you know one of those petition for redress types of things that we all learn in civics class. We have a right to do, or we thought we had a right to do in the U.S. Um, and so what the court decided was even under our First Amendment claim, which was simply, look, the U.S. attorney is obstructing the exercise of our rights to petition a government entity, the grand jury. Uh, the court basically said, unless you're harmed in some special way beyond the interference with your First Amendment right, you don't have standing. And that's basically what the Second Circuit just said. And it's, it's completely wrong. It's wrong as a matter of law and it's uh, unconstitutional and it's a very disturbing precedent, which we hope will be reversed. But, um, you know, your point about it being frustrating is a bit of an understatement. We have had that same problem. We did bring a lawsuit in, in the District of Columbia federal court. We sued the FBI. And I don't know if you remember, Jason, there was a second 9-11 commission. People remember the first one. The second one was the 9-11 Review Commission. It was chaired by Ed Meese. It was done in the 2013-2015 timeframe. And Congress had asked the FBI to look at all the 9-11 evidence, including all the evidence that the first commission did not address. And that was, a, a, in our view, a statutory mandate from Congress. So the, so the FBI created this commission, this new one, pretended to look at the evidence, basically ignored all the demolition evidence and several other categories of evidence. And so we sued to force them to do what Congress asked the FBI to do. And the court in that case also said we did not have standing. And their reasoning in that case was that the Congress didn't put the requirement for a public report into the actual statute. They just put it in legislative history. So we thought we thought we had solved that problem, even though it's, you know, I, I, we didn't agree with the court. But when we brought the New York case, the grand jury case we were talking about, we had it. Uh, well, I, I should back up. There's another case that I'm bringing for the architects and engineers. So let me give you the short version on standing and let you 
go ahead with Richard and Barb, or we can tell you more about the lawsuits if you want. But to show you how bad it's gotten on the standing, when architects and engineers sued NIST on their new lawsuit uh, to get corrected, the World Trade Center 7 report, which was you know basically a sham, uh, concluding that fires brought Building 7 down, even though it hadn't been hit by an airplane. And if you watch Building 7 fall down, you can see what Richard just described, which is it's just a classic controlled demolition. So uh, in that lawsuit, we have a federal statute, the National Construction Safety Team Act, and it requires NIST to issue a public report. So unlike in our prior case, in the FBI case, here we have Congress putting into a statute a requirement for a public report explicitly, and that should have solved the standing problem uh, even for a skeptical court. But in this case, the court said, no, that even that was not enough. And so now that's being appealed to the D.C. Circuit. So there's more I can tell you about the lawsuits, but just, uh, I mean, we haven't given up. We're still proceeding on several fronts. And we may be, we may, we're, we're going to be asking for feedback in our anniversary event on whether we should go with a major new lawsuit, which is really focused on government cover-up. But you can ask me about that when you're ready. Well, let, let's talk about this because the court system seems so corrupted that we have to continue to bring this information to the court of public opinion. And I just want to shout out my old uh, film partner, Dylan Avery, who I did Loose Change with for putting out in the last couple of years, uh, both Unspeakable and then the documentary about the Fairbanks, Alaska study, because not only are they well produced, they're concise, they show, uh, you know, a plethora of evidence that we've been lied to. And you guys are continuing to bring that evidence with these events and film festivals. Richard, Barbara, whoever wants to take it away, what do you have coming up in the next two days and why is it important? Well, let's go uh, in chronological order. Barb, you want to take the September 10th event tomorrow? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> okay, so um, uh, Richard and the Lawyers Committee have two great events coming up. I'm going to tell you about the first one which is tomorrow, and that's the Lawyers Committee event. Richard's on the board, we're all on the board, of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. And uh, you can learn all about it and sign up real quick by going to our website, which is LC, that's uh, Larry Charlie, so LCFOR911.org, LCFOR911.org. There, Jason has uh, our website up on the screen. And um, on the homepage, it'll be really easy to find how to register. It's a register button. So click on that and you just uh, give us uh, plug in your email address and you will get a link tomorrow morning before well before the event, Saturday morning, September 10th, um, to join the Zoom. So it will be a Zoom online live free event. And uh, we've got very exciting speakers. We have a number of speakers, of course, from the Lawyers Committee Board, uh, speaking about our individual expertise and also about what the Lawyers Committee as an organization is doing. Um, and then we have um, very exciting guest speakers, including world famous attorney Daniel Sheehan, who is on the Lawyers Committee Advisory Committee. And he's going to be speaking on what it takes to win historic cases. Um, which will be very exciting. And we also have Christopher Goya. I'm sure that your listeners, Jason, know all about Chris. Um, he is a passionate 9-11 truth advocate, former New York firefighter and New York 
uh, area commissioner, uh, fire commissioner, and he will be speaking. And also Eric Lawyer, who is the founder of Firefighters for 9-11 Truth, will be speaking. But I think most importantly, as Mick Harrison, our litigation director, mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago, um, we are going to have an interactive session after the presentations by the speakers. We're going to have an interactive session with our viewers um, the, by that time, our viewers will have heard from Mick and some of the others of us about where we are legally, which Mick touched on here in this show. And he's going to go into a bit more detail, I'm sure, so that people will understand the context. And then at the end of our of our symposium, which is only four hours long, so you can you know hang in there for the whole thing, it'll be very informative and historic. Um, the uh, viewers will be given a chance, once you've registered and get the link tomorrow morning, you'll be given a chance to weigh in on where you think, individually, um, you think we should be going, because you will have heard some of the options, or probably all of the options from Mick. So that's really an important part, and at the very end, we're going to have Q's and A's for our viewers. So um, it's an exciting event, again, to register and get the link tomorrow morning after you've registered on our website. Go to LC. FOR911.org as soon as you can. And then, Richard, what do we have coming up on the 9-11 anniversary itself? Well, it's a 9-11 Truth Film Festival. And uh, uh, this is uh, going to be an opportunity for everybody to watch some great films and listen to some incredible speakers. We will be dedicating our event also to the honor of David Ray Griffin, who has let the 9-11 Truth Movement know that he is indeed uh, only has a few months to live. So <laughs> he is still with us, but we don't know for how long. And we wanted to take the opportunity to... Uh, honor him with some passages from his work, uh, talking about his, his books, bringing on his right-hand person, Elizabeth Woodworth, uh, who, along with David, created the 9-11 Consensus Panel. So 911consensus.org is where there are a couple of dozen points of consensus reached by a panel of 21 experts on the best 9-11 evidence. So she'll be walking through that uh, early. We will also have our own Mick Harrison there to talk in more detail about the legal uh, struggles and opportunities and victories that we've had, and what and uh, and, and uh, invite uh, comment also. So in the afternoon, we have James Corbett bringing uh, to bear a series of of. Uh, documentaries that he made, False Flag, The Secret History of Al-Qaeda. There's three parts. The The second part we'll be showing, the first part we're going to encourage our, our uh, supporters to watch before the film festival, and then James is going to premiere, the world premiere of his third part. It's about Osama bin Laden uh, and what really happened to him in, in the last... Uh, several years. Was it according to the official narrative where the SEAL team uh, got in there? Well, we'll find out. Uh, probably not. Um, but uh, th this series of speakers and films will bring us all closer together with opportunities to comment in real time and, uh, and, and have an interactive uh, event as well. So that's uh, pretty exciting uh, for us. Now, I'll be talking in that 
uh, on September 11th, begins at, by the way, 10 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, I'll be updating everybody about this incredible film we're making, 9-11 Crime Scene to Courtroom, where Mick and I are featured bringing together the evidence, the 60 exhibits that he is, was talking about having submitted uh, for a special grand jury investigation. I'll be walking the grand jurors through those exhibits. We'll, this is the most comprehensive body of World Trade Center evidence ever compiled. And we'll be looking right into the eyes of the grand jurors. And Mick will be talking to them about what this evidence means. What, what, uh, how should they be treating it? What are their opportunities and their obligations as a grand jury uh, to subpoena witnesses uh, to get more? Because they're, they're an investigative body. So uh, who are persons of material interest they might uh, uh, ask questions of? So the, those, that will all be filmed in the next couple of months. And this is a fundraiser to create the necessary funds for that film. It's a $19,000 fundraiser. Barb, uh, the LC 9-11 event uh, tomorrow is also a fundraiser. Do you want to tell uh, yes, yes, about that? Thanks for the cue on that. <laughs> also, I, I don't know if I mentioned that our, our Lawyers Committee event, free online, uh, begins tomorrow, uh, September 10th at uh, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern, and we'll go for approximately four hours. Um, so I'm not sure I gave the time, but um, yes, it is free. Uh, you do have to uh, go to our uh, homepage, lc4911.org, uh, and sign up to get the link tomorrow morning. Um, but we are asking for your generous donation. Um, this is a, as you're going to hear more uh, in this show, probably a bit, but a lot tomorrow uh, at our Lawyers Committee event. This is a real turning point moment for us. We've got some really serious decisions as to whether to go to the Supreme Court. Um, this is our biggest case. Uh, it is our uh, our World Trade Center 1, 2, and 7 grand, uh, grand jury petition and evidentiary exhibits case. Uh, and we have been doing this for years. Um, and uh, we have been kept, uh, the gatekeepers have kept us out. And the, the question is, uh, do we do something else as well? Um, or do we... Uh, or can we go to the Supreme Court? That's a really significant decision and it will it will take a lot of funding no matter what we decide. Um, so we're at a real financial turning point. We're at a real historical turning point. So we definitely need your contributions. So just go to lcfor911.org. You can donate now. You can donate anytime. Um, uh, before, during the event, tomorrow, after the event, we really need your help. And we encourage that, especially because we're also at a societal turning point where 9-11 yeah. truth was certainly smeared in its heydays and they broke out the debunkers. And now we've seen an evolution to fact checkers and the age of, quote unquote, misinformation and disinformation. And we're seeing media talking heads now acting as though questioning 9-11 is on a criminal level. How do we combat that aspect of this, Mick? Because I'm sure you're hearing those echoes more and more as you try to take this to the court system. Well, you know, it's an interesting uh, question, Jason, because the courts have dealt with us professionally 
we haven't been accused of being wild-eyed conspiracy theorists by any judge yet, and I don't expect that to happen. Uh, we have been uh, kept out of court on this threshold standing issue, and that is a solvable legal problem. It's solvable in a couple of ways. <clears throat> it's just the media and some members of the public who have been so propagandized for so many years to think of anyone who questions the official story as being a lunatic. <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, there, there are millions of us in the category of those who question the official story. I'm pretty sure we're not all lunatics. And, um, you know, our approach at the Lawyers Committee has just been to focus on the evidence and apply the law to it. So we don't speculate. We don't really theorize that much. We just investigate, document, and litigate. And there's not much that's not credible about that approach. I mean, we can support our position much more thoroughly than the government can support the government's position. So it's which shows why the standing issue is so important. Because once we cut through that threshold obstacle of the legal right to sue, we're going to be able to really make the case on the merits. You know, with the evidence Richard has articulated, that Barb has investigated, that our colleagues have put together, including... David Ray Griffin, Kevin Ryan, Niels Herrick, we could go, go down the list, architects and engineers. The case is there. I mean, that evidence is dispositive on demolition. It's not just a nice theory. You know, we can prove it. So the standing issue is important. Now, just so members who might be watching this, members of 9-11 of families or first responders don't get the wrong impression the types of lawsuits we, the Lawyers Committee has brought so far have been based on federal statutes. There are other rights to sue, and a, a big example of that is the lawsuit against the Saudi entities by the 9-11 families in New York. That lawsuit has not been dismissed for lack of standing, nor will it be. It is proceeding, and the reason is anytime you have a victim, a plaintiff who's been harmed personally, uh, either financially or with their health, or has lost a family member, uh, the courts will recognize that standing if they're suing for money damages or for some type of injunctive relief to cure the harm. That's a little different type of case than the statutory enforcement case that we've been bringing. Now, it takes a lot more money to bring that type of large-scale case for damages like is happening against the Saudis. We are, however, contemplating, and we're going to be asking the public for their feedback and their support tomorrow we are contemplating, you know, initiating a case like that based on government cover-up that would be for family members and first responders, and it would be for money damages and for injunctive relief related to harm that they have suffered personally. There will not be a standing obstacle in that case. It, it simply will not be dismissed on standing. So, you know, the courts will have to deal with the merits of that case. The question for us is, can we afford to do it? Uh, right now, the answer is no. We hope to get enough support to do it. It's going to take a major funder. You know, Rich is talking about maybe raising $20,000 for the film project. Uh, but, you know, to do this lawsuit, we probably are going to raise several hundred thousand dollars if we're going to do it. If not, we're going to need to get some major law firm partners to do it. So that's in the works, and we'll be talking more about it. Um, Vic, could you, could you, um, you know, uh, I just like to make the comment that the reason, in my opinion, this is a personal opinion, not by the lawyers committee, but it's my personal opinion that the reason that the government, that the courts uh, have not allowed us in the courthouse door is precisely because we can prove our case. Um, 
that's my personal opinion. I, I understand that point of view, Barb. And yeah. Um, yeah, you should know, Jason, it's not just 9-11 advocates that are being kept out of court on the standing obstacle. There was a New York Times um, article a couple of years ago. It was focused on other issues like abortion and some other issues. A lot of public interest advocates have been shut out of court on the standing grounds. It's the New York Times actually used the phrase weaponizing the standing doctrine. Well, we can only look to the elections, and that was utilized in many of the cases, both state and the actual Supreme Court, where these, uh, you know, All right, those Silverstein, the election, go ahead and pull it. Do that on you. All right, so we're back. We're back. Um, <clears throat> I left those uh, promotions for things that happened yesterday and today in there because I'm thinking people are now interested. They might want to see the replay of those events. And uh, as you guys noticed, I borrowed Burmese's shirt during that clip. He's he's such a good friend. He'll give you the shirt off his back. I wanted to introduce you guys to some 9-11 evidence and artifacts. And uh, I wanted to do a hat tip to David Ray Griffin. But before we do that, I mentioned, because you know this show is about long attention spans, Closing those open loops from four hours ago seems kind of important before we move on. So I wanted to show you this book. Now, when I was a kid, this book was on the bookshelf at my grandparents' house. It's published by the Beaver County Times, my hometown newspaper. And I read it a bunch when I was a kid because this was a big deal in culture that uh, President Kennedy had passed away. So as I was... I, and I, I pulled this out so I could show you this next book, right? And so I could show you this next magazine, these artifacts, evidence. And <clears throat> I opened it up because I haven't opened this book <laughs> since I was like, I don't know, really young, uh, eight years old, let's say, right? And I opened the book and there's a bunch of news clippings in here. I was like, okay, news clippings. And I flipped back to the front and there's uh, there's a poem. That's interesting. You should read it, screen capture that, but that's not the point. And there's this postcard from family, but I saw this picture of my grandfather with my dad. And I was like, what's going on here? And it says, uh, the winner above is Mr. Harry Grove, his wife, Elizabeth, and their son, Buster. <laughs> that's my dad's nickname. Uh, Mr. Grove successfully opened one of the locks and his family has selected a cedar chest. So he won some prize for doing some, uh, you know, rednecks and hicks, you always have these uh these games. You gotta figure it out. How does it go together? How's it come apart? You got these rings linked together. How you know, serious like intelligence tests for rednecks back then. Anyway, this was puzzle uh, games. Yeah. yeah, puzzle games, puzzle games. There you go. That's a more respectful way to say it. Yeah. So this was one of my first encounters with the death of President Kennedy. They didn't have VCRs back then. Live TV was talking about like you know, current events. So my touch with history, along with these encyclopedias that I have down here uh, on the topic Kennedy was uh, the, this book, right? And with this book, I also now have in my collection, this series of books, you know what this is? This is the hearings before the president's commission on the assassination of president Kennedy. This is volume. Can you read Roman numerals, Tony? 19. Yeah, volume 19. So the exhibits, the testimony, everything, I got the whole set. It's like an encyclopedia, but it's just on Kennedy. And then along with those artifacts, 
I found this little item. After JFK was killed and after MLK was killed, RFK was killed. Right. And he was shot from behind. And Sir Han, Sir Han was in front of him. Who's next as the cult of violence spreads? Wow. History. History is kind of mind-blowing, right? So now, because no one ever solved those crimes, we've got to deal with crimes like this. New Pearl Harbor, disturbing questions about the Bush administration, 9-11. David Ray Griffin, sorry to hear that he's going to pass soon. Apparently, he's got a terminal illness, but he was one of the first contributing authors. Now, David Ray Griffin traditionally is a professor of theology, and I believe that uh, Ke Kevin Barrett, who did the uh, the Muslims for 9-11 Truth uh, movement, he did his PhD on David Ray Griffin's work, right? So he's an influential writer. He happened to notice some irregularities, and he wrote this book, The New Pearl Harbor. I was sorry to hear. Well, first, I was shocked to hear Jason say that he passed. I was like, I didn't know he died. Yeah, and that one Barbara, was, I agree. Yeah. And Barbara, bless her soul, you know, she taps in. She waited. She didn't interrupt. She waited, let the other guy finish his whole thing. She's like, hey, there's this fact that's not fact yet. And then Gage puts it in context later. And he's like, well, I, you know, our conferences, you might have gotten that idea, Jason, because our conferences are dedicated to the memory of David Griffin. So Jason assumed that he had passed away, but really he's just probably going to pass away in the next couple months, which is tragic, but he is not dying with his music inside him. He put it outside of him for other people to learn from. I don't agree with everything he had to say, but in a world where nobody else was talking about this, yeah, he's a pioneer, then, man. Yeah. Look, it's like Terrence McKenna back in the day. They, he was a pioneer for that type of whatever he got wrong. You know, got to appreciate those this, that came before. I have this artifact someplace. Uh, I, I don't mention it often. I'm sure I might have mentioned it in the past. I'm not exactly proud of this artifact, but it's a, it's a sign of the journey. There was a point where I saw the move because I had witnessed some things. I'm trying to get a message out there. Who in our society has a platform of free speech and can say these types of things? I watched the movie, The Pupil versus Larry Flint. And I was like, oh, I can send it to Larry Flint. Tony, if oh, you know the story, don't, I, don't spoil I, it. I'm going to put myself on mute. Oh, good. So, uh, so I get this idea. I'm going to pitch Larry Flint on publishing an alternative theory to 9-11. What happened based on evidence that leads to corporations who actually did this shit. And with my background, I was like, well, you just can't send it one place. You got to find out like, you know send it several places it's called circle of influence so you don't just send it to the one person you send it to like in this case larry flint has a brother so i sent them both like these letters right i get this cease and desist from larry flint and his brother jimmy flint maybe uh their attorneys so i have a legit cease and desist now to my credit they already had an open lawsuit against donald rumsfeld about similar stuff so it wasn't just that they had a free speech platform where this news could get out, but they already had litigation against this guy. And I was like, maybe this information will help them with the lawsuit. Anyway, after a cease and desist from his attorneys, guess what I did? I ceased and I desisted and I sat and I thought, well, you know, public, the future is not going to know this information anytime soon. But then a year later, 
Penthouse Magazine, owned by Larry Flint, published a 9-11 comparative narrative. Like give you give public, give the public something to compare to the the official story. And what did he use for that? He used this book, which was solid enough ground at that time. I wasn't a published author, but David Ray Griffin got he got this book into print. And then they were able to write an article on it. And it kind of like broke down a wall in society. It hadn't been published by a respectable journal. I mean, Penthouse is far from that. But the freedom of speech aspect, the fact that Flint had a platform, that it did get out there afterwards. I found that semi-encouraging, though I was a little bit like, what the fuck, dude? (laughs) How many other people did you send it to? Uh, He's the only one I got a cease and desist from. How about that? Maybe 100, 150 people, like people yeah. I thought who might be able to speak with Parhesia, not about yes. my story, but about the corporate connections and the connections yeah. that everyone except 18 hijackers that was going on. Yeah. Right. So I remember you telling me in the number of individuals that you were sending it to and how sort of. Uh, and I would send it overnight FedEx. It wasn't yeah. like I'm sending in the mail oh, with, super a, with a stamp. It was super professional because yeah. I'd come out of the corporate world knowing how to reach out and contact uh, executives who don't want you to like get on their schedule. If you can learn what how was to that do like that, for it's you? a powerful skill. Like, cause I mean, that had to be, I mean, the way you described you were dismayed and sort of, I mean, the sort of metaphorical wind was knocked out of you for those early years in regards to, cause I mean, you got rejected every time. One of the guys I worked with who was later a roommate, but uh, at the time of 9-11, we were just buddies. I was with him when we saw the towers fall. His uncle was a United States Senator. I said, I'm going to send this evidence to your uncle, the Senator. <laughs> and uh, like I, the Senator said, here's the address to send it to. I sent the package. Never heard anything after that. Because it's inconvenient to the narrative. And even if you are somebody in office who wants to bring light to this, it's like, what benefit are you going to get from going up against? Right. He'll be sacrificed. It's, I mean, metaphorically, like right, your, right, right. your career is going to be destroyed. Yeah, you're, you're not going to go. And you're going to be demonized, so, ostracized from society, so forth and so on. Now the party gets serious because, oh, wait, wait, one more part from the uh, prior clip. Uh, Burmis was uh, talking also to Richard Gage. I got some of my earliest film experience with Richard Gage. I was a nascent newbie cinematographer. I could set up cameras. I could set up some lights and microphones. Good. And uh, it was about 2008. And I got the, I got word that Richard Gage was speaking at MIT. And I was like, do you guys have someone to film it? And they were like, no, I'm like, I'm your guy. I drove by myself to Boston to go to MIT, found the place, carry all my equipment in there. I got three or four cameras. I got microphones. I got a light. We're going to capture whatever this guy has to say. I've never heard really like his whole presentation. And at the beginning of the presentation, so the end result was I I sent this footage to Gage. So they had it a long time ago, but the beginning of the presentation, it's a, like a whole classroom full of adults from like MIT and surrounding area in Boston, right? Educated adults. At the beginning, he says, who believes the official story of 9-11? Everyone raises their hand. At the end of his presentation, and I shit you not, I'm not exaggerating, who believes the official story of 9-11? Not one person raised their hand. And then I went with him to, uh, they had an ARC AIA convention there, and so we did some filming uh, there. And that was like 
it was it was a good experience for me because I had to know how to set up the cameras, the lights, the microphones, keep all the tapes. Because back then it wasn't digital. It was like I had to switch tapes and like cameras had to be plugged into the wall and stuff, man. You didn't have any iPhones or anything. And uh, I remember like thinking during it, like, this is tough. But afterwards, after I got the end result, I'm like, this is a really good skill to have because people need to hear what they need to hear what Gage had to say back then. They still do today. And he's he's excellent at what he does. And that's been uh doing math now 12 years 12 years all right so he's he's solid so now let me get to the serious part in preparation for the 9 11 uh annual live stream where we do a 12 24 hour live stream looking for new fresher better clips anything we've missed that we need to add into it because basically it's a 24 hour live stream of you've been lied to for 20 years at this point and here's all the contradictory evidence that you might consider weighing against the cartoonist story right i went over a book tv debate between webster tarpley who wrote this book uh 9-11 synthetic terror and a journalist named jonathan k and if you watch all the way through that i'm not going to make you do that here's the book i'll put it on screen if you watch through that there's a question from the audience and the question of the audience goes something like this Part of science and truth and finding facts has to do with if you have a hypothesis, you have to show what's the falsifiable aspect, right? Can you explain this in better words than I can, Tony? Yeah, sure. So the idea is, I think this comes from Richard Feynman. So where he came up with excellent this lecturer Feynman. Mm-hmm. I got a ton of his books. He's a physics lecturer in California. In the yeah, 1960s. his he's a he's a sort of a positivist if i remember correctly um but that's right you know, he had a great personality and he's funny and that's yeah. necessary if you want to teach physics right yeah that, or at least become a a figurehead or a cultural icon in that realm carl sagan's the only one hey, that that Guevara until, like, became an icon and he wasn't even funny dude so all he had to do is get shot by felix rodriguez yeah, that's true but that's another story that's true um that points to iran contra you follow that 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 over there the we're Nicaragua, talking about the nicaraguan right trail to pay for play a little bit some some of that pure pure get some of that arm yeah so you want to falsify the hypothesis so basically. the idea like he believed that you should be able to create a um a scientific experiment that if it shows what your hypothesis you hypothesized it would show you want to then try to set up other experiments that actually falsify your and you tra- and so you call this game theory. In other words, come up with every potential possible thing that could that you could be, imagine that, to try to falsify what you've actually been able to prove through your hypothesis and your experimentation. And at the end of that, you get to a point where it's like, well, this is the only thing left. It's sort of almost in a way like a retroductive logic, or apophatic logic, and metaphysics, or for those who are used to negative logic. You're so how do you find a needle in a haystack? Where you burn down the haystack, right? And you find the needle, and so it's it's that sort of like backwards methodology, not backwards. That's in funny because I would just use magnet, but it's different. That's, that's different a folks. much better. That's a much better way of doing it. Yes, <laughs> but the idea is how 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 much can we, can we back into it instead of doing it from the positive? What can we assert? What qualities, attributes? We do sort of the other way, and this this this. And, but you but you in this capacity, you're backing into it by trying to falsify what you've actually been able to sort of prove. And this comes to the issue in science in general is that. There's no like the repeatability in science is a massive issue. Many of the great studies have not been repeated. This has been something that's been noted. And if you can't repeat it, you know, this is a problem. 
and that you don't it does not actually functionally work as a theory of what you're trying to describe as the phenomenon. So in 9/11, you need to go out as if you're talking about thermite or you're talking about you know, explode the various types of explosives or micronukes or whatever, you know, direct energy weapons, you need to go out and falsify, you need to go up and first prove your hypothesis or show that there is some sort of variable that's in play and then try to disprove it by throwing sure. as many different types of experiments at it as possible. All right. So here's the nuance to it. <clears throat> I'll cut to the chase, make sure we don't have to like play the clips for you because the clips take a long time. Yeah. Audience member says, Hey, if you have this theory that's alternative, how do you falsify that theory to make sure you're not in uh, groupthink or, you know, like some sort of uh, bubble, right? Now, Tarpley says, I don't agree with the premise of your question. And because he does, he's, he's caught off guard by it. So his intellectual defense is like, I disagree with the premise and he wants to like move on. He talks about something else, right? But I thought about it and I was like, that's a really good question, actually. So the way I wrote it down was, 9-11 theories they're not really they're not sustainable or meaningful theories if they can't be falsifiable right like if no matter what the evidence is you're going to say false flag you're going to say this you're going to say this no matter what the evidence is you have predetermined outcomes then it's bullshit however and that's the point it's because of confirm i'm sorry to cut you off confirmation me, it's, bias it's we confirmate that we're right. all predisposed to okay. it's not just a fallacy we, it's a we cognitive predisposition we don't want to be predisposed to confirmation bias or if we are we want to have methods to bring that back into balance right so i thought about that question and i thought what would believing the official story look like like if you want me to believe the official story, what do I need? What are my requirements? Because their argument is Jonathan Kay's argument was it'll never be good enough for you to accept what happens. Because they all think you like conspiracy theorists or wishful, like they this is the way they want the world to be. That's a bunch of bullshit. Yeah, it's sort of castles in the sky. That's a rationalism <laughs> where they you haven't start done with their deduction. reading, like Tucker right. said. They haven't right. done their reading, they dismissed it as conspiracy theory. Right. All right. So if what would 9-11, the official story, look like not to be something other than factual and actual? Well, first off, it would look like uh, we have a media that actually reports and investigates and facts, right? It would look like uh, no exclusion of relevant evidence. It would look like no contradictions in the story. It would look like no conflict of interest. Like Bush and the Bin Laden family being in business for 30 years prior to the event and not, not being brought up in the conversation or in the 9-11 commission report where he testified with his buddy, Big Dick Cheney, not under oath and under secret room where they destroy the notes afterwards. So it wouldn't have things like this. Uh, no limit to the investigations budget. They gave him like $3 million to investigate, bro. Come on, man. Are you really trying to get to the bottom of what happened? Or is that just like the veneer you need to spread your public myth? Uh, and oh, by the way, when people fuck up and thousands of Americans burn to death, people get fired in a world where it's not a conspiracy. So ritual sacrifice, anybody? That's what that was. 9-11 as well like just yeah. the, the 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 date itself historically maybe we should play the was it Andrade roy am i saying that correctly when i mentioned it earlier? i mean this is the i whole mean i could rant history. like i could do this rant for two hours but yeah. an official story would also look like uh the cia not meeting with bin laden in dubai in july 2001 so the official story being like actual and factual probably wouldn't include stuff like that that uh reference by the way is le figaro it's a French newspaper. If you don't speak French, you probably didn't read it. Uh, it would also look like 
the Saudi Royals and Bin Laden group not investing in the Carlisle group, which is tied to BCCI and Iran-Contra, which is also partners with the H.W. Bush and the Bin Ladens and the Bushes and the Carlisles, they were having a meeting with Frank Carlucci in D.C. on the morning of 9-11 after H.W. Bush spent the night in the White House. So the official story being true wouldn't have inconvenient facts like that. Uh, also, uh, being partnered up with the Al-Qaeda over there in Yemen right now, the official story being true probably wouldn't have us being really partnered up with the real people who attacked us. But if Al-Qaeda is a proxy force groomed and prepared by MI6 and CIA, it would make total sense that Anglo-American operations for genocide in Yemen would be working together with their creation to do that against the Houthis. So just now saying, the, Jonathan the K. Is... at all, because it was hosted by David Frum, fucking mm. neocon dude, right? Yeah. So that, that <laughs> I mean, whole thing was so shady when you were telling me the stories about but some Tarpley of the people could have had that a better, you were confront- better answer. Is what I'm saying, and that we can't. Well, and, and it doesn't look like when you look at what falsifies the the conspiracy theories that shit didn't happen that's an unreality what did happen is all these people and 46 drills of flying in what's it say now with 46 drills of 9-11 they never imagined using planes as weapons but they fucking drilled for it just like they did with event 201 before covid right right and i didn't even open the cover on this book yet you know it's interesting you pointed out first of all that exercise you just conducted even though it's based on pure deduction uh falsifies the what evidence has them presented because it essentially shows that like what has been presented with a statement statements of fact are contradicted and therefore unfortunately that can there has to be something else there now that's not what falsifiability is it's more specific than that but as an analogy as a loose metaphor it works now i do want to correct myself very quickly it was carl popper um he was a pod that's why i was like positivist rich i think richard Feynman was as well but popper was the um, was the initiator of this Popper, term. on the other hand, wasn't funny. No, no. Par- Popper is uh, that's uh, he's an interesting fellow. Um, I'll just read this. Um, he proposed it as the cornerstone of a solution to both the problem of induction and the problem of demarcation. The theory of hypothesis is falsifiable or refutable if it can be logically contradicted. As I just pointed out with what you did, you contradicted all the 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 official narratives, the official talking points and statements of art of that are a fact that were not fact. Anyways, back to what was being said here. I called out their bullshit. Exactly. If it can be logically contradicted by an empirical test that can potentially be executed with existing technologies. Popper insisted that as a logical criterion, it is distinct from the related concept capacity to be proven wrong. That's a whole thing. So the point is you try to falsify what you want to believe. It's a way to combat cognitive uh, bias. And you know what else I did to combat my cognitive dissonance on the situation? I went and sat in front of people who worked at NIST. So we interviewed when was a, math- that? a mathematician who worked at NIST, a whistleblower okay. named Peter Ketchum. Mm. I did that filming also for architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. My buddy John, my buddy Nick and I, we go into the city. Of course, my car broke down on the way, but we we rolled. And I think Nick changed the starter of my Jeep in the parking garage while we were in Long Island at the guy's offices who made the American ruling class, John Kirby. And while we're there, uh, we interviewed Peter Ketchum and he describes first off, he's like, Oh yeah. NIST didn't use any actual evidence to make their model. And, uh, when he actually went through their model, he realized it was a bunch of bullshit. And, uh, yeah. So 
that footage is out there. AE 911 Truth has that someplace. It's an hour long interview we did with Peter Ketchum from NIST. And also, since I'm mentioning American ruling class, uh, sad passing of Barbara Ehrenreich, who is a, a major player in the American ruling class film by John Kirby. Sorry to hear that all these great minds are passing, but it passes the torch to us. We have to carry on their knowledge. We have to understand what's relevant to the situation we're facing. And in this case, synthetic terror made in the USA. I don't think it's just made in the USA. I mean, he's got MI6 and stuff in here. Uh, he's got other countries involved, maybe the Mossad, but um, I'm, I, you know, it's a 500 page book. I just wanted to show you a couple, couple parts I thought was interesting. He does cover Imad Salem and the world trade center, 1993 bombing in this book. These are some reference books. If you're interested in learning more about nine 11, if you didn't ever think there was a conspiracy going on, uh, you can learn about the bin Laden family working with MI6 and CIA got a couple other good references for that uh al-qaeda and londonistan right mazzini marx bin laden (laughs) all the great enemies of america have worked look he has mazzini holy shit yeah of course dude wow good for him yeah Uh, so i would argue that real quick um talking about tarpley the reason why he would take rejection to that is tarpley tarpley comes from a philosophic tradition of German idealism through the yeah, Linden Schiller Rouge, Institute, Schiller Institute. Right. exactly, yeah. and so and the problem with that is they are have and like rightfully so. I've I've lamented and critiqued positivism, but there is a there is a value in some of the arguments they put forth in regards to falsifiability and empirical tests. It's just that their their ultimate conclusion about the nature of reality are incorrect because they they're indeterminous. Anyways, so uh, this book arrived this morning. I read it this afternoon. I got to this page 226, and I think I think this is the first time I've I've seen somebody write about this. Though uh, I was aware of this situation because I saw it firsthand, so it's interesting to know that people also picked up later on uh, what happens in the footage that people aren't focused on because it's like while everyone's looking up at the towers on fire, uh, there's a little building called World Trade Center Six. It's a customs house. And uh, it had some explosions go off right at the same time. Apparently, according to this, let me re- let me read it into the record here. Uh, can I get it larger? Here we go. CNN broadcast the image of smoke rising up from street level near the base of Building Six, the Customs House. This video footage had originated at 9:04, about one minute after United Flight 175 struck the South Tower. Remember that the WTC-6 was on the north side of the North Tower. So any explosion, any explosions there cannot be regarded as ha- having been generated by the impact of the South Tower. That's brilliant. I realized that too. That thing up there blowing up and this thing here flashing next to me, they're way far apart. And with this other thing already up there on fire, like a bad birthday candle that won't go out, that's when I panicked, but that's not the most surprising thing I saw out of this book. Uh, he's got a lot of other good evidence in here. A lot of good evidence on the insider trading, uh, other aspects of the insurance fraud. Where's one here? I thought this would impress you, Tony. Let's see. There's one here. Oh, there's a World Trade Center emergency drill for computer specialists and consultants. This exercise was held in the World Trade Center South Tower in the 97th floor offices of Fiduciary Trust Mm. at 8 a.m. on 9-11. Among those present were computer specialists from Oracle Corporation of California. Six consultants were reported killed. Well, that's interesting, too, because Oracle 
started as a CIA project. Yeah, I was going to say real quick, can we, if day. we can talk about that just very yeah. quickly. James Hesus Angleton. Now that yeah. he's actually in Vedmore's article, we didn't get a chance to talk to Vedmore about um, James Hesus Angleton. His name's Jesus, but I think he preferred to go by Hesus because he didn't want the confusion. Um, but was he this, was called the yeah. Oracle, right? If I'm not yeah. mistaken, he was called the Oracle, and they he was going. He had some dementia, and they needed to capture his information in a non-paper form. So they came up with the idea for a relational database. Hmm. And uh, interesting, Mary Ellis yeah. and FTW, huh? Now. You're thinking Oracle 9-11, is there some other connection? And the DMC. answer is yes. The official story of Flight 93 is that Todd Beamer, who also worked at Oracle, overthrew and they crashed in an irrigation ditch that was there before the crash. But it looks like a plane went in there. It's an interesting geological study. We're not offering evidence of that right now. I'm just telling you where to that look. That is interesting. Page 324, Synthetic Terror by Webster Tarpley. Angel is next. The invisible government speaks. As we will show in detail in the next chapter, the most critical piece of evidence pointing toward 9-11 perpetrators was the Angel is next or Air Force One is next telephone call. Since this was the moment when the invisible government coup faction emerged from the shadows and spoke, the call was revealed by William Sapphire in the New York Times. You hear that conspiracy theorists? It's the New York Times, that, that purveyor of conspiracy theories, and confirmed in television interviews by NSC director Condoleezza Rice. Oh, well, she's just a co-author with the guy who later writes the 9-11 commission report, so I trust her too. The call was evidently an ultimatum to Bush from the coup faction to announce the war of civilizations. Well, that's a Rhodes Scholar Samuel Huntington type of reference there by blaming the attacks on bin Laden and Al-Qaeda or be liquidated. Israeli, French and Russian sources confirmed that the call was made and that it contained a series of top secret code words suggesting that the callers were highly placed within, within the United States military and intelligence bureaucracy. I just have to, and there's a reference from Inside the Bunker, New York Times, September 13th, 2001. I just have to stop for a minute. What is the cliche in American horror films? The call is coming from inside the house. Right? Sure. Oh, yeah. Although, oh, it's so iconic. I think probably the call was coming from outside the house. Now, we can talk in a minute about these E4Bs and how Brent Scowcroft was on an E4B on the runway when World Trade Center 1 blew up. He's already in the mobile continuity of government plane on the runway when world when it kicks off. Warren so Buffett convenience, you know, just, was with uh, business leaders at Offutt Air Force okay. Base where they keep the E4Bs. And this is also where Bush goes later on 9-11. Yeah. This is all coincidence and you shouldn't study it at all. By the way, some of those business leaders were Ann Tatlock from Fiduciary Trust which is on the 97th floor of World Trade Center 2. So while these guys got blown up and burned alive that day, the CEO was in Offutt Air Force Base where they keep the E-4Bs ready to go. Warren Buffett. Uh, and so, I don't know. Who's the group yeah, there's of people the Warren that has Buffett inside of... Well. Right, right. There's a special... Uh, what was, there's this like is not Or something. They had that... that um... I forget that conference that Buffett was hosting at the time. It was good. Yeah, it was called the last annual 
golf outing is what they call something it. like so, that. Yeah, yeah. some annual. non. Yeah, it was very. It was you know that's where the Stratcom advisory committee is going on, and there's Scowcroft right here. Air was airborne in a doomsday yeah. E4B aircraft. Warren Buffett and other business leaders were at office at Air Force Base ostensibly for a charity event. But that's where Bush has to flee to later that day after they make threats on his Air Force One, dude. You see? That's also from a horror movie. Do you see? Do you see? <laughs> Wasn't that the <laughs> the Anthony Hopkins one they made? Twice? Oh, Red. yeah. I mean, um, Silence of the Lambs or the no, other it's one? Red. Hannibal or something? Okay. No, that's no, Red. There's another one. It's no. called. Uh, let's see. Israeli intelligence. <clears throat> there is and, well, when you're uh, sorry. Wait. MI6 and Mossad is a big section in here. So right here, it's like yeah, yeah. NSA is GCHQ, CIA and MI6 are virtually Siamese twins sharing vital organs. They're controlled by the Crown, City of London, and uh, Mossad works on its own. <laughs> <laughs> but wholly was, together uh, with this with for the same end goal. So that's just one book. That's synthetic tear. Glad DARPA's not been doing anything the past 10 years or anything like that. Now, uh, we did do the 24-hour live stream. Uh, started last night at 9 p.m. Eastern. I talked about this book, The Hidden History of 9-11. This is a variety of articles uh, edited together into a book by different authors. So you can get insider trading and all sorts of other juicy pieces of information, like where's the identification for all these various things, and he, the journalists track them down. So that's a great reference book. And an essential book that you need to have in this line of study is the Terror Timeline, year by year, day by day, minute by minute. In here, you can see just in like the early parts, you can see how many times MI6 warned us that bin Laden's going to attack us with planes. It's crazy. And then if you really don't believe that, you can read this book from the Royal Institute of International Affairs author Mark Curtis on how bin Laden had a headquarters in London in 1996. And if I turn to a page, we could probably find that, although there's many pages marked in this book for you to see. Let's see right here. Run from a house in Wembley, North London. The ARC was equipped with a bank, fax machines. Da, da, da. This has bin Laden's uh, London base. See that? So when I say it, you think I'm full of shit, but when I show you the pages by the Royal Institute of International Affairs, do you then see that I'm telling you the truth? Or do you still think, oh, that's conspiracy theory, bro? Or you can read this book, which talks all about the financial trading of AIG and Hank Greenberg and Kroll Associates and Marsha McLennan and insider trades on all these different companies and a whole bunch of other content that you should read before next 9-11. How interesting that, uh, you know, it's a callback to Vedmore's point um, or in his article or his recognition, rather. You have in the 9-11 uh, sphere of mm -hmm. information, you have Mossad and the Saudis both implicated. Yet they're supposed yeah. to be a part of a dialectic. And you got MI6 Just like in Vedmore's recognition. Exactly. And you got yeah, like NATO in there, too. So it's like a big family. And it's right. not That's just my point. people inside the United States, which is what some people would have you think. Exactly. They give you two, th two theories. Lie hop and my hop. Let it happen on purpose. Like the government knew, but they would profit from the terrorism, so they let it happen, or they yeah. made it happen on purpose. But both are disingenuous because they only make it look like America doing it to itself. Yeah, it's a false Does that dichotomy. Really make sense? 
wouldn't it be a lot easier for some foreign actor to come in and do those things, having superior clearance in our intelligence system, rather than these other guys with box cutters who were trained with strippers and cocaine in Florida to be drug couriers for the Saudi princes who have doing impossible maneuvering of airplanes, like massive jet and like, yeah, totally impossible dude. like professional pilots in the simulator can't do it no can't it's do impossible it the, the g-forces and would be too great the at the stress on the airframes you, can, yeah. you can't go that fast at that altitude the air is thicker the frames are not meant to take it it wouldn't be controllable and it would just it would self-destruct in a couple seconds that's exactly right that's exactly right, right. I which 21 up. years later shouldn't be a fucking surprise to people but still it's a really contentious interview oh you know oh, issue. i know i know yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's beyond tragic. If I didn't know so much about history, thanks to you, thanks to you and your work and so many others, um, but specifically you, I mean, I, I can make an argument in the 20th century that there's even a bigger lie, but I can't even, well, I can't, but there's, there's so many lies in the well, 20th no, century. Well, noble what I can lies say is this, is that it's hard. All New like, Yorkers know what burnt people smell like after 9-11. Yeah. And you don't want to smell that. And let's not have it happen again. Let's maybe learn so we don't ever forget. But if we don't know what not to forget, that's not helpful to the future. I want to share something about what you said very quickly about the NIST researcher. What was his name that you interviewed? Peter Ketchum. Peter Ketchum. C-H-A-M. According to him, he claimed that the information that NIST used was not, well, there was none. They sort of generated the models they made uh, it a priori. Up, exactly. So the, I'm just going to read this. This is from April 22nd, 2020. It comes from the New York Times. This is preserved from Tom Woods. And this is how people, University of Alaska debunked it so easily because they used what was actually there instead of the hypothetical thing that was made up by NIST so that they could get the answer out not to look there. That's exactly right. And so what, what I want people to pay attention to as I read this is the parallels between what Rich just said about Ketchum. The ominous and, parallels. The ominous parallels. And, and uh, what Tom Woods here, American Institute for Economic Research, talks about the modeling they did for the COVID-19 lockdowns. This comes from the New York Times. He quotes directly from a New York Times article, April 22nd, 2020, stating the following. 14 years ago, two federal government doctors, Richard Hatchett and Carter Meacher, met with a colleague at a burger joint in suburban Washington for a final review of a proposal they knew would be treated like a pinata, telling Americans to stay home from work and school the next time the country was hit by a deadly pandemic. When they presented their plan, not long after, it was met with skepticism and a degree of ridicule by senior officials who, like others in the United States, had grown accustomed to relying on the pharmaceutical industry with its ever-growing array of new treatments to confront evolving health challenges. Doctors Hatchett and Meacher were proposing instead that Americans in some places might have to turn to an approach, turn back to an approach self-isolation first widely employed in the Middle Ages. How that idea, borne out of a request by President George Bush to ensure the nation was better prepared for the next contagious disease outbreak became the heart of the national playbook for responding to a pandemic as one of un- one of the untold stories of the coronavirus crisis. It required two proponents, Dr. Meacher, a Department of Veterans Affairs physician, and Dr. Hatchett, an oncologist, the White House advisor. It brought their work together with that of the Defense Department team assigned to the similar task. And it had the same, it had some unexpected detours, including deep dive in the history of the Spanish flu, yada, yada, yada. The point is, where did they come up with the simulation? But what is but what is this mentioned the high school daughter of 14? Her name is Laura M. Glass, and she recently declined to be interviewed with the Albuquerque Journal, a deep dive of the history. Laura, this is according to the Albuquerque Journal, Laura, with some guidance from her dad, devised a computer simulation that showed how people, family members, coworkers, students in schools, people in social situations interact. 
What she discovered was that some school kids come in contact with about 140 people a day, more than any other group. Based on that finding, her program showed that the hypothetical town of 10,000 people, 5,000 would be infected during a pandemic if no measures were taken. Um, it goes on to state, so that the paper, Laura's name appears in the foundational paper, arguing for lockdowns and forced separation. That paper is called Targeted Social Distancing Designs for Pandemic Influenza in 2006. It set it's out a, the model. It sets a precedent for yes. healthy people to Based be on, negatively affected instead of just quarantining sick people, which was traditionally what worked. Protect and, the elderly, keep the, you know, like, you know. And so what you, with different. the, with Peter acknowledged to you, they made it up. This is from, yeah. this is a simulation from a 14 yeah. year old girl's a high school project that then her dad, who all helps, he social ran distancing. The, it's all DARPA. Yes. He worked for DARPA. DARPA, DARPA, DARPA. There, I said it. Right. You guys were thinking it. I said it for you. Yeah. So it goes on to state how um, her dad was involved and uh, Robert Glass and discovered the disease. So anyways, it, it goes on to the evolution, the history of the idea of the lockdowns based on a simulation that they sort of just made up, um, lacking any sort of credible evidence. It was very juvenile. Um, well, I had no real evidence. It was purely just a, a, an a priori sort of a pure sort of deduction of like potential possibilities and artificial parameters that were used. And her dad took that as the model that then became um, the, the ultimate model that was used as, as the justification and what the sage modeling that then what does Neil, Neil Ferguson, I think is where I forget who was it. Um, Neil Ferguson did the Imperial College Buncombe numbers. Yeah, that's I think that that's was what you're it. talking about. And yeah, then he the went out. Got caught while with, everyone's quarantined, yeah. he went out banging somebody else's wife and getting caught, no less. Right. And you so never yeah. saw Prince Charles getting his dick caught in a ringer like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It might so, be on Hunter's laptop though. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. See, I mix the stories. So yeah, it goes on to say here, the New York Times, and the Bush administration ultimately sided with the proponents of social distancing and shutdown. So again, this is George Bush, the same George Bush that happened to be the one that was reading the book. What was the book again with the flag upside down? My Pet Go or My America? Pet well, the one that's upside down is America because it puts the flag in distress, which yeah, is that's like right. really telling. And how long did he hold the book upside down like that that day? Then he's also reading My Pet Goat. And there's a whole bunch of other things mm -hmm. there. But I don't think that man was in control of anything that day. <laughs> no, no, no. I think his dad agree. was in control of stuff. Yeah. I think the people who used to work for his dad, Rumsfeld and Cheney and, yeah. and Wolfowitz, I think they were up to stuff. Carl, but Rowe. I don't think they let. Yeah, I don't think they let uh, W anywhere close to what was going on. It's the same with Biden or Trump. That guy like, leans in. Andy yeah. Card leans in and says, "Your dad just gave you the world." But we got hijackers on Air Force One, so be careful. <laughs> Angels next for all the world is a stage. Do you think people over at uh, MI6 or Mossad are just giggling? They're like, well, we think you know, they think it's next. Get on the fly to Louisiana and then out to see Warren Buffett, and then we'll stop. What's scary about it is the ritualistic nature. We covered a lot of ritualism tonight. Hey, Greg Franklin Reese. cover up. Warren Buffett is in Franklin cover up. Go in there, read the stories, and then go look at Jeff Gannon and George W. Bush, you know, ended up on. Uh, I'm not saying Gannon was there, but he was in the White House 200 and some times. He was there late nights. And then W. Bush is out there. The amount telling, of circumstances uh, of it. Warren Buffett, how, how it flows. That's right. In a Smith coming type of way. See how he did that? Oh, there you God. go.
That's how you know it's for late. people paying attention. That's how you know it's late. But they're, see, in they're order utilized... to put that in context, you got to watch a whole lot of stuff. See, That's taking true. it out of context, that doesn't make any sense. You wouldn't be. And you know, interesting. You bring up the Franco cover, not not to get into that, but just you know, Burmis got his start in nine eleven truth as well. But he also continued to do research. Burmis, I have so much respect for. I mean, it's just like you. I mean, he he didn't get caught in. I mean. We all get caught in catch webs, but he remained true, uh, true to empiricism, true to facts, true to research, and true to himself in that regard. And he went down and discovered a lot more than just nine eleven. And he's continued to, uh, to uh, report on those. No, uh, that dude. But the tragedies. first time I met that dude, I think he made you aware of. Something well, no, like the conversation okay. was we were at their place in in New York State, and he's like, "Yo, the Pope's a baby racist, and Iman Salem." <laughs> was framed by the FBI with 1993. And I was like, <laughs> I'm with you on the Vatican, but I'm not so sure about this Imad Salem guy. So I went home and listened to the Imad Salam tapes and he was right. And I was like, all right, that's two, two for two, right? Good. Yeah. And uh, that's why I got this loose chains t-shirt. Yeah. Shout out to Jason. Awesome work. Shout out to Corbett. I mean, all, all the individuals that we've worked with over the years. Yeah, I had a Corbett report t-shirt on for something the other day. You know, I try to, Try to keep the so rotation. Many to, to I, well, I only have so many colleagues that have been around since I well, started. Those days, yeah. And Corbett and Jason, and there's a couple. James others. Evan Plano, to be and, fair. Of course, yes, yeah, yeah. So if I start naming, I have to name them all though. So I know. The, uh, anniversary media monarchy, nine eleven. Uh, how many? Really, seventeen. <clears throat> wow. Uh, Shout out to James Evan Plano. James well, I, James. Ha- I have a media monarchy t-shirt in the mail it should be here anytime but if i'm good maybe james will send me a hat too <laughs> but i bought gotta, the t-shirt so i'll just see if i can get a free hat out of it we'll see you gotta play <laughs> fantasy baseball for the free hat i no such thing <laughs> I, I don't know what you're talking about prank caller you're speaking greek to me dude maybe next season and let's not forget Zelikow. Public myths, he, University yeah, of Virginia. Of fantasy and leagues. Shout out to Maddie <laughs> for the COVID collaborative because he's ahead of it. Anyways, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, speaking of fantasy leagues, <laughs> Zelikow was in charge of the fantasy league called 9 11 Commission Report. <laughs> and now he he's ahead of the COVID. It was a rigged game. It was like the Chicago Black Sox. Yeah. I mean, it was a rigged game from the beginning. He already had the answers to the test. He sent that research team to be like, go find what I already told you to find. <laughs> And that's and they, the point with these modeling. They start out with these. Right. What's not in the Warren Commission of the report? Human mind, What's not in the Warren Commission report? That Oswald was trained by the CIA and Office of Naval Intelligence and embedded over in Russia. And that's how he went back and forth. And then they had him investigating the guys who actually did the killing. And they said, you know what we're going to do with you, little investigator? We're going to make you the fucking patsy. And then you'll have you be, be shot by the end of the weekend. And let me just show you this. Do I have it here? When I was a kid and I would see, you know, because this whole book is about Kennedy getting killed and there's a picture in here that shows Oswald killing Kennedy. Now, let me see if I can get it on screen. I'm going to have to move some stuff. This is very, very unusual. I'm going to move my mouse to do this for you guys. It's like going through great pains to get to this picture so you can see it. Let me lift it up high. We go like this. Just think about how natural law and physics works, everyone. So this is, I don't know if we get this is the picture, picture. Mm -hmm. right? And do you see the expression on this guy's face? And he's looking over here. So I always thought this guy got shot and he's like, given that look, right? Cause Oswald's face is in the crease and you can't really see it. Like as a kid, when you're just like reading it, I didn't get that. This was the guy who shot Kennedy. So I always thought this guy, and I think he actually has a gun. He's like the sheriff or something. So 
uh, yeah, misinterpretation because there's no words to tell you who was doing the shooting. <laughs> I just thought maybe that guy was like, ah, anyway. It's another uh, one that, that was creepy. Was he John said he wasn't a patsy. The way John Lennon was killed was also very strange. Well, uh, that's all you know. John Lennon know. was killed outside the Dakota Hotel in that's New York right. City, a place I have been to see the site of, and I'm familiar with that space. So when you take into consideration the happenstance coincidence that the doorman, doorman working the door at the hotel where i mean they had a permanent residence john lennon and yoko right he lives there it's not a hotel hotel alec baldwin later lived there. there's a lot of famous people live there the doorman at the place where john lennon gets shot by the kid on sitting on the curb who reads uh catcher in her eye apparently that's the story right that's the story challenger JD the doorman is from Operation 40, which are trained assassins that I said the group that killed Kennedy, they had trained these assassins, right? His name is Jose Perdomo. You can look it up. He was the doorman there. Why isn't this like suspect number one when there's somebody assassinated of a famous nature? <clears throat> so that's another ominous continuity. So yeah. it's as if they didn't stop a JFK. I think that's what I'm trying to allude or to. Or RFK or MLK. Or RFK, MLK, sure. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. So fantastic. That was, I mean, lots terrible, of but lots of like the history is just very interesting. Like, anyways. One ain't going to get better believing the cartoonist reality that they keep painting for generation after generation. I know. So Jack Kennedy wasn't the perfect dude. No, think, no, no. Uh, you know. But, you know, he had a lot but, of girlfriends. It hey, wasn't like, just Jackie Kennedy. Right. It wasn't Jackie. Sure. <laughs> it was Mary Meyer. It was Momo Giancana's girlfriend. It was that other girl that uh, Vedmore was talking about and a whole coterie of others. Yeah. And they're far from saints. But to Eric's point, you know, and I want to f- we'll follow up with Eric. Uh, he's going to be joining the Tuesday Night Town Hall this Tuesday for people who are interested and don't have any questions. But, you know, he talks about these instances in history where like oligarchy, the philosophy of the oligarchs like tends to win. But you'd be surprised when you get in these private meetings, how much pushback there is. Like there's uh, there's these different factions. And in a way, you know, who knows these these political assassinations that took place. Wonder if there is this something unseemly. Um or acrimonious in regards to uh, what was maybe portrayed or relayed to these individuals that all of a sudden then become assassinated or suicided. So just that's an open question. This is sort of speculation. But with that, should we move to intermission? Should we go to the beam? Yeah, we're going to go to intermission. I just wanted to snap this from my family while you do that why don't i show what we're gonna the audience what we had to skip and as we go to yeah show what we skipped then we'll show what we're gonna hit so russian ukraine um there's that sort of fox offensive by the ukrainians going on right now and they, exactly like the it reminded me of the the famous hill in stalingrad um well the the the, the front kept moving in stalingrad but you never know who was exactly winning the space but it's sort of it's in this capacity it's a facade um it's 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 a planned retreat by the russians and obviously there's a lot of narrative control around that so that's been the big news recently also and Zelensky, i guess opened um the new york stock exchange this week saying uh, they're open for business the ukraine that is so you know the the proxy nationalist state that we set up there in eastern europe they're open for business again so that's always good to know 
There was a, a couple of very, uh, LD, you shared that Dr. Jaw, you know, God gave us two arms, one for the flu vaccine, apparently, and oh one my. for the COVID vaccine. That was so crazy and obnoxious. Like, Go I, to I, it. I, Hashtag Mafa 21, dude. That's uh, whole. Like, I mean, if people want to be absurd. dumb about their, their own history and embrace the eugenics, I don't have a problem with that. My problem is with people who aren't given informed fucking consent on these 100%. situations. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, hundred, that's so if the you want to be like, I didn't ask what's in the concoction, that's fine with me. Right? That me too. That's that's the principles of individual that's freedom. freedom. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And if if uh the Darwin Awards remove some people, that'd be like how to lower but the that's of their own without choice. genocide. Right. Maybe Klaus Schwab will be doing like stuff like that, it'd be more ethical. But when you want to make plans over other people's lives and lie to them about that, that's not cool. Yeah, and we're that's gonna resist ethical because we're not fucking retarded yeah that's all it really requires though big tree last week and this week is opening monologue were absolutely incredible especially last week's but both are very good i encourage people to check it out he had a a doctor i forget if i put it here a monologue about uh dr paul who exposed a it was a double blind study or essentially it, it was they they had two control they had two groups they had the control group and variable group with um following over the course of five or 10 years and he exposed the evidence in regards to the vaccines historically between these two groups and the incidence of uh, asthma, allergies, uh, autism, all sorts of things. And then he got, unfortunately, recently, I believe, um, lost his medical license. So he had him on to discuss his research and how, how that study was conducted. I guess it's an epidemiological study, but it was well controlled and it had a large, decently large sample size between the two con- controlling for cofactors, so forth and so on. Really worth checking out last week as well. He got into... Uh, the importance of the constitutional republic that we call America and the importance of the, the separation, of the balance of powers, and that there's no perfect government. And so I thought he had a good sort of uh, acknowledgement of that. Jackson report obviously speaks for itself. And that's sort of, you know, um, the, the, the CDC this week, I believe it was this week if, or late last week, came out with, um, I guess, uh, new recommendations for treatment. Um, right now, ivermectin is being clinically tried, but it's not recommended for treatment, but they also acknowledge natural immunity and other things. So Kim Iverson, Brett Weinstein, there's a number of people talking about the hypocrisy in regards to the CDC now admitting what we always knew to be true. Um, and uh, there's a press for truth. Dan Dix, Israel discovered vaccine issues, covered it up. I forget if we played that last week or not. Eight but mice, that bro. Eight mice. That's That's a, and I have stuff. To, I have to give a shout out to Maddie um, of manu- Manufacturing Reality and her co- her series. Hold on, I'm going to bring it up. Because um, she's been on the forefront of this research in regards to real world data. And we're seeing it all over the place right now. Uh, two door clips last week where he goes into this, where you get um, the, the FDA, the CDC have been talking about this. So this is actually normal now in regard or being normalized. I, I got this on the record last week, but definitely check out the COVID collaborator, collaborators. Uh, this is about Dr. Uh, Robert Califf, um at the Duke University and his association with Klaus Schwab, uh, the Great Reset, and his de- design of getting away from RCTs randomized control trials takes too long apparently just like the Melkin Institute said protein-based vaccines take too long. exactly so now they based on real world data which is just a euphemism just test on you but yeah that's literally what it is bypassing that's what the Nazis said that they were doing they're so, like well, we just need some real world data she did such a good job definitely check out the COVID collaborators there's also real quick um, since we talked about Zelikow um, you know so he's, he's an instrumental figure here 
Uh, let's see if I can find the... As the time of this writing, Johns Hopkins University... Let's see if I can find... Yeah, here it is. Such disastrous event... Okay, here it is. As the time of writing, the Johns Hopkins University of Medicine's Coronavirus Research Center measures... The Resource Center measures the total global deaths. Given this massive loss of life, the global trauma caused by COVID-19 outweighs anything else. Um, let's see outweighs the inflicted upon the American such disastrous events are right material for myth-making with the purpose of ostensibly preventing repetitive mistakes and preventing lessons learned during the such crises. For this reason, figures like Philip Selikow, former sec first secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Tom Ridge, and General Stanley McChrystal are getting back together in organizations like the COVID Commission Planning Group. Record scratch. And the COVID stop. Collaborative. Michael Hastings were, was writing about McChrystal, wasn't it? Wasn't it who he got fired for? And then his literally? engine end up like, like sixty a yards sacrifice away. type thing right there. Yeah, um, his engine flew out of the car and he crashed and it blew up and it was a very strange circumstance. Man, seems know. unusual, but I have a very high number of coincidences in my tolerance level, so we're good. So Nothing shout to out to Maddie for recognizing that. Yeah. So he's the, he's sort of the project manager for, manager for this COVID commission planning group, which is now part of the COVID collaborative. Rajiv Shaw, the head of the Rockefeller Making Foundation now, it. is the one that's divvying up the funds and dispersing and allowing it to operate. And then you have actors like Caliph and uh, I forget the other one, uh, Inglesby, who is the one who is a ceremony, a master of ceremonies at the, the event 201 that mm -hmm. are making it operational. So she did a four-part series. She's working on her fifth part right now. I've really encouraged people to check it out. Also check out James Jordan's work. It's part of the same blog spot. Incredible work from both of them, but Maddie's uh, series on the COVID collaborative and the COVID planning group. Just it's like Star Wars phenomenal. episode six. They say it's not fully operational, but it is. Yeah. All right. Um, for the intermission, LD, will you cue up the Joe Pesci clip from the movie With Honors? It's where he... Uh, <laughs> talks to gore vidal who is playing the professor and he talks about no the great thing about the constitution is that these dudes knew that they were fallible and they left room for people in the future to fix it right that's an important thought to bring back at this point in history i think and then we're going to go to um some time codes i've memorized for a film uh it's a documentary of electric uh it's electric. actually one let me uh what are those time codes i'll write them right, right so, now uh, minutes two through twelve and then like one hour 38 to the end and oh, in the no. middle is a whole bunch of good stuff we just don't have time for it all it shows the history and evolution of the british crown and how they might have lost it to the templars and have to rent it every year but we don't need to tackle that shout out to death to tyrants who joined our community he actually brought he brought an interesting connection that we couldn't verify but rich um that's that's the synchronicity is overwhelming right now um so i the force yeah. is with us yeah, yeah. nature's yeah. wink because we're not trying to fuck over the future like everyone else. So yeah, just, I just want to be left alone, to be honest. I wouldn't be doing anything. They've be been going after thing. those people recently, Tony. They are domestic terrorists out here. Those the people want to be left alone. I'm really scared about freedom. Is they, the expansion what? of the IRS. I'm sorry to cut you off, but that's that's guy kind of work as an accountant. I'm part of a small <laughs> business. I help run a small business with my father. That to me, out of all the things that have manifested recently, um, it's such a diabolically brilliant strategy to go after small business owners and what's left of independent mind that people can sustain oh. themselves. So Only two certain things in life, Tony, death and taxes. They bring them both. What's a mortgage mean, Rich? What does a mortgage mean? Life, uh, death pledge. Uh, mortgage. Mortgage. Death or taxes? Is that the uh, option they give you when they show up at the house? Isn't that a false dichotomy? It should be With a the false armed dichotomy. Agents? Ah, yeah. Yeah, see? 
They're like, you have free will. <laughs> you could choose death or taxes. <laughs> I thought that dude said liberty or death. You're saying death or taxes? Yeah, yeah. They, they like to spin the words around, you know, change the meaning of things. They do. All right. So uh, the the lecturer, after you hear Joe Pesci and Gore Vidal to warm up your humor buds, uh, is a guy named Walter Vyth. He is uh, a South African Catholic historian. He'll tell you a lot about Jesuits and other presentations. In this particular pres- presentation, it's called The Beamable Sustainable Princes, because there's plural. There's many princes involved in the story. But King, uh, I'm sorry, formerly known as Prince KC3, uh, he's in the middle of the whole story. And what they, what, what Vice shows you 20 years ago nearly about 18 years ago uh is on point for what's going on today and uh he has a lot of good references in there i took a ton of screenshots of his presentation so we're giving you a sample of it if you you know i've watched it like 10 times over the years it's, you it's this is the very go first back thing and keep you, listening to this is the very first thing you've ever showed me no, i showed I you his lecture you. on the jesuits probably on the jesuits yeah. yeah and then i asked the question that can't be spoken this of, is one so. i kind of overlooked because i was like ah what's prince charles going to do is his mom's gonna be queen forever but now she's not here anymore so then i was like what was that thing 20 years ago that told me about uh this agenda and the agenda that he tells you about 20 years ago is definitely what's going on today with the great reset and klaus schwab herr schwab all right so let's go to uh a homeless man at Harvard talking about the constitution. And then we'll go to other homeless man being talked about because the Prince gives everything away. Prince Charles, he doesn't have anything. Now. Just like Bill Gates or Bill Gates mm-hmm. takes a page out of the Royal family. Right, 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 right. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Now those right. notes, is that two minutes to 12 minutes? And then yeah, one, one hour and 38 to the end. I think so. Okay. I mean, yeah. it's, 3.30 in the morning at this point, and that was four days ago. I've seen a lot of things since then, but I think those are the codes. Let's roll with that. We'll, we'll correct it. Do it live. Yeah. Do it live! Because we got the documents. We're going to do it. Do it live. All right. Time Machine, going back to 2008. Walter Weitz, beamable, sustainable princes. And hopefully the first two minutes wasn't something we needed to hear. You, sir. Oh, me? Yes. Uh, do you have an opinion on this? No. Are you a student in this class? No. Are you a guest? No, I'm a bum. <laughs> there are no bums. There are only the financially challenged. No, I'm a bum. <laughs> but bear in mind, I'm a Harvard bum. You must be the logical result of an open admissions policy. <laughs> no, sir. My presence here is the logical result of the search for edible garbage. You're here for the garbage. That's right. Colleges produce a lot of garbage. And Harvard produces more than most. (laughs) What wit. Inspired, no doubt, by wild turkey. You ask for charity, pleading that society has failed you and you need help. But actually, you're quite capable, and what you really want is alcoholic bliss. I would rather drink rubbing alcohol than listen to you, if that's what you mean. And according to the 21st Amendment, you can drink anything you want. Simon. 
Which door do I leave from? At Harvard, we don't end our sentences with prepositions. Well, in that case, which door do I leave from? Asshole. What democratic eloquence. You ask the question, sir. Let me answer it. The genius of the Constitution is that it can always be changed. The genius of the Constitution is that it makes no permanent rule other than its faith in the wisdom of ordinary people to govern themselves. Faith in the wisdom of the people is exactly what makes the Constitution incomplete and crude. Crude? No, sir. Our founding parents were pompous, middle-aged white farmers, but they were also great men because they knew one thing that all great men should know, that they didn't know everything. They knew they were going to make mistakes, but they made sure to leave a way to correct them. They didn't think of themselves as leaders. They wanted a government of citizens, not royalty, a government of listeners, not lecturers, a government that could change, not stand still. The president isn't an elected king, no matter how many bombs he can drop, because the crude constitution doesn't trust him. He's a servant of the people. He's a bum, okay, Mr. Pitcannon? He's just a bum. And the only bliss that he's searching for is freedom and justice. That was a really nice way of him saying, go fuck yourself. All right. Now we go to what was the name of that actor? He's so young. Joe Pesci. Pesci. No, 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 no. Brendan Fraser. Brendan Fraser. Yeah. I know Joe Pesci, but uh, that was a young Brendan Fraser, man. Holy shit. Yeah. That's back when he was doing like school ties. Yeah. And uh, where Matt Damon was a, a hateful bigot. All right, so let's go to. Uh, oh. That's true. So see, I know my. I know, I know the reference. 90s. I know yeah. the reference. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's some anti-Semitism yeah. in that movie. That's claim to fame for Matt Damon. It's famous now. Waspy, especially when he acted like oh, I've never said such things, and people all quoted him. Oh, was, well, you got that's woke culture for you. It's anyway. a hard knock life for those Hollywood dudes. All right, so let's go to uh, Walter Vyth the beamable sustainable princes and let him decrypt this code for you. Cause I know it's confusing. Thanks. How are you all this evening? I'm okay. You're probably thinking, has he gone nuts? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, does he know how to spell? I assure you there's nothing wrong with the spelling. So let's dive into this one and see where we end up. Well, what does this mean, the beamable, sustainable princess? Not princess, princess. Well, I'll leave it to your imagination as we go through the seminar to see what this exactly entails. And what has the Prince of Wales got to do with anything? 
This comes straight off his web page. He is beaming there, isn't he? Yes, he is beaming. But maybe he can even be beamable, who knows? Is Prince Charles the Antichrist? You will find if you browse the web pages, web page after web page, book upon book upon book, that he is the Antichrist. Yes, you will find lots of literature if you browse it. They will claim his name comes to 666 if you calculate it. They will give all these informative informations about why he is the Antichrist. And uh, this is one web page that talks about him. And it mentions the news brief, Wing Prince is savior of the world. Fox News, Life, March 7, 2002. London, the Prince of Wales is to be immortalized in a bronze, as a bronze muscular winged god dressed in nothing more than a loincloth. He will be the first living member of the royal family to have a life-size statue dedicated in his honor. Although the prince is destined to become defender of the faith when he becomes king of England, the inscription on the statue in Brazil will honor him as savior of the world. Hmm. I guess this is a play upon his environmental impact. When he talks about the environment and uh, the Rio conference which took place where he played a very prominent role, and that is why they are terming him such. But, of course, those who like to speculate grab hold of these things and say, he is the man behind the scenes. He's the one who's being groomed as the final Antichrist. If you know your Bible, then you will not fall into that trap, right? But that doesn't mean that it isn't interesting. Everything in the world is interesting. And I've discovered something in my life. I used to hate history when I was a kid at school. I couldn't stand history. And then when I discovered truth and all of these things, history suddenly exploded. And it became so interesting. And I became interested in archaeology and I became interested in the sands of time and all of these issues. And history is more amazing than fiction. Much more amazing. Unfortunately, we don't always hear the right history. And often history is rewritten to suit the times we live in. And uh, in my own country, there are totally new history books and curriculums now than there were before. And the role players seem to have gone topsy-turvy. Those that were on top are now at the bottom. Those that were at the bottom are now on top. So history is very subjective. It depends on how you look at it. So Prince Charles, what can you tell us? And where do you fit into the picture? And if you do fit into the picture, does it matter at all? What does the Bible say? Who is the Antichrist? Well, the reformers were all unanimous that the criteria in Daniel could only fit the papacy and no one else. 
The correlations are so numerous, they said, so precise. And if you remember their words, fitting like Chubb's key into one of Chubb's locks. So that only that system could qualify for all the features listed in the book of Daniel, in the prophecies of Paul, and in the prophecies of Revelation. So that was the Antichrist, and unfortunately, Prince Charles just doesn't qualify. There is no way that he ruled for 1,260 years. He's too young for that, isn't he? And there's no way that he changed God's law. And all of these issues, he just doesn't fit the picture. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have a role to play as a very prominent royal member. Well, here is his webpage. And he is the founder of the International Business Leader Forum. And there's a webpage, you can go and look at it. And it says over there, the International Business Leaders Forum puts business at the heart of sustainable development. Key number one to the title. So he's a prince for sustainable development. And here are the IBLF's global footprint. This interactive map catalogs the global work and influence of the IBLF since its creation in 1990. Founded by His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, we are an independent, not-for-profit organization currently supported by over 100 of the world's leading businesses. It's quite impressive. They're virtually active in every country in the world. And there is the big global footprint map. You will see they are active in the United States. They are active in Canada. And all the other countries have the dot in them. So he's a highly, highly influential man behind the scenes. Correlating and being the chairman of all of these mega business conglomerates. You know, he who swings the axe in those circles has a lot of clout. So don't underestimate the power of the man. He is the chairman of those boards. The Prince of Wales Business Leaders Forum, what does it tell us about him? In 1990, organizational meeting in Charleston was called Stakeholders, the challenge in a global market. And there were 100 CEOs from major multinational organizations that attended. The mission of the Prince of Wales Business Leader Forum is to promote continuous improvement in the practice of good corporate citizenship and sustainable development internationally as a natural part of the successful business operations. The term sustainable development is in vogue these days. It's being used everywhere. And it's actually a code word for something very different. It aims to work with members and partners to, number one, demonstrate that business has an essential and creative role to play in the prosperity of local communities as partners in development, 
particularly in economies in transition. Business, government, community, in partnership. To raise awareness for the values of the corporate responsibility in international business practice. Encourage partnership between business, communities, as an effective means of promoting sustainable economic development. Doesn't that sound nice? Sounds very nice. The Prince of Wales Business Leaders Forum operates in 26 countries, concentrating on post-communist countries and developing economies, and they are active in every single nation. Fascinating. So you're very powerful. Now what does that mean? To what is the question? Is it from The provincial city of Pergamon is called the seat or the throne of Satan. Fascinating coincidences. Well, he did win the election. He is a charming man. The world is at his feet. He's a change master. And that was his main campaign slogan. We need change. We need change. Change from what to what is the question. Is it from war politics to peaceful politics? Or is it from a system of government to another system of government? Are we now finally moving to that point in history where the kings of the world give their power unto the beast? His inauguration was fascinating as well. He chose none other than Rick Warren to do the inaugural prayer. And there was much speculation beforehand as to whether Rick Warren would pray in the name of Jesus or whether he would not pray in the name of Jesus. His prayer, I believe, is brilliant. It was a masterpiece. And if we look at the backdrops, then it's fascinating. The cousin of Obama, Cheney, is a member of the Council of Foreign Relations. Obama himself is a member of the Council of Foreign Relations. It's fascinating that he should use a pastor who by his own admission is also a member of the Council of Foreign Relations. And this pastor used a prayer which seems beautiful and Christian when you look at it from the surface. But as you can see, the USA Today stated quite Plainly that Pastor Rick Warren's invocation uses Jewish-Christian mix. And they go on to say, Warren's invocation began with a fundamental Jewish prayer that declares the Lord is one. He also alluded to a description of God as the compassionate and merciful one that opens almost every chapter of the Quran. Said the historian R.B. Bernstein, who teaches at New York Law School, Warren concluded with the Lord's Prayer and he did close in the name of Jesus, but he also closed in the terminology that is used in Messianic Judaism, which does not have a personal savior, but a national savior, who acts on the public domain rather than in the private domain of the heart. So here we have a Messiah that fulfills all of the conditions and it is a Messiah that satisfies all of the religious aspirations of the world. Is this the Messiah they need to set up a kingdom in this world? 
rather than the one and only who will set up a kingdom that is not of this world? These are questions that we need to ask ourselves. And I pray that people will be prepared for the times that we are heading towards. And the Prince of Wales, working feverishly behind the scenes. What's the final act in the drama? The final act in the drama is the gathering of the world. The Bible says, and all the world wandered after the beast. And they worshipped the beast. Wow. Prince Charles held a two-day international seminar in April 1991 aboard the yacht Britannica, moored off the coast of Brazil, where he is now being honored as the savior of the world. His gold was to bring together key international figures. Uh, we're going to rewind a little bit <laughs> as we do it live. At Clarendon Palace on the 30th of January 1164, the king set out 16 constitutions aimed at decreasing ecclesiastical interference from Rome. Rome, you take second place in my country, I'm first. Do you do that to Rome and get away with it? But the newly appointed Archbishop of Canterbury refused to ratify the proposals. Henry was characteristically stubborn, and on the 8th of October, 1164, he called the Archbishop Thomas Beckett before a royal council. The Archbishop knew what was coming, so he fled. He fled to France, and there he was under the protection of Henry's rival, Louis VII of France. In 1170, the Pope was considering excommunicating all of Britain. Only Henry's agreement that Becket could return to England without penalty prevented this fate. So here was a war between church and state. Thomas A. Becket was murdered in 1170. The king was angry that he had to give in to this pressure, and he made these remarks about this pestilent monk, and his knights went and solved his problem. Actually, they created a big problem. History is fascinating. You know, there's an old saying which says, Rome never forgets. Well, Henry's knights wanted to do the king a favor. Just three years later, Becker was canonized and revered as a martyr. It took three years and he was a martyr. Against secular interference in God's church. Now you can understand why the Pope knelt there. Centuries later, Pope Alexander III had declared Thomas Becket a saint. And historian John Harvey believes it was yet another failure in Henry's religious policy, an arena which he seemed to lack adequate subtlety. And politically, Henry had to sign the Compromise of Avranche, which removed from the secular courts almost all jurisdiction over the clergy. So the king had to sign that he had no rights to control the clergy. This compromise in 1172 marked the reconciliation of Henry of II of England with the Catholic Church after the murder of Thomas Becket. Henry was purged of any guilt in Becket's murder, but he agreed that the secular courts had no jurisdiction over the clergy, with the exception of high treason, highway robbery, and arson. Fascinating. Now what's even more interesting, he had to be punished. 
Now who is higher? The one who is punishing or the one who is being punished? Well, let's look at history. The murder had far-reaching consequences for England, but the immediate result was that Henry II had to make peace with the church. He did this four years later by performing penance at Canterbury Cathedral. He was beaten by 80 monks while wearing sackcloths and ashes. There is the picture. There's the poor king. Here are the monks beating the king. Naughty king! Hmm. And spent the night in vigil at St. Thomas Becket's tomb. The church had wasted no time and had canonized Becket. He also had to promise to raise money for the crusades and to either mount a crusade or make a pilgrimage. He did neither. There was enough to do at home. So he was in trouble. This king was in trouble and he was severely reprimanded and he got the hiding of his life. Fine. Now let's go a little bit further into history. Just, just a couple of years. Now England was pretty humiliated. Can you imagine how they felt? Their king was beaten <laughs> up by monks. And uh, they had to pay all this money, supposedly. Well, King John's concession of England and Ireland. Now, King John is very famous. There he is, King 1167 to 1216. In the matter of the election and installation of Stephen Langton as Archbishop of Canterbury, King John, in the words of Pope Innocent III, had by impious persecution tried to enslave the entire English church. So here this next king comes, and he says, I don't want that Archbishop, I want another one. And the Pope says, who do you think you are? I say what goes. Did we have a little altercation with China and the present Pope just recently? Oh, it was very interesting. You don't tell the Pope who's boss. And he said, King, you will listen to me. You will appoint the one I want. Hmm. As a result, the Pope laid on England an interdict, 1208 to 14. A sort of religious strike wherein no religious service was to be performed for anyone guilty or innocent. When, that didn't, when this didn't work, the king himself was excommunicated. Now you must remember how afraid those people were. If you weren't with the church, you were lost forever. The people were fear-struck. The king had been excommunicated. Caving in under that pressure, John wrote a letter of concession to the Pope, hoping to have the interdict and the excommunication lifted. The year was 1213. John's concession, which in effect made England a fiefdom of Rome. Please note where I've taken this from. This comes from sources of British history. So England became a fiefdom to Rome, worked like a charm. The satisfied Pope lifted the yoke he had hung on the people of England and their king. But that wasn't enough. King, put it there. Put it there. So the king went and he signed a declaration and he relinquished the crown. There is the picture of the crown being placed at the feet of the Roman prelate. The crown of England, Rome is yours. And I will rent it back at a fee. 
fascinating history. This is mind-boggling. Nobody even thinks about it today. Let's carry on. Now, this is the concession he signed, and I'm going to bore you by actually reading it. Because you cannot get more interesting history today than that. This is the medieval source book, John I's Concession of England to the Pope. This is what he said. John, by the grace of God, King of England, Lord of Ireland, Duke of Normandy, etc., etc., to all the faithful of Christ who shall look upon this present charter, greetings. We wish it to be known to all through this our charter, notice the words, charter, furnished with our seal, that inasmuch as we have offended in many ways God and our mother, the Holy Church, and in consequence are known to have very much needed the divine mercy, and cannot offer anything worthy for making due satisfaction to God and to the church, unless we humiliate ourselves and our kingdom. We wishing to humiliate ourselves for him, or humiliated himself for us, unto death, the grace of the Holy Spirit inspiring, not induced by force or compelled by fear, but of our good, own good and spontaneous will, and by the common counsel of our barons, do offer and freely concede to God and his holy apostles Peter and Paul and to our mother the holy Roman church and to our Lord Pope Innocent and his Catholic successors the whole kingdom of England the whole kingdom of Ireland with all their rights and opportunities so any future gain of that kingdom is conceded to whom? to the Pope for the remission of our own sins and those of our whole race as well for the living and for the dead. Now receiving and holding them as it were as vassals. What is a vassal? One who serves. From God and the Roman church in the presence of that prudent man, Paul the subdeacon of the household of the Lord Pope, we perform and swear fealty. That means subservience. We swear fealty. To them, to him, our aforesaid Lord Pope Innocent and his Catholic successors in the Roman Church. According to the form apprehended and the presence of the Lord Pope, if we shall be able to come before him, we shall do liege homage. Wow! We are merely vassals to the Pope. Binding our successors and our heirs by our wife forever. In similar manner to perform fealty and show homage to him who shall be chief pontiff at that time. Who is it today? Benedict. Well, here's an interesting document. And to the Roman church without demur. That's it. Done deal. As a sign, moreover, of this our own, we will and establish perpetual obligation and concession forever. We will establish that from the proper and special revenues of our set kingdom. And then he talks about how much money he's going to have to pay for renting back the privilege of the crown from the 
real owner who is now who? Who is the Pope? Who becomes the land lord. The word land lord comes from the lend lord. Now when you are a landlord, you receive rent, and for that you get certain privileges. So here is what they had to pay. We shall receive yearly a thousand marks sterling, namely at the Feast of St. Michael, etc., and then all these other fees that they had to pay, saving to us and to our heirs our right, liberties, and regalia. So our crown, our pomp, our glory, we have rented back from the Pope, for this fee. We bind ourselves and our successors not to act counter to them. And now look carefully. If we or any one of our successors shall presume to attempt this, whosoever he be, unless being duly warned he come to his kingdom and his senses, he shall lose his right to the kingdom and this charter of our obligation and concession shall always remain firm. So if we break this agreement, we lose the crown forever. Wow. What happened? I'm excited. I want to know. I hope you are. Where did the king sign this? Now please note this. The plot thickens. This comes from the select historical documents of the Middle Ages. I, myself, this is the king, bearing witness in the house of the Knights Templars near Dover, in the presence of Marcher, Master Archbishop of Dublin, Master J. Bishop of Norwich, and then he goes through the whole list of who there was present. And he put his signature to it. So the crown belongs to Rome, but the king rented it back. Now, did they ever break the agreement? Well, that was a lot of money. A thousand pound ach, mark sterling, plus the other fees that had to be paid, plus the Peter's penny that had to be paid. Britain groaned under this king. This is where the legends come in of uh, the time of Robin Hood and all of those. Although history has been distorted there. The timing is wrong, but the event is interesting. Well, King John caved under the pressure of his barons who couldn't afford the taxes. And so he signed the Magna Carta on June 15, 1215. And the Magna Carta is a famous document. And in this document, he promised to pay respect to what the barons and the lords of the empire said, more so than what someone else said. And so they refused from then on to pay the thousand marks sterling. What did they do when they refused to pay that? They broke the agreement. King John broke the terms of this charter by signing the Magna Carta in June 15, 1215. Remember the penalty for breaking it? Was the loss of the crown, the right to the kingdom, to the Pope and the Roman Church? 
It says so quite plainly, to formally and lawfully take the crown from the royal monarch in England by an act of declaration on the August 24, 1215. Pope Innocent annulled the Magna Carta. Later in the year, he placed an interdict prohibition on the entire British Empire. And from that time until today, the English monarchy and the entire British crown belong legally to the Pope. Now, England wasn't always very good to the Pope. And there were things like reformations. And King Henry, who said, blow the Pope, I don't care about him. He had other interests. His was more an uh, androgenic problem than anything else. Well, let's not go into the details of that. Here is the picture of the king signing the Magna Carta. Breaking the agreement. Only three of the original clauses on the Magna Carta are still law. All the rest has been rescinded today. Please note what is still law. So this portion is still okay. One defends the freedom and the rights of the English church. Another confirms the liberties and customs of London and the other towns, but the third is the most famous, no free man shall be seized or imprisoned or stripped of his rights or possessions or outlawed or exiled, nor will we proceed with force against him except by the lawful judgment of his equals or by the law of the land. To no one will we sell, to, do, to no one deny or delay right of justice. It has resonant echoes in the American Bill of Rights, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Everything else has been rescinded. So Rome really owns the kingdom. Theirs is the crown. And for the monarchs today to have the crown is actually a pretense. The Templars own the crown. Now who are the modern Templars? Who are the modern Templars? That is the question. The Templars have disappeared. Now, if you, I'm not going to go through my previous lectures where we talk about all the secret societies. You can get them on the DVDs, but I'll just give you a little clue. Here are the Knights Templars. Please note their regalia. Here is a Templar. This is the Templar robe. Notice that he has the sash on the left side with the Templar cross on it. Their main symbol is, of course, the crown with the cross. They have united the power of regalia, of kings, with that of the cross. And they are in control. They control the kings through the Knights Templars. All the Knights Templars' successors. Now, who were the successors? Please note the rope. Look at it carefully. And then let's go to the Catholic Encyclopedia. This comes from the Catholic Encyclopedia here. Is this the same looking robe? Yes or no? Hospitalers of St. John of Jerusalem, also known as the Knights of Malta. The most important of all the military orders, both of the extent of its area and for its duration. It is said to have existed before the Crusades and is not extinct at the present time. Now, the Knights of Malta, of course, are in cohesion and collusion with the Jesuits. And there were even wars between Jesuits and the Knights of Malta. And the Jesuits, the black pope, is actually the controlling power 
behind the whole scene. But each of these orders are subservient to him. Now, there are Protestant groups today that are pretended Protestant groups, but are actually Knights of Malta. Now, I wonder who would wear a similar robe to that. Being subservient only to the Pope. Because the Knights of Malta are a military papal order. Oh. Fascinating. And there we have our queen. And she has the regalia of the hospitalers. Now, it's claimed to be the Protestant version. So the queen meets volunteers from St. John's ambulance. Her majesty is sovereign of the order of St. John. The emblem of the Order of St. John, the English Protestant ecumenical branch of the Order of Malta, which is a Catholic secret society. Now let's have a look at the Knights of Malta. Here we have the Pope, the present Pope, and the High Commander, the Master of the Order of Malta. He happened to die this year. But Benedict greets the Grand Master of the Order of Malta, Prince Andrew Willoughby Ninian Bertie in the Vatican. Notice that the Prince is subservient to the Pope. And he is the Grand Master. Every Knight of Malta is subservient to him. So who's the Queen subservient to? Must be subservient to him, who is in turn subservient to the Pope. Now, uh, Prince Andrew, Willoughby Ninian, died in 2008, this very year. And the next one to be appointed is the new Grand Master, Rome, 11th April 2008, the recently elected Grand Master of the Order of Malta, His Most Eminent Highness, Matthew Festing, was received this morning in private audience by His Holiness, Pope Benedict. It's interesting that this is a British Grand Master. And if you are a Grand Master in the Knights of Malta, you have to be royalty. You must have a royal title. You must be king. You must be royal. So this man is royalty subject to Rome. Now there are certain orders in Britain, and all of these form different levels of this secret hierarchy which is by law under the Roman papacy. Now, of course, the Reformation disturbed this for a long time. But the Pope's visit was fascinating. Where did he kneel? At the place where the conflict with Britain started. At the place where Thomas Becket was murdered. When a king decided to suppress the Roman Catholic Church. And the outcome of that was the signing of a document which eventually gave Rome the crown. So when we talk of the crown, it is a ruse to think that the queen has the crown. It is the crown of the Knights Templars. And the knights do homage to the crown. They're not doing homage to the queen. They're doing homage to the Templars and they're doing homage to the Pope. This is the most noble order of the Garter. The Queen is sovereign of this order. Five members of the royal family are ladies of the order, or royal knights, and there are 24 knights and lady companions. 
And uh, there are three ex-prime ministers, foreign monarchs are present, extra knights, companions, and ladies. This is the inner council that has to do with the affairs of state. And here is the full picture of all the knights of the garter. And uh, I had a fascinating life myself. I actually had dinner once, excuse me, with one of these uh, lordly gentlemen. There he is, sitting in the middle row, Lord Sainsbury. I had dinner with him one evening at the British Consulate in South Africa. And uh, he was, came up to investigate our scientific research because I was a Royal Society uh, grant holder. And so I actually didn't know that he was a member of the Garter, but I'm happy to see that he was. Well, the development of Prince Charles. Prince Charles was born Charles Philip Arthur George Mountbatten, Windsor, in 1948, the same year that Israel was birthed. In 1969, his mother made him Prince of Wales, and he became a Knight of the Garter. And he's also the great master and principal Knight Grand Cross of the Most Honorable Order of the Bath. Strange names, eh? It is the Order of the Bath into which President Ronald Reagan and George Bush were knighted after each left office. Very interesting. Here is a military order, and it is given to presidents of the United States. Fascinating. Why order of the bath? Because anciently they used to bathe themselves as a spiritual cleansing. It was a, the religious aspect of the order. It had a spiritual connotation. <laughs> Here the queen places the crown on the head of Bonnie Prince Charles in 1969 when he became the Prince of Wales. It's interesting that the Prince of Wales' coat of, coat of arms is not part of the Queen's. So the Prince is a sovereign. He has a throne. He's not waiting for one. He's the Prince of Wales. And uh, he's also the Grand Master of the Order of the Bath. And when he was crowned, this is what Queen Elizabeth II said. These are the words. This dragon, because that's the emblem that they chose for Wales, this dragon gives you your power, your throne, and your own authority. His response to her was, I am now your liege man and worthy of your earthly worship. Liege is an old English word meaning Lord. I am now your Lord man and worthy of your earthly worship. Now what does all of this mean? Isn't it interesting? I hope you're interested. Who's the dragon? Did you know that the dragon was the symbol of Rome? It was the symbol of ancient Rome? You'll find it under the ancient Roman bridges. There was always a dragon. And it is part of the Vatican crest. And if you read your book of Revelation in the Bible, then you will see in Revelation chapter 12 that the dragon is a symbol of Satan, but it is also the symbol of Rome whom Satan used to attack God's people and the Messiah himself. And if you read in Revelation chapter 13, it is the dragon that gives 
the beast of Revelation 13 his power and great authority. So Satan and Rome, working in unison, have this authority. And the prince, well, who are you subject to, prince? Well, what's in the name? You know, Pope Benedict, they made a big deal when they chose his name. Do you remember that? And there was a lot of writing about the importance of the name because the name stands for something. So I'm briefly going to go through this history and then we'll have a short break. Charles I of England. Let's just go through these names. Charles famously engaged in a struggle for power with Parliament over England. Now please look at the date. 1625 to 1649. So here, Rome was firmly in control. They had the crown. They had the power. They controlled the kings of England. And then something terrible happened in history. The Reformation came. And Rome lost that power. Not legally, but by force of power. But did they lose the power, really? You know, I was thinking about uh, that symbology of the dragon, and it's the thing that gives Prince of Wales his power, and it's on the flag of Wales. There's a lot of dragon symbolism. He was saying it was on under the bridges in Rome. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. Because on the city of London, there are dragons on the bridges to yep. enter the city. And I thought I that's interesting because I already had, you know, the city of London and Vatican and the ruling financial powers working together in kind of this triangle formula formation. None of them can be the totality, but together they can beat the rest of us between the British Empire, city of London and, uh, the Vatican. If I'm not mistaken, it was, I believe the angel Gabriel that also puts the sword to the serpent, which is oftentimes symbolized as a dragon. So, I mean, it could, in other words, it's oh, so Michael. extensive. Oh, Michael. Or Michael, rather. Saint Michael, Michael versus yeah. the, Saint Michael. The, the dragon. That's it. That's it. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, um, the gist I wanted you to get from that was uh, there's a long history behind the stuff that's going on. Goes back a while. But uh, you dig into any of it, it gets pretty interesting, right? That's that's Queen, that's King Jong uh, Longshanks. This is like uh, about the time of uh, mid 17th century. You have the almost Braveheart. The first, Braveheart. Yeah, around, you're, you're also close to the origins of Freemasonry around that Scottish, time. I think it's Scottish. Well, Scottish right Freemasonry comes about after the Templars have to flee to Scotland and you then got they it. start purveying their secret society mystery stuff to compete yeah. against Rome, yeah. which had tried to kill them on Friday the 13th. Yeah, right, exactly. Due to the fact that they were selling indulgences. They were, so the Knights Templar ostensibly set up a road uh, uh, to Jerusalem. They set up banking. They set up but they really set up banking. Yeah. It was yeah. That's where the fractional reserve came from. from this holding Protection of rackets, insurance. Yeah. All these great things, exactly, and they—that's really to make your mark. So they get—they basically indebted checks. the Catholic Church, and yeah, pay, so that's pay, where Friday the Thirteenth came from because they credit the Catholic and Church paper money. The you idea of having a check that was yeah. uh, IOUs. That's, that's why Knights that Templar is on the front of American Express. Oh wait, that's a Roman centurion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, six and one half dozen you, together. You got it. You got it. Something like that. <laughs> so it's, the, right. the, the, the thing about real quick about Walter Vice. Yeah. Um, Incredible research. It's you have to sort of separate 
the the overtly his, sort of yeah, epistemological his, cartoonish like black pope yeah he has his rhetoric i'm not you know it's there's a lot of things he says that are a little bit dubious but then he brings in really good history so he tells you a lot of truth but then he's also Queen's has an really ideological bias the, yeah she's wearing yeah. nice templar symbology right and uh right yeah there's Lights more to Malta, the picture but, than yeah. king king charles III will want and, you to and know for those it. that are confused the teutonic branch they were the German branch of the Knights Templar. So I believe the Templar started in Switzerland. Where's the Where's the Bank for International Settlements located, Rich? Uh, where Klaus Schwab lives in Switzerland. Oh, in Switzerland. The Knights Templar, I believe, started in Switzerland. Wow, that's weird. That's so weird. Huh. Then the German branch of the Knights Templar happened to be the Teutonic Knights. So yeah. Nothing, Nothing to World there. War II about any of that. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Nothing to see. All right, so uh, I think we got through a lot of the the thicky, thick, sticky wickets of this evening. We went through uh, KC three, went through Coming some nine eleven stuff, uh, research that can help you see the big picture. And uh, what other things should we cover in this show before we bring it to a conclusion? I honestly think we covered. Um, by far the most important topics from past the past week. Obviously, there's a bunch of the COVID news in Ukraine, but that's stuff that we cover every week. There's actually a nice sort of uh, respite, if you will, to actually cover topics that are much different uh, related to royalty and related to really the major initiative that's being yeah, pushed royalty. now. Do we need it? Right. And like what they're promoting in regards to Great Reset, the Klaus Schwab, World Economic Forum Agenda, with Johnny Bedmore coming on and uh, relaying his information from the article he just wrote. I, I think we covered by far the most important aspects um, of what last week, really. There's an, I don't want to feature Gregory's too much. He has a video called the occult mysteries of the federal reserve bank. So if that's a really good video. If people want to check that out, he gets into the occult aspect of the federal reserve, very similar to uh, the bank of England with the Mithraic um, built on yeah. the old Mithraic temple. Sure. And still has, you know, some interesting connections to but tony britain's small i mean if they don't build on the old mithraic temp temples and temples of diana and stuff i mean where are they going to build you know oh what was it uh they were the whole place is just roman temples back in the day they got to reuse the real estate space come on yeah, true just yeah, like ben franklin space. did with the bodies in the basement he's just reusing the space at every single place he seemed to live at pretty much <laughs> but he wasn't in the hellfire club and all these other secret societies. So what was the grand, no the, sacrifice back the, the grand observance launch, which is a very strange launch, yeah, I believe in France. Strict observance. Strict observance. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah, also that's... the, uh, the Quatuor mm. Coronati lodge, <laughs> but that gets back into Mazzini and things uh -huh. we talked about. Hours that's ago. right. That has so to do with do Italian that. nationalism. Yeah. We don't need that. Yeah. Cause it turns into fascism. Very quickly. Spoiler alert. Yeah. yeah. We covered uh, all the important stuff. So really good episode tonight. Thank you, Johnny, uh, for coming on. Just incredible research. And I want to get let everyone know that. Um, so if you're interested, Tuesday night, where the next town hall will be this Tuesday, starting at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. Matthew Arrett has agreed to join. Um, he's excited to join us and he's going to go over his... Uh, methodology his understanding is the way he interprets complex uh, historical um uh, periods um in the light of sort of schiller's uh sort of theory on uh history 
and methodology associated with that. And he's also going to talk a little bit, uh, quite a bit about, you know, relationships to some of the work he's been doing. And uh, if you're interested, come with questions, you'll get a rare opportunity to interact with him one-on-one and it should be a lot of fun. And I'm really looking forward to, uh, to hosting that for the community. So if you want to join, uh, go to grandtheftworld.com in the top right-hand corner. There is a little join button and uh, you can choose your donation tier and uh, come and, and join the fun. It'll be a lot of, uh, I'm sure there'll be a, from the, first of all, the the erudite nature of the group that joins every Tuesday, there's going to be a lot of uh, very fun conversations. I'm really curious to see in what direction <laughs> a lot of this goes. So it should be quite it would certainly will not be dull. Let me put it that way. And I'm really thankful and appreciative of Matt uh, for joining us. So. It's going to be a lot of fun. Tuesday nights. Tuesday night. Every other Tuesday, but this Tuesday is the on week. So this Tuesday starting at 7 o'clock p.m. Come join the town hall. LD, who do we have to thank for tonight? Aside from our fine members who make it all possible. Yes. Well, actually, before we do... We have one week left for the uh, free access to Michael Bednarik's How to Know and Defend Your Rights course. So go check that yeah, out if you're interested. A couple if you hundred people out. already got in there. Yeah, get in there, yeah. suck up that knowledge, get it under your belt or between your ears, however you want to consume it. Marketplace.autonomyagora.com forward slash your dash rights. And I'll drop the links and put them in the show notes. And uh, yes, let's see. We have an autonomy season coming up soon, Rich. Do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, at the end of September, we have autonomy season eight. We are currently enrolling now at a variety of levels, and we have some special packages for people who said they couldn't afford it. We don't want to send people away without being able to help you help yourself in some way, shape, or form. So now we've developed a nice ramp of introductory stuff for people to just get momentum and showing up for themselves and learning how to invest with invest in themselves in a way that they actually get the payback. They show up for the thing, they consume the value, they practice, they own those skills. Now they've upped their life value, you know. And so, when was the last time you leveled up your value? Uh, give it a chance. Uh, take a look. The obstacle course will help you find out if it's something for you. If you can make it through there, you get a free blueprint strategy call. So you're going to have a better plan for 2023 than you've got right now. And if you get an opportunity and offer to get into the autonomy season eight course, you'd be on the other side with a bunch of uh, classy, qualified, conscientious, kind people who are also breaking through their own status quo, going through their own learning curves, experiencing ambiguity and triggering complexity so that they can actually do some growing in the light direction. You can find out more at getautonomy.info forward slash ignite. And uh, we're going to do the global meet and greet in a couple of weeks. I'm going to do an AMA prior to that. So if you qualify by going through the obstacle course, uh, get yourself to the AMA and get all your questions answered before you even have to uh, take your credit card out. Excellent. All right. So uh, big thanks to all our subscribers. You guys are awesome. Uh, Huge thanks to everybody that that pitched in for that stream. We got a ton of support and really good feedback. And that was something pretty special. Um, (laughs) I don't know. Well, kudos to you, Uh, LD. I mean, Rich, obviously, but I mean, LD, you were 
you're the one behind the scenes making it up, you know, making it opera. And a humble facilitator. Starlink. We did it from Starlink (laughs) because he he figured out the secret buffering function that made it all work. You know, I was wondering, I was in the hunt for one of those, uh, what do they call them? Excalibur, the military grade off of uh, the dark web. Mm. I mean, I'm not saying (laughs) that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So huge thanks to everybody that checked out. Thanks for investing the time. And uh, thanks to the tippers tonight on the rock fin. Uh, let me try to get through this fast. We have some questions. So <laughs> anyway, um, very safe US biolabs, $10. Let's prime this pump. LD, you're doing a kick ass job. Thank you. Former VP Biden, five. Much love, fam. Catch y'all on the rewind side note. This 9-11 anniversary feels different. Can't put my finger on it. Kafka-esque, maybe. Huge feeling of reverence. Peace to all. Enjoy the moon tonight. And Afix, our buddy Afix. uh, Michael in Philadelphia. Uh, Rich, you know. Anyway. (laughs) um afix fifty dollars thanks for letting me into the ning circle over a decade ago for free when i was a poor college kid love you all stay safe out there and he added a comment without that push no way i would have ended ended up producing for mark or even being as aware as i am today not good for him see there you go that's all it comes full circle and i didn't have to do a whole lot other than give him access once upon a time i remember he did the rest for himself yeah congratulations mikey He's a, he's Here a wizard. Um, Tcan five dollars. Give his smiley face. Nick Hayes five dollars. Lifting weights while GTW uplifts my mind. Nick Hayes is an autonomy the, grad. Yeah, yeah, he's over in UK. Tip for the Charles, formerly known as Prince Gag. More funny, more money. <laughs> I'll work on it. <laughs> we'll Dallas. make fun of former princes for money. That'll be my. <laughs> But not Prince. Well, no, because he was an artist. <laughs> uh, Dallas Avad, five dollars, five for Buster. DZ yeah, Lizzie, right <laughs> five dollars. Do you think Satanists are driven by human or non-human slash alien forces? <laughs> no comment. Uh, <laughs> Is irrational Tommy- forces alien? Yeah, um, first of all, you have to identify if such forces exist because right now it's just that the the problem with like totally spiritual entities is that they lack any form of, form of identity or nature, and so without the ability to observe them any any particular way, you're left to sort of the auspices of someone's imagination. So it's a difficult situation to untangle, unfortunately, epistemologically speaking. All right, um, Tommy Riley, ten dollars. Hey, Ryan Dawson does good research on 9-11. What's wrong with him? Not too much. I've enjoyed yeah, his like chalk him. talks for like 10 or 12 years. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan good with us. Yeah. I like Ryan. Yeah. Uh, any word. $2. Good show. Still flat. Um, no, I don't know what that's about. But <clears throat> another one for very safe US Biolabs. $5. Tony said we should check out the COVID Collaborative. Is that a podcast, a Substack? Where can we find that work? Sure. Yeah, I'll answer that right now. You can check it out at www.manufacturingreality.org. Oh, yeah. It's James Jordan's blog spot. Who is a, he is also an autonomy graduate. 
and he participates every uh, every other Tuesday on the town halls. I had him actually on the podcast when I first hosted, or well, not when I first hosted. It was one of my second or third time when I hosted. When I did the roundtables, and uh, you can check it out on that blog spot. That's her Maddie as her name, <laughs> Maddie, aka Space Jelly, as her moniker. That's where she's been posting. And there's a four part series. She's getting ready to write the fifth. Really, uh, it's really it's it reminds me a lot of like Whitney Rebs research. I mean, she's in the begin a nascent stage. Certainly, Whitney is a, a master, but um, she's do Maddie's doing incredible work, and she d- deserves a lot more recognition because she's had a pulse on what's going on, especially with COVID and what's like what we can expect in regards to how they're going to continue to roll out the sort of vaccine and therapeutic hegemony moving forward with real world data and, and collaboration with the world economic forum. So definitely check it out. It's fantastic work and she's always looking for feedback. So um, if you find it interesting or have any questions, her emails at the bottom and she's been, you know, really looking for people to consume it and, and, and sort of, you know, comment on it and, and have any questions and whatnot. She also participates sometimes on the town halls as well. So, Maddie does great work. Um, Okay, we're almost there. Matt Green, $5. I missed tonight. Got to catch it tomorrow, but I'm enjoying the Michael Badnarik class. Thanks for the 9-11 marathon. Nice. Welcome. Denver Attaway, $2. I wish I had a million bucks to give you guys. I think he said that last week. Me too, bro. (laughs) (laughs) Daniel Butler, 20. Thanks, guys. Thank you all so much. And uh, I just want to give a quick thank you to Jared. Uh, He had me on the Conspiracy Cinema episode 007 on Monday night. And uh, Mm -hmm. I got to view Children of Men with uh, Rachel. Um, Oh, that's a fun one about eugenics and sterilization of the human race. That was a a good time. Uplifting. It's a good challenge. Male Um, virility is falling at all in any sort of exponential form. (laughs) Yeah. Wait, my uh, movie's a little bit portentous at this point. Clive Owen will save the world. <laughs> so, it's all um, about that strawberry reefer they're smoking in it. So. Yeah, that's Call. a great. That's a great Michael Caine character. Yeah, uh, but it really. Jared is. Yeah. Jared does a great job of editing. Uh, you know, cutting cutting in the commentary and speed ramping the uh, the viewing of the movie, and then just B roll. Um, he yeah he do, he does some editing for other people. So thanks again for that opportunity and. Uh, it's in the show notes if you want to check it out. I still have to, I haven't had time to review it yet. But yeah, thanks everybody. I was thinking when you said Jared, I was like, are you talking about Jared Kushner? I said, because all he's good for is using his apartment as an Airbnb for Ariel Sharon. Or Shimon Perez, one of the guys. Ariel Sharon. One of them. One of them likes to sleep in his bed over there. Read about it. Netanyahu. There form, we go. A former, third try. Former PM. Of Israeli Israel. Prime Minister is for 100, Alex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you imagine Alex Jones hosting Jeopardy? Now, that would be some fun. <laughs> that shit. would be, oh, man. Oh. He just came up with an awesome skit, bro. Trebek Holy is fuck. dead. Long Do we have someone who can impersonate Alex Jones really well? Because I will drive up right now. We will film that because that would be fantastic. Oh, man. We, we have, have to say it in the form of a question. <laughs> <laughs> I got the documents. What makes for $50? What is atrazine? <laughs> my favorite line by atrazine. One of my favorite <laughs> lines by Alex Jones talking about the Templars and shit. It's like you tear it down, you just see it's a bunch of night, it's a Teutonic Knights and Templars and the Dark Kabbalists, and it's it's Dark Kabbalism. It's all it's all around us. You know, I was like, okay, John, okay, Alex. That was back in like 2011. Yeah. There's a lot, a lot of that out there. So 
you know, watch uh-huh. Neon Genesis Evangelion Neon, uh, anime nerds, you'll understand what that reference actually then means a little bit. A lot of symbolism for the nerds out there like me. Who do we have to uh, make us laugh at the end of this? Anyone? A lot. Anyone? Well, yeah, we do have a great Bueller. PSA in musical form uh, given the. A PSA? The, yes. Given <laughs> Is that the like food? the dude from the Wu Tang clan? Raza? Raza and PSA? Exactly. Or a PSA, public service announcement. Given the food security concerns, I think this is this will be good for everyone to hear. Ah, uh, eat the bugs. The drizzle. Yeah. Um, but I don't know what else. Let's play something. No, I'm down. Yeah, that. that's good. Oh, before that. Um, so you have here. I'll put it on the screen for so you. So wait, I'm confused. Right? What are we um, playing? We're gonna play a song as the outro, which he already has that pick. Is that James's song, or is this a different? Well, uh, James introduced it to me. So uh, well, what's okay. it called? Okay, cool. Joe Biden wants to take your meat. All right. I got you. So you better find you. a hiding place that he can I get to. I got you. Okay. Hide your kids. Hide your butt. Hide your All right. So, <laughs> okay. So we have Joe Biden. Well, oh, no. We have that. I got you. Fred. I got you. I got you. I got this. Okay. Then and, we have. Uh, the, thanks so for watching. Oh, oh, we have one more clip. So, like, that's the song out. Which, which funny clip do you want to play? So we have Dr. Oh. Here is my. Dr. Fauci is my hero. It's Alex Stein. We have. Brian Long advertising in 10 years. The guy that believed, oh, JP series, the guy that believed Biden's speech. That was hilarious. Yeah, well, I think so it's much. Right. So we'll go it, with so. JP. Yeah. We'll yeah. go with JP. <laughs> Watching Grand Theft World is like riding a bull. Not everyone's going to make it to the end when the bell rings, <laughs> you know. But right. if you do, you're a champion. And if you fall off, you can watch the replay. All right. Thank you guys all for tuning in and not dropping out. Thank you, everyone. Here's JP Sears with the guy who believed Biden and something about Biden's meat to play us out. Say goodbye, Snowflake. <laughs> bye bye. Good night, everybody. Good <laughs> Trump and the extreme MAGA Republicans quote a clear and present danger to our democracy. Hey, man. Ah! <laughs> Okay. Uh, what's up? What are you doing? What every sensible American who hates their country and loves their government should be doing. I'm trying to protect myself from all those dangerous extremist Trump-supporting Republicans we've been told to worry about. What are you talking about? Didn't you watch Biden's speech? Let me fill you in. It turns out that you and I and our democracy are in grave danger. Biden broke the news that the greatest threat to our republic are Trump-supporting Republicans, which in a campaign of Biden against Trump happens to be all Republicans. Those people are violent monsters. Before, I just mistakenly thought they were my fellow Americans who happened to think differently than me about some things and vote differently. But when the commander-in-chief told me to think about them as dangerous extremists, I realized I had been thinking about them incorrectly. Now I have a more sensible point of view of just thinking about them as the enemy of the state. You can tell how dangerous they are because in an effort to unite the country, Biden divided the country against the enemy, which is half the country. And only once divided, then the country can unite against the enemy which is half the country. And get this, while President Biden spoke, he had Marines standing behind him. And we know a president only has military behind him during this speech when we're at war to symbolize the military force that we can use against the enemy. So clearly the Republicans are the enemy. You really think they're all dangerous extremists? I do now. Uh, Biden's press secretary, I forget her name, uh, 
black lady lesbian. She even said that if you don't think like the majority of Americans, then you're the extremist. If that's true, Biden's approval rating is only 38%, which means the vast majority of Americans think differently than him, which implies that the people that agree with Biden's thinking would be the extremists. Yeah, I thought about that, but the president didn't bring that up during his speech, so it's probably just like an invalid perspective during wartime. But what he did say is these dangerous Republicans are semi-fascists. And we know how dangerous fascists are. Just look at what they've done throughout history to take power away from the people. They silence their political opposition. They weaponize federal institutions to hunt their political opponents while protecting themselves against investigation for corruption. They censor their citizens. They constantly inundate them with state-sponsored propaganda. They label voters for their opposition as a threat to society. And they impose restrictions on their citizens that rob them of their liberty. Do you know that Biden's done all of those things? Probably just a coincidence. But could you imagine if Republican extremists did even one of those things? That would be fascism. Not good. That's why we're instructed about the dangers of those people. That kind of talk reminds me of something. Are you aware of the 10 stages of genocide? Yeah, I'm not stupid. We're currently at stage six. Has that ever concerned you? Not concerned at all, because I listen carefully. The administration says they're protecting our democracy. So it just happens to be that the 10 stages of genocide are the same as the 10 stages of protecting a democracy. And we're at stage six, so we're starting to get really well protected. <clears throat> and I'm hoping we can get to stage seven by midterms. So you just believe everything Biden said in his speech? Yeah, without even thinking about it. Once he emerged from the shadows and started speaking with a blood-red background, I was already under a fear response, which made it so the information he was saying just went in and stuck without any interference from my rational discernment. Did you know that's the classical way to hypnotize a person or induce a large group of people into mass formation psychosis? Mm, I don't know that much about football plays and formations, but... I don't think that has anything to do with this. And I don't know who has time to worry about football when we should be busy being scared of the dangerous Republicans. This is wartime. You know what? I'll be honest with you. I feel kind of foolish. I've got neighbors over there. They're Trump voters. And dummy me, I've let my guard down when I've been around those dangerous extremists. That older couple over there? No, no, no. Don't make eye contact. Might provoke them to strike. They're always posing as a sweet old couple, kind and friendly to your face, going out of their way to help you. Now I understand it's just an act. And guess what? I don't think they've ever broken character. That's how deceptive they are. Conniving extremists. But no more fooling me now. Thanks to Biden's speech, I will correctly see them as the enemy that wants to harm me and our democracy. Are you sure that's the right way to think about that? 100%. The easy way to tell that's the correct way to think about that is because after someone else told me to think that, in this case the President of the United States, he shook hands with air again. He always does that after he says something really important. It's just his way of showing that what he just said is absolute dependable truth. Think about that.
piece of trouble if he succeeds. Crumble says there's a prophecy where the men leave the tunnels if they can't feed. Don't bite it, I'm begging, please. There are so many other foods that you can eat. Crumble says there'll be hell unleashed if the men in the tunnels don't get their meat. Crumble says there'll be hell unleashed if the men in the tunnels don't get their meat. Crumble says there will be hell unleashed if the men in the tunnels come up to feed. Joe Biden is going to come into your home and eat all of your meat? I, I can help. Yes, it's the story of history. It's the story of plunderers taking care of people who produce. They claim to take care of them through government, which doesn't give you anything. It doesn't take away first. So it's not creating something out of nothing. It's very real what they're doing. They're taking your rights or taking some people's rights and adding more to someone else's rights. If you haven't heard about our Grand Theft World community membership, here are a few of the things you've been missing. A mobile app where you can access replays of the Grand Theft World podcast and show notes. Access to the Grand Theft World community on Discord, where we crowdsource news and resources, and you can contribute to the show. The opportunity to participate in the Grand Theft World bi-weekly town hall. Exclusive content from Richard Grove, including behind-the-scenes footage and future access to unpublished material. 93 episodes of the Peace Revolution podcast, and the Grand Theft World newsletter delivered straight to your inbox each week. If you want to stay ahead of the great game, visit us at grandtheftworld.com, click or tap the button in the top right-hand corner, and join a vibrant community of researchers blazing a new path to truth. We'll see you there.